Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder Podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to History Hack. Welcome, really, to a special edition episode that we can't really believe it's been a year since these originally went out. We have put together our cast reunion for Band of Brothers as a massive supercut. So we thought, because it's really long, we'd take a bit of time at the beginning of the episode to talk some more before you even get to it. So we're going to talk and reminisce. And to do that, I have the leaders of Bobfest. I have the boss lady, Alex Churchill, and all the way from Normandy, France, Paul Woody Woodage of World War II TV himself to have a quick chat about what it was like a year ago, getting all of those guys together for the first time in a while for a lot of them to talk about Band of Brothers. So, hi guys, how are you doing? Hello. I'm well, thank you. Yep, super. I can't believe it's been more than a year, wasn't it? April 2020. It's been like 18 months. It's mental. But if you're going to ask us where the idea came from, which I'm guessing is going to be your first question, it just has to be over to Woody because it was Woody's idea. I love it because it was so humble. It was like, I think I can get two or three of the guys who are in Band of Brothers to do a podcast. (laughs) And then... Woody nearly drove himself insane. Yep. See, I remember that bit, but I don't know how we got (laughs) to that bit. I mean, I clearly remember saying that, but what were we talking about before? Had you suggested the idea of acknowledging Band of Brothers? Because I can't remember that bit at all. I have no recollection. I really don't. The bit where my memory comes in is um, thinking that we could get two or three of the actors, then thinking we might be able to get John Orr, who I met, by the way, at James Holland's book launch, and he's absolutely lovely. And then thinking we could do the easy kids, as they call themselves. And then basically a month of my life is a blur. As like, At this point, I had precisely two, three weeks experience editing and literally was just cropping out ums and things and then was presented with just hours and hours of footage of blokes screaming at each other and swearing a lot and talking over each other about just randomly conversations and then having to listen through and get themes out so we've got like the episode where they're all like effing and blinding about Dale Die, and then to that fourth episode which we decided was going to be the weepy one where they all talked about legacy and the families and stuff and I have I like you have no idea how it started I mean I what I do think is you and I, Matt, we've all been doing a lot more of this kind of thing since then. I mean, we've all spent a lot of time doing hosting and putting things together. And I think 
if we were to do it now, it would have more structure, but not necessarily for the better. I think it felt a bit like, you know, you read those things in like in the late 60s where Brian Wilson from the Beach Boys would turn up somewhere and then John Lennon would walk in and then Sons and they just kind of sit in LA and it felt, it feels like that now. That's how I think of it as just... Uh, an improvised gig and the actors were texting their mates and then suddenly they were coming on and we didn't suddenly Michael Kudlitz is lying in a hammock on your screen yeah it was bonkers it would never happen and how like you tried so hard to get like Dexter Fletcher and we were never going to get him and James Maddio was just too busy because his wife was working and he was on kid duty and how and and like who was oh the redhead his name is completely got Scott Grimes. Scott Grimes, been yeah. Covered the... under the stairs. Yeah. <laughs> it was just, I, I don't think you'd ever get that again. And Matt Settle, who hasn't talked about being Spears for 20 years, just pulling his bike over on a trail somewhere and dialing in as well. I just think it all happened at the right moment, didn't it? Just, Woody, when you started approaching your original two, how did they react to it? Because I guess it was lockdown one. It'd been 20 years since filming then. What was their initial reaction? Well, the first two or three were easy because it was just people that I'd become kind of matey with anyway. And we were just chatting generally. Yeah. And they were, they were stuck in lockdown. I was stuck in lockdown. We all stuck in lockdown. So the first two, three, four were relatively easy to get on board. And then it kind of stagnated for a bit and a few and then one or two more and then it just went crazy and then when we started doing them it was as you know it was kind of chaotic and it got to the point where they started off saying well i can kind of be available then and then they were sort of being annoyed that they weren't involved in all of them even though they hadn't really what it was weird but it was ben kaplan was like, oh, i would have loved to have done that one as well and you go well you could have yeah it was brilliant but and it, it just became a thing it just became a monstrous thing the weirdest one that I remember, or the oddest one, was however long we were on, and then Nolan Hemmings came on at the end from Australia, who just got up and was having breakfast, and we'd been at it for what four hours or something, and yeah. we were we were flagging by this point, and then he's out there kind of opening up fruit and stuff, and on the beach there, and it sort of it gave us all a bit of a burst of life to carry on and see it through to for another hour or whatever. I think it was, was it five or five and a half hours, that mammoth one? Six. I, Six. I think we made a point, didn't we, with texting each other saying, we're not going to stop this. As long as one of them is still chatting away, we will sit here as long as it takes. And I think we ended up, didn't we, with a couple of them where we literally were still sat there in the early hours of the morning and they were still chewing the fat. And, and I think one was George, wasn't it? The more wine they drunk away, this is brilliantly Peter Youngbug Hills after a complete bottle of red wine started and they all started singing. Do you remember? Yeah. yeah. I mean, and that's the magic, isn't it? I mean, that the magic is it was spontaneous. I can't say it now. It was um, spontaneous. It was just riffing and they weren't take. they were taking it semi-seriously to a certain point but they were also just having a good time with each other and and i still how you and then now matt have managed to pull it together into some sort of that's the thing because it they were hysterical everybody screaming at each other and laughing about boot camp and then someone would get really deep about something and none of it had any rhythm did it in the original Mm. what i think what we started with was about 14 hours of 
stuff but that had no shape or structure at all but I think that's why it worked I think if you'd have tried to manipulate them right now we're going to do some serious stuff chaps I don't think it would have worked the same I think the fact that they were all free to just talk about whatever they wanted whenever they wanted meant that it was harder for us to make sense of it all but I think it made a better Uh, and that's where that parallel of them acting a bit like a military unit at a reunion worked because my experience of going to reunions of veterans is the same thing happens there. They'll have a moment of real kind of solid solemnity when they're talking about the loss of a friend and then someone will make a crack or something and it just goes riotous and stupid a second later and then it kind of flits back again and it people will get out photo albums and they'll be looking at ones of them with their shirts off on leave, you know, with girls and it'll say the next photo will be, you know, liberating Belson or something. And that's how veterans unions often go, that real complete change of tone and that's exactly what happened in this isn't it where they were telling funny stories about each other pulling out chest hairs and all the all the weird oh, stuff that was no, coming in the arm hairs. Hairs. but the one about scott grimes's story about the the bar fight where they none of them dropped character and they ended up in that bar fight and he was like i don't know what the fuck i'm doing but i'm in i'm in yeah, yeah it was i think it was great i just I was a listener then because I hadn't been roped into this. I'd been, I remember chatting to you when you had the idea, Alex, about doing history hack. And then we'll have you on for typhoons. And then of course, typhoons get pushed way down the list because you've got far more interesting people. But listening as a fan, it was, I remember listening to the first one mowing the lawn and just going, how have they managed to do this? Because I think it's about midway through the second episode that you put together they've all started calling each other by their character names again, by their vet- the veterans' names. Yeah. And it felt a pretty seamless switch that they suddenly were very comfortable again. And yeah, that- I think we had that in all the TV reunions we've done. Once they, especially with historical stuff, once they realised they weren't going to be grilled about all the historical, mm-hmm. especially when we did the, the Nightfall one with Tom Cullen and Ed, they were all ready for another panning because it was and when we just went at the very beginning look this is about this is about the fucking holy grail of course this isn't historically accurate now let's talk about how much fun you had and actually seeing um them all just visibly breathe out and go oh i'm not here for that i'm not here to defend why we did it wrong was brilliant but i think there were a couple of things that anchored it one of them was richard because he was a pit there were a few that were pillars to build the rest around and he was one of them especially when it came to the serious stuff uh, because the guy i still reckon the guy should run for president he's so eloquent yeah. and and put stuff so well and also as well we got the guy in who played the the person who the the officer who was killed right at the very beginning in episode two and he read he went back into character and read the last oh jason o'mara yeah yeah yeah, that was great Um, yeah and and he read the last letter out in character didn't he and and it also it inspired them to go off and do their henry v thing as well that they did on youtube which was phenomenal and it's he didn't have much to do with it i don't i I think lockdown affected some of them more than others. And Matthew Leach didn't have that much to do with what we did. But now he's gone off and done his um, We uh, we Few 506 thing, hasn't he? Broadcasting more stuff with them. So Yeah, no, Matt is an example of someone where we just brought him out in a sense from kind of a, not a dark place, but he had mixed feelings about that show as he articulated so so eloquently and kind of movingly and now i think he's come through that it was cathartic for matt and matt is now embracing the whole thing he's in baston in december with a few of them and- what's brilliant as well is that he 
when he recorded solo on his own, he couldn't make anything and he sent us a voice clip and it was quite dark and it was quite regretful. But what we did was play it to one of the groups so that they could react to it because we didn't think it was fair to him to just air that in isolation. So we played it and then recorded some of his friends reacting to it, even though he wasn't there. And they were like, oh, no, he should never feel like that. That's ridiculous. Yeah, no, definitely. And uh, it, yeah, it's something I'll look back on very fondly, uh, despite the, the chaotic nature of it. And yeah, you're right about Richard Spate, because he was a struggle to kind of bring on board because he just was busy and, and, and didn't and A lot of them, they've it. done it to death. They're sick of being asked to go and give their time for nothing and relive this thing. And a lot of them have kind of said, like, I'm kind of done with it now. And it did, but once the others, I mean, it turned into a bit of a dick-off, didn't it? Well, hang on, if he's done it, and what, you're saying Scott's done it, and James has done it, right, well, then I'm doing it as well. And then they just rock up on our Zoom feed and suddenly drop in, wouldn't they? Yeah, no, it was, it was, yeah, truly memorable. And, you know, there's a couple other people I wish we'd got on board that maybe if we t- tackled it a different way, they might have done. But, you know, hey, it was it's amazing what we achieved there. And, uh, yeah, it kind of launched both of us in the sense of, of that this can be done. You can just kind of have random ideas that sound crazy, sound sensible when you say them drunk and then when you sober up they do sound weird but then actually they they work you can just bring together people via this weird phenomenon of the internet and just chat about stuff in an informal way and it just it works it can really be informative and and something special and i think that's a wonderful place to let our wonderful listeners actually start to listen to the cast reunion that we have put back together it still remains the most listened to history hack episodes when you put them all together so by a country mile isn't it yeah so especially part one part one seems to be extra popular but now it is all just one part so alex and woody thank you so much for giving us a little bit of your time and to everybody else enjoy this day is called the feast of crispian he who outlives this day and comes safe home will stand at tiptoe when the day is named. And rouse him at the name of Crispin. He that shall see this day and live old age will yearly, on the vigil, feast his neighbors. And say tomorrow is Saint Crispin. And he will strip his sleeve and show his scars. And say these wounds I had on Crispin's day. Old men forget, yet all shall be forgot. But he'll remember with advantages. What feats he did that day. Then shall our names. Familiar in his mouth as household words. Be in their flowing cups freshly remembered. This story shall the good man teach his son. And Crispin Crispian shall ne'er go by. From this day to the ending of the world. But we in it shall be remembered. We few, we happy few, we band of brothers. For he today that sheds his blood with me shall be my brother. Be he ne'er so while, this day shall gentle his condition. And gentlemen in England, now abed, shall think themselves accursed they were not here. And hold their manhoods cheap whilst any speaks that fought with us. 
upon St Crispin's Day. So what you've just heard, obviously, is uh, Henry V's speech, isn't it? Uh, ben Kaplan, who played Smokey Gordon, that's something you've put together. Yes, it's something I've put together. I had a little idea. I'm sort of employed by the Royal Shakespeare Company at the moment, and they asked us during this lockdown period to get involved with a, a Shea or Shakespeare initiative by just sort of sharing videos online, uh, Twitter and, and Instagram, of people performing bits of Shakespeare, however which way they see fit. And I decided that it would be a really lovely thing to do on our 20th anniversary to be able to ask the cast, um, as many of the cast as I could get together, to record a line from the Henry V speech, um, not only as a, a momentum to the 20, or, or to celebrate our 20th anniversary, but also to be able to share a bit of Shakespeare and to bring us all back together. That's brilliant. Thanks so much for sharing. Oh my God, we are so, so, so excited. Oh, it's chaos here already. Guys, how are you all? How's lockdown? Shit. Shit. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm having a great time. I'm having uh, a great time. Ross, you know, you're in Italy. Uh, George, mm. you're in Beirut. We've got Cheers. people in London. Uh, Renee, where are you? Chicago. Chicago, yeah. Yeah, pr- properly global uh, gathering of Band of Brothers guys. Um, let's just get cracking. Alina, give us a question. Oh my God, this is so exciting. So guys, mm-hmm. we're going to go around the room. Uh, did any of you have a, have a personal connection with World War II before shooting Band of Brothers? Let's start with Bart Rispoli, who played Ed Tipper. My, my grandfather was, um, well, my mother's side was a wing commander in the RAF, flew Lancasters oh. and Mosquitoes. Epic. And fi- we found out uh, my, what, about 15, 15, 16 years ago that he was actually uh, MI5 or MI6, whichever one it was, he was... He was in the Secret Service as well, and his, his, his records are sealed for another couple of years. Go ahead, Peter Youngblood Hills, who paid Shifty Powers. So, so my, I think it was my grandfather's cousin. Obviously, I think everybody was somehow affected and a part of, the, a part of that, had some sort of personal connection to it, to World War II. My grandfather's cousin was, a, he was a ranger, and he died on D-Day, so that was basically... Uh, that was, I guess, it, you know, the most you know personal side of my family that was connected to it. But I mean, everybody was. My grandfather was an engineer. He was, you know, doing all sorts of things, and you know, there was a lot of, uh, yeah, a lot of things, a lot of people involved, a lot of effort going into it. Yes, George Khalil, who played Mo Ali. Yeah, uh, Pete and I are both kind of from Tennessee. Well, he's completely from Tennessee, and I'm kind of from Tennessee. Uh-huh. And my granddad and his brother were both in the Pacific. And my granddad's brother got a purple heart, but I couldn't tell you where. But I have it. Wow. Someone else is coming on. They want to say hi. Hold on. Who else is he said he'll pick up. He just texted me. Hold Ladies and gentlemen, say hi to Spears. Oh, Daddy. Daddy. Oh, oh. Hey. oh my God. Sorry. Got the whole no. Hey. Hey. Good to see you. Really, that could actually make me emotional. <laughs> it is. It is. Man. That is really loud. Okay, could you guys yeah, hear me? There you go. Oh, oh there he is. Alive. <laughs> Alive. This is what this is what happens when you download an app on a bicycle. So like, I, I mean, <laughs> we're very honoured that you took the time to get off the bike and download the app. <laughs> well, it's good to be with you guys. 
Thanks for having oh, me. It's lovely to see you. Uh, Matt. It's extraordinary. And now my yes. battery's dying. Unbelievable. Uh, let's get a question in if that's all right. Please, yeah, please do. Please do. We're talking about what people's uh, connection to World War II was before Band of Brothers. How did you get ready to play a massive character like Spears? Uh, yeah, I mean, well, I got to meet him. Oh, wow. Uh, but, but not before I played him. So uh, I guess fortunately for me, my character was in uh, E Company to start with. And so I took the first month, everybody else was shooting Curahy. And I, I went to Normandy and I took a road trip and went to the museums and, uh, you know, watched some gore porn about war and stuff like that. Just to kind of get a background and, you know, the bottom quality of what it's like to go through the harrowing ex experiences. Um, talked to my uncle. Uh, he was D-Day plus two. Uh, talked to whoever I could talk to that knew any sense of war. And then, and I leaned on Dale Dye heavily. Um, I think one of the biggest uh, things that was helpful for me was when we dropped our names in boot camp. Um, we all started acting the part and we were calling each other by our characters' names. So that was helpful. How do you play it? I mean, the, the part was so well written. Um, the relationships uh, with all of our characters in boot camp. Um, hmm. I haven't, I haven't answered a question about Band of Brothers in 20 years. It seems like... Um, we but, are slightly uh, excited. We feel very honored. Like, yeah. Really. yeah. <laughs> um, I, I guess, you know, growing up, I'd been around a lot of uh, reverence for war. Mm -hmm. And I, I had a great reverence for heroism and selflessness and people um, giving up themselves for the good of others. And um, I guess that was innate in me and because I was the youngest of my siblings and uh, they had a lot of respect for, you know, members of my, my family. My, all, everybody in my family was a veteran. Uh, my dad was, he just missed World War II and Korea. He was kind of right in the middle. But all of my uncles, Anzio, Normandy, um, and so I, I grew up with a great respect for that. We always, I grew up in a church, so the church always like had ma massive respect for uh, people who had served in the armed forces. And, uh, so that, that part of having reverence for it was easy. Um, as far as getting this sort of, uh, mysterious, scary quality of spears that may have existed, uh, I, I don't know, maybe that was innate in me, in me. It's kind of like uh, Jessica Rabbit said, I'm not bad, I'm just drawing that way, you know? <laughs> yeah, so it's, uh, uh, so maybe it's just the way, you know, Rick, Rick, Rick Gomez and I can tell the same joke and nobody laughs when I tell it, you know? So it's like, uh, <laughs> it's like uh, you know, Oh, but, uh, dude, that's not I, true. If I that is true. If you as Jessica Rabbit fucking blowing everybody's mind. <laughs> Everyone's gone somewhere. I pick, I pick up a fork off a table. Everybody backs away. Rick picks up a fork, and they're like, "Oh, you're gonna get, you're gonna make some art with that." What are you gonna do? <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, I think, I think, sort of our chemistry. Maybe there's a, maybe there's a, a quality. We've, we've all lived other lives, and uh, so maybe I bring some of that karma into this life. I don't know. You believe in karma? Mark Lawrence, you played Dukeman. Your grandmother had a brush with Easy Company, didn't she? My grandmother, during the war, she, uh, she lived in a place called Swindon, which is about 10 miles from Oldbourne, where they were stationed just before they dropped into Normandy. And she was a bus driver because obviously the women did the, the, the men's jobs. 
So she'd drive the bus from Swindon to Oldbourne to pick up guys from the 101st and then drive them back into Swindon so they could go and get drunk, do whatever they had to do. So it's very probable that my grandmother drove Dukeman on one of those buses. And the joke is that he could be my grandfather. <laughs> That's incredible. And Philip Barantini, you played Skinny Sis. Your granddad um, saw the Airborne, didn't he? I, I was lucky enough. My, my, grand, my grandfather passed away um, not long ago, actually, a few, like a month ago or so. And um, he's missed all of this craziness that's going on at the moment, thank, thank God. But I, I was lucky enough to be able to take him to Normandy a bunch of times and to, to Bastogne as well. And Paul uh, got to meet him and all of the actors got to meet him as well. And he had this... He, I didn't know this at the time, but he told me this story. He told everybody this story when we were um, in Normandy. Um, on October the 18th, 1943, uh, the SS, uh, what is it? S S Samaria. Samaria, that's the one. <clears throat> it, was, it was docked in Liverpool, and the, um, the 101st um, got off in Liverpool and to buy, you know, uh, candy and cigarettes and stuff like that. And my grandfather was working at the dock, in the docks at the time. He was just, you know, a teenager, and he saw them all, you know, getting off the getting off the ship, and um, and it was just a it, it's just an incredible moment for him because he, he was so 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 proud, you know, that they were they were they they'd come over and, and he, he got to see see them and then and then all these years later he's he's in Normandy he was he was a big World War Two fan and and he you know he was really interested and he had all the books and things like that and he he'd read the Band of Brothers book before I got a part in the in the show. Yeah, no, he got to see like, <clears throat> you know, to meet Paul and all the guys and got to experience that um, the way we got to experience it. And he was, he's been, he was forever grateful for everybody for that. Um, and, you know, to, to sort of come full circle and, and be a part of that. The family, our family, all the actors. <clears throat> he said to me, I went to Normandy with one grandson and I came back with a load of grandsons. Um, everybody was, you know, his family in the end and, and he stayed in touch with Paul. Paul came to visit him in um, in Liverpool. Let's talk about casting. Um, it's the beginning of a masterpiece. I know Paul has something he wants to talk to Dexter Fletcher about who played John Martin. Did you know there's a website out there where mm. it, the, it talks about your character Johnny Martin, your portrayal. You are the Willie and Joe reincarnated. Now if you don't know who Willie and Joe are that's that famous cartoon in World War II of these two bedraggled GIs. If you look, if you search on Google, Willie and Joe, you'll find the cartoon. These, these newspaper little, you know, three strip cartoons. And Willie and Joe were these just representations of your typical GI in World War II. And there's a website, of, and this is, this is used by serving American personnel, saying that your portrayal of Johnny Martin, you bring to life Willie and Joe. And they're basically saying <laughs> you are the absolute stereotypical the guy who was always there, that sergeant who was always there, who maybe isn't the one who runs over the hill with a machine gun, but that guy who was always there. And I just was, wanted to know whether you knew about that. I, I, did, I didn't know about that. And I'm trying that's to... That, to that's, uh, Scott's pulled it up now, yeah. Oh, uh, right. I, look, that's a, well, it's obviously a huge compliment. That's incredible. I, I mean, I think I, I certainly, as the actor that I was then, I wanted to be in it as much as I could, if I'm completely honest about my, you know... <laughs> You know, it's like suddenly we, you, you, I hadn't worked for a long time and this was an incredible job and you were in a sea of green actors all around the same age. So maybe there was an element of me of just being that grizzled. And I was, 
you know, I was about five, six years older than everybody else. I was in my early 30s when we started that show. I mean, I, I don't know. But I just, and I've been around for a long time. Like Tim was saying, I've been acting since I was a kid as well. And so I would just, I just made myself sort of like there. So I, I suppose there was a solid kind of uh, element towards, all right, I'll just sit here. I'll just squeeze myself in here. But if that in somehow became, you know, because the thing about it is that only I know that. And maybe the guys around me are like, oh, yeah, he's doing his thing. He's sort of, you know, leaning into the shot or whatever the hell it is that we all do at that age, you know, which is kind of par for the course. But if that starts to become part of the fabric of this thing, it's like I was saying, the, 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 what our personal experience are, is inside of it is, is irrelevant because we're representing that, the thing. That it, and, and if people start to read into it, oh, he's like William Joe. They start giving me that. And, and that's just a great byproduct of... Yeah. Of, I, I'm, not, I'm not articulating it very well, but, you know, it, and that's a great thing. And that's what I was saying, that the thing is bigger than all of us and people give us that. It's the same. Someone will be saying, you know, uh, Matthew Leach's character, Talbot, he's just there for me. He's the guy. He's the one. I'm sure that everybody who loves the show as a favourite guy for various different reasons, you know, fake, uh, you know, jumps out at a out of the fucking clouds of explosion and fires his gun. Of course, he's easy to love. And, you know, but there's other people who are going to have their characters that they just, they connect to. And I suppose that's part of the success of the show. That's part of the rich history that it gives. It shows all of these men, you know, we're all carefully chosen, you know. Uh, you know, Jimmy is, is cast because Jimmy is Jimmy. There's something innate about him that a lot of people will be like, fucking love that Bacanti guy because, and that's... There's an authenticity to all of us about it, you know, and it's it's a very wide range of an interesting, really brilliantly cast show. It's brilliantly cast. Yes, Rick Warden, who played Harry Welsh. I That's, think yeah, I think we need you, you, you Dex. We, we said it before on the one a few weeks ago. I think Meg deserves just an extraordinary. Oh yeah. Amount. I mean, oh, yeah. I, yeah. I, as well as the British casting directors who helped her. Um, and there are a number of those, weren't there? Ending up with Gary Davy, but also Debbie McWilliams. Debbie McWilliams, brilliant casting director. Well, let me ask you a question, real quick, guys. So just you guys for a second. Do you think it was luck? It, it, it was Meg, or did we all get along? Most of us, ninety-nine point nine percent of us, because of the experience we were all experienced together, or was it? God, they, she got together a really good group of guys that are just kind human beings. What do you think? Let's go to Jimmy Mario, who played Frank Picante. It's a combination of both. My bad thing is both. Meg had a lot of help, as you hear from Dex and, and you know, the, the London guys, um, cast and directors out there did a, great, did a great job. Matt, do you want to add something? They're kind of seers or, or, or soothsayers in a way, I guess, because they, they, have to, they have to look at you, look through you, imagine every aspect of your quality and say this is going to fit in the chemistry with this person and that person and i'm sure like everyone else you went through a myriad of different characters you probably read for more than one character i know i read for spears winters uh, I, I i read for a lot of different in fact i even got on the stage well not a stage i got up in the room with tom hanks when we were reading because i was so ready to read the Bastogne scenes where we were shivering and I'd been working on shivering so long to make it real, you know? <laughs> and nobody gave a fuck. Nobody cared, you know? <laughs> least of all, Tom Hanks. And I said, 
Well, at least let me get it out of my system. I just spent, you know, three days doing <laughs> at least let me show you that I can shiver, yeah, damn yeah. it. Yeah. And, and, and I said, you know, and I, I said, come on, get up here and do it with me. And he, he actually got up and read it with me. So somewhere in the, uh, the archive at Lantana Center, they've got me and Tom doing a scene together that he just quickly said, this isn't you. <laughs> so I, I went outside. I read Spears in the hallway for about 30 minutes and then, uh, Meg came out and poked her head out and said, are you ready? And I, I went back in and just did a cold reading of that. And they were like, okay, good. Now go home and don't sleep. Memorize that and come back tomorrow. And I think that's kind of what happened with, wow. with Spears. So. Let's talk about auditions. Uh, Tim Matthews, you played Alex Pencarla. That was an eye-opener even for those of us who had five auditions. George, oh, seven, yeah. I think George would love I had, I had eight auditions. Eight auditions. There wow. you go. Tell us. He's making it up now. No, I'm not. I'm not. And I fucked up the last one so royally. It was the thing. I don't know, Tim, if you did it, you know, when you had to talk about the clicker. The cricket, not the clicker, the cricket. And uh, and I didn't know what a cricket was. And instead of calling up Meg Lieberman and actually asking what a cricket was, I, I decided that a cricket was a real cricket. And I was like, I thought there was a cricket somewhere in Normandy. And the audition piece was near the cricket. It <laughs> awesome. was invented in this real cricket that was somewhere in the in the hills. And they, I'm so lucky I even got a part. They must have wow. just been thinking, Jesus Christ, who the fuck is this guy? I was like, did you hear the cricket? <laughs> <laughs> yes, Jimmy. Well, Tom Hanks was in my audition room. Yeah, yeah. Stephen was Friends in my audition room. So these guys were picking in who they wanted the guys to be. And they were mixing and matching me with a few of you guys to see who's fitting and who's not. You know, I was looking over at Frank John Hughes and I was looking over some of the other guys, Neil McDonough and, and, and the Rons and all these guys that we were pitting, you know, mixing and matching for hours. And, uh, you know, they were in the room picking them. So, I, you know, I think a lot of people had a, had a hand in, in choosing. I think that's why I went in six different fucking times over six months. It's the same for the Brits as well. You went to the audition and Hanks was there with his big beard, right? And you went in, you went, oh, my God, it's Tom Hanks looking like he's just come off a desert island. You hit your scene and, and they'd look at each other and there was some sort of understanding and you'd go away and you'd stand outside and go, what the fuck just happened? Did I, I don't know, the same for you. That's Rick. pretty much my experience, what Dex had. Yeah, it's, and it yeah. Was, but I think that they they knew what they were doing when they. I, I must be the same for you, Russ, wasn't it? I mean, yeah, they got a, they got a well down. I mean, I, I I was relatively lucky in the fact that um, I know a lot of guys ended up like Jimmy doing six months of auditioning. Um, mine was the first one was with Meg uh, Lieberman at the Anthonyum Hotel, mm -hmm. and then um, when I left, she told me as I was leaving, I want you to come back and meet Tom next week. So she told me in a room, you're coming back next week to meet the governor. Um, so the second one was to go meet Tom, same as you were saying, Dex, yeah, it was, you know, that it was a lovely time. You had a good old time and he joked around with you and you joked around with him and he'd stand up and he'd play a little bit with you and then you'd finish your, your, your bit. He'd nod, yeah, good, all right, hey, see you, soldier, you know, and you'd go on your bow your way. And then, um, and I don't know if you guys were, aware of this or, or whether it was just a, a fairy tale that my agent gave me but apparently Spielberg was Stephen was going to be directing one of the episodes and maybe the first one and he got sick is when he yeah. went in and had something going on with him and so that had pushed a lot of the um, the, uh, the choices down the line and so then my third audition was with Tony 
Tony Toe came to London and it was at the Groucho, I think. Um, so, I mean, they just, you know, they picked all like the hip happening spots back in 1999 or 2000, wherever we were. Um, and yeah, it was, you know, all in and that was it. Like, you know, that was the last one with Tony. Scott and, and Spate, were, were you guys at that mixing match where they told you how to be there six hours? Right. Yep. Which, which was weird, which was weird for me because I went in, same thing with you guys, Meg first, then Tom was my second audition, and then I was at this big, big mixing match. Hey, hold, hold on, wait, I went in. Tom was his second one? Tom was my second one, yeah. Jeez, I went in for Meg three times. They made me do Luz, they made me do Garnier, then they made me do both of them, and then I they finally... Was like, where can we get this guy in? Get it right one time, Jimmy. <laughs> Fuck! <laughs> Spielberg says we've got to have him, and we ain't got to fucking do it, Hey, yeah, around the Upper East Coast corridor. Like, is he from Philly? Is he from New York? <laughs> 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 he won't stand still. He's talking, you don't understand well, a word he's saying. I'm a little bit of Lazz. I'm a little bit of and I'm going to make Pecan. Yeah, here he is. What range? <laughs> <laughs> Scott, Scott Grimes, who, of course, was Don Malarkey. But the thing is, Jimmy, to answer you, yes, I was there, and I, I didn't have a great feeling about it. I went in one time uh, at the big mixing match, but it was Frank, Donnie, uh, I think Ron. It, it ended up the, the, a lot of that group that I went in. And then I sat in the hallway, and then they came out and said, it's done. So I'm like, fuck, I didn't get this, obviously. I, I had exactly the experience I had. I had the Me exact too. Experience. Me too. I was in the first group that got yeah. called in. So was I. It was me. Was it you, Jim? Were you in that? It was, was Garnier. And it was Patrick Dempsey was in that one. I remember Patrick no, Dempsey. No, what, as in like Dr. Grey's Anatomy, yep. Patrick, Dempsey. Patrick Dempsey. Was what did there. he go for? He, was, he went in for some of the, uh, was Liebgott? Yeah, Liebgott was, was where they were angling him at first, I heard. I'm trying to figure out, it's like, <laughs> Scott, were we in the same group? Like, think, did we do so. So, me, Jimmy, um... Remember, Ron, it was Danny, Danny Elfman's. Danny Elfman's son was in mine too. It's oh, Bodie Elfman. Yeah. Okay. So we did that. I was in the first group that got called in, and then sat there for three and a half hours. And, and, the thing was, and everybody will remember this. And this is a great thing. It was Spielberg had a had this, this new video camera that he was yeah. playing with, and he was just walking around the room filming you. It was very cool. I like that. Richard Spate Jr. You're Skip Mark. Well, you know it's funny because because I was the first group. I go in there and they go, all right, guys, there was ashtrays in there. And they're like, look, we don't know what we're doing. You can't do this wrong because we've never done this before. It's very loose. You guys walk around. You can smoke, whatever you want to do. And at that point, it was Tony Toe, a couple of HBO people, Meg, Tom, and Steven. And at that point, the camera's on a tripod with some kid who's going to hit record and stop. Yeah. And before we go, we're about to do the scene. Steven Spielberg, who hadn't said anything, we walked in. He said... Hey, and he asked Tom, he's like, hey, do you mind if I operate the camera? And Tom goes, no, I don't mind if you operate the camera. You're Steven Spielberg. You're, you're. So he took the camera, like you said, he took the camera off the tripod now. And we do the scene, and Spielberg's walking around. As you're saying your line, he's kind of doing a half circle around you and then panning over to Donnie for his line and doing this whole thing. And we finish the scene. And he's like, all right, thanks, go wait outside. And as we were leaving, Tom goes, and look at it this way, guys. If you don't get the job, at least you can say, 
that you've worked with Steven Spielberg. Do you have that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I can't say that. No, we, I, I had the same thing. When I, when I went in, Steven had the camera. I, he said uh, a little early on when he walked up the stairs, because I was there early, he saw me and he went, hey, my lost boy. And he remembered me. So I got really lucky. But I didn't think he was going to remember me. It was 10 years later. Yeah, you're really forgettable. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he said, my lost boy. He goes, and he just said, you know, I'll see you in there. Good luck. And I went, thank you. And that was it. And then when I went in and he had the camera, did the same exact thing. Went in once. Never went in again. I saw everybody else going a few times. And I just, I went home almost crying because I've been sitting on this thing for, you know, five months now. And, you know, and then all of a sudden I, I thought I blew it. You know, I had like three lines to say. How long did you have to wait before you got the news? It was like three to four weeks every time in between each. Uh, yeah, man. Yeah, it was always a long stretch in between. Yeah. yeah. I got the call yeah. on the I, I, did I have a cell phone? We had cell phones then, right? Yeah, yeah. but it would have been like big, bigger than your head and heavy. Yeah. I remember they called before I got home. That's, so I didn't really? do three weeks. Yeah. Ooh, that's know. a good one. I know. I, I'm not bragging. I'm just saying. No, it's great. I love that. Tim, how long for you on the Brit side of things? Uh, yeah, similar to what Scott, Scott was saying. After the final, the fifth audition, it was a pretty quick turnaround for me. Probably a day. No, I think it was the same day, the same day, like a week or 10 days before boot camp. But prior to that, after the fourth audition, there was radio silence. And my agent said, I think they may have forgotten you. So I'm going to phone them and just remind them that you exist. That's a great agent in that, isn't it? Oh, I, you're my client. I think they may have forgotten you. Anyway, <laughs> yeah. fucking great. I'm just going to jump out that window, shall I? Fuck's sake. Yeah. <laughs> they called me, I'll tell you what happened. They called me like in January and they said, you got the role and all that. And they said, and I said, great. Who? I auditioned for three people. And uh, they said, Percanti. And I went, Percanti? I didn't audition. I didn't audition for <laughs> And they were like, well, you got the role of Percanti and we'll send you all the material. Now, my first instance, I went right to the book because I didn't remember Percanti in the book. He's only mentioned like very small in the book. And I'm like, Percanti. And I looked at him. Now I can't find him in the book. Now I go, I go back to the pages. and I'm like, I see his name. And I see, you know, let's say page 54 and 78. I go to page 70, 54. And I'm like, all right, is he's mentioned? Is he's mentioned there. And then I'm like, all right, I guess, you know, I guess I'm, Percanti, you know, I'm going to London for 10 months to shoot this HBO series and I think I'm a day player. Like, I, like, I don't even know who the guy is. You know, was nothing you wrong. Shocked to find right. out he was from the Upper East Coast. Did that freak you out? We were like, what? <laughs> <laughs> Actually, Frank's from Chicago, Rich. Whatever. <laughs> it's a joke. Get over it. Rick Warden, what about you? I was strange. I don't know about you, Dex, but I... I went in late. I went in in February. I'd been told uh, a, a few times during that year that from earlier casting people, I got that cliched thing back from my agent of, no, they said there's nothing in it for you. And I was like, are you serious? There are 180 speaking roles in this thing. I trust my American. There's got to be something in there. Anyway, I'd stopped whining about it. Uh, and then I got called in. All I read for, it about you, Ross, all I read for was Welsh. And I read for Meg. In the Athenaeum, I'd been told by an actor friend of mine, she's not big on the handshakes and the, the cuddles. Just do the thing and get out of there, which was great advice, which is what I did. The next week or so, it was like, now you're coming in to meet Tom Hanks. Um, I did the thing with Tom. He, play, he had some fun. He had the castaway beard. There were a lot of nerves around. And then within a few days, 
I was driving around the M25 and I got a call from my agent saying, everyone says yes, except Spielberg. He's looking at the tape now. So oh! like, why did you bother telling me? Yeah, yeah I was just going to say that. I was just going to say, why would you say And he says yes. So it was really quick for me, my turnaround. I didn't look, I didn't go up for any other role. The, the, I remember reading, the, uh, there was a Welsh uh, scene as well. That was the, I don't know, what about you, Ross? Because you, did you, you auditioned in the UK? I just thought that was the scene that they got you to read was Welsh. Of course, this is Ross McCall, who played Joseph Liebgott. The two scenes that I had to read um, at the beginning, and then I think it turned, uh, similar to Jim, um, but they, they gave, gave me the Spears speech to Blythe um, when he's in the, in the foxhole. And that was like the big one. That was the one that you had to go and really nail for Tony and Tom. Before that, originally, and uh, I hope, I hope uh, Matty Leach feels okay with it, but there was, a, there was a big Talbert scene, you know, that didn't end up in the show. But there was a, a Talbert scene that, you know, was, was the all-American kid. And so that was like the first one. But I was kind of like, Jim, when I got the phone call and they said, uh, you got Liebgott, and it was probably about, I don't know, a week or two after meeting Tony, they were, I don't know, waiting for Patrick Dempsey to pass, I guess. Um, <laughs> I, um, but, uh, uh, I said, Liebgott, I sort of remember him in the boot. And I was like, are you sure it's not Lipton? I mean, that's where my head went. I'm the only guy with the L. And they're like, no, no, no. And, and the same thing as Jim. I went, you know, and did the cheat sheet and looked up. I went, okay, all right, yeah, this will be fun. So it was, uh, but Spears was was the biggie. That was the biggie. I only, I only, the I only uh, auditioned for Malarkey, and I'll never. Uh, I think Spate, I told you this, and then you told everybody else, and it ended up biting me in the ass. But I wanted Malarkey so bad that I ended up singing "Danny Boy" and burning a CD. And in two thousand, it wasn't easy. It took about twenty seven. 45 minutes just to burn i burned this cd of me singing oh danny boy because it said malarkey was a singer and i gave it to tom hanks after our audition I'm like i made I made this if this helps it says he's a singer i don't know and why did that bite you because i told you the story and then you told everybody in the fucking place that i sang <laughs> in, in fact <laughs> Scott, i'm no, gonna just play you something now i'm gonna play you something now i've got it on my record it's on my phone it's my ringtone on my phone Kidding? Yeah, oh! <laughs> <laughs> right now, but it's like you have albums and you perform live. It's not like I broke a secret <laughs> wide open. <laughs> I don't mean that, but I started. I I became. I think Rick uh, Gomez called me the choir master. It bit me. In <laughs> I just want to be a dancer. I just want to be that. I just want to be a dancer. That was like the fucking. Well, first of I all, loved it. Scott Grimes we, does actually have the voice of an angel, and he does. And so, so much so that I actually use his song in my movie. Oh, that's that right. Last year, Scotty's on the soundtrack. Yeah, yeah. I, do. I use one of his songs too. Yeah. I remember it in ER. I love it. He's got a great. Voice. There was there was another song that was sung because I it was you guys. That was when the choir master bit came out, man. Well, that made the bit. That made the. Are you talking about the song Gory Gory? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That made the bit. Gory Gory, what a hell of a way to die. Yeah, so there was. That was going to be sung, and they were going to do like you guys marching and use it and use it as part of the soundtrack. So they were having you teach everybody the parts. And I know this because I wasn't shooting. It was episode nine, the the, uh, concentration camp. But since everybody was going to sing, they brought me out to set anyway. And I don't know if you guys remember, but I carried the video camera with me everywhere. And I videoed the rehearsal of us singing that song. With and I Rick taught, taught everybody the harmonies. Choir master. 
And that's what you got labeled the choir master because you were in charge of great label. That song. Great label. We've got to talk about boot camp. Um, it's gone down in history so far as the production of war films is concerned. Well, we've talked about we've talked about boot camp over the years, and and yeah. how the story the story can change from day to day. Some people say we're at boot camp for ten days. Some people say we were there for six months. <laughs> <laughs> it, it changes it per story. Days. Um, but it was it was a long. It always felt like twelve days to me. I don't know if it was less or more than that. Like, ten wasn't. It? I don't. Here we go. I thought it was ten. Who knows? How many, what was it? It's, I'm sure it's it eleven anyway, nights, but... and it was ten. It was it was ten nights, eleven days. We went in on Monday. We came back the Thursday. Eleven was my count. Mm. There you go. So, <laughs> so that's, uh, and what did they have you do? So weapons training. Zero days. Yeah, lot, lot of that, lot of drill. A lot, a lot of PT, wasn't it? A lot of running in the morning, a lot of Marching. caterpillar press ups and all that shit. Maneuvers. Ben, how did it start? I mean, I remember very, very. I, I have a very strong memory of turning up at Hatfield um, in our civilian clothes uh, on the very first day of boot camp, and literally all sitting around, not really knowing each other. A few kind of, you know, a few kind of quips and jokes between some of the guys, but we had no idea what we were getting ourselves involved in. And obviously then we got called out and there, I remember these guys getting off this coach and they were just sort of shouting, shouting instructions at us. And we just didn't know what, what, what it hit us. And, you know, having gone from, you know, making a few kind of jests and jokes, we suddenly just all shut up and realized that we were going to be in for something. Was that like, Oh, have we started now? Well, yeah, I think we didn't <laughs> quite know where we'd started. I think we were told to kind of get out of our civilian clothes and literally put the uniforms on and we put the uniforms on, and then I think from that moment of putting that uniform on to getting on the coach to driving to Longmore, I remember the coach journey, and I remember we were just kind of called in, we were called in character onto the bus, and I remember just sitting at the front of this coach, and I don't remember a word being spoken for the whole hour driving from from Hatfield to Longmore, and uh, and then I remember arriving at Longmore, and uh, and Steven Spielberg was there. Uh, and Tom Hanks and Dale Dye and the cadre and they were all standing there and we got off the, the coach and I just remember Dale shouting sub, some kind of obscenities at us all and I just remember us all kind of looking at each other gulping and thinking okay I don't think any of us had any quite idea about how kind of intense this experience was really going to be because they were taking no shit and um, and then from that moment onwards I think we just you know we just had to kind of fall in try and get our heads around what the hell we had signed up for and I don't think, you know, I, I mean, I can probably speak for quite a lot of the guys that I don't think any of us were, I mean, I wasn't physically ready for sure. I mean, I hadn't been told to sort of start training before boot camp. We got sent a piece of paper with all the things we were allowed to bring and all the things we weren't allowed to bring. Um, and, um, and, and I just remember that we weren't obviously going to be able to communicate with home apart from writing a letter with a, with a pencil. Um, I think we, we were able to write like two letters during the whole time we were there. Um, obviously, there were no you know mobile communications, not, none of that. Um, and I, I just remember, you know, just having to just fall in and, and try and get our heads around, you know, the kind of intensity of that whole experience physically and mentally. And we all, you know, as I think I mentioned the other day, we all definitely hit walls during that week and there were some emotions shared. But, you know, that was part of the experience. That's what bonded us all. The fact that we all kind of thought, OK, I don't know if I can do this. I don't even know if I want to do this. But I'm not going to be the guy who's going to turn around and say, you know, fuck this, I'm out of here. Um, but, I'm, you know, we're going to carry each other through it. And actually, I don't think we could have made the show 
Um, without it, I think boot camp was was the experience of bonding us, was the experience of training us to make sure that we got all of that stuff right. So we we really looked like we knew what we were doing, and I think there was a sense amongst us all that yes, it was going to be intense, and yes, it was going to be hard work. But we wanted to get it right. We were telling real people's stories. We had a responsibility, and I think that Dale Dale Dye and the cadre, you know, were, were it, it was it was a genius process. It was almost like method acting to the extreme, but it was exactly the kind of process that you needed to go through to get a bunch of guys who didn't know each other to very quickly bond, to get their heads around what what we were about to do, and make sure that we were going to make something quite extraordinary. I remember Tom Hanks, you know. That, that very first day made a speech um, when we went into the mess hall and basically said, you know, one day you're going to be in an airport somewhere and a kid's going to come up to you and say, you know, you played my grandfather or my great grandfather in that series Band of Brothers. Um, and, and, you know, you're going to have a very special moment because it will be something that will, will live with you for the rest of your lives. And, you know, I mean, I've worked a lot as an actor and I've been very lucky to do the kind of work that I, I have done since. But, but that that show and that experience will go down in history as one of the best, you know, acting experiences, one of the best experiences um, that I've ever had. So it was, um, it was really special. It was, it was really, really tough. I'm not going to, you know, shy away from that. And as I say, I think we all struggled, but I think we all bonded, got through it. And then we'll always carry, you know, a very fond memory of what bootcamp did and, and what it was able to do in relation to kind of making sure that we made the show to the, you know, to, 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 to the detail that we did. Yes, George. You know, for the first couple of days when they, when we got beat up really physically, and uh, I think the first thing that they teach real soldiers is about marching and being in time and the rest of it. So they start to get together, and uh, and we were pretty rubbish. And then the very as as I recall it, and I might be wrong, it's the very first time we got it right. We're all like, we can hear it. Like, we're like, shit, man. <laughs> and out runs Dale Die, going, well, no shit, easy company. I do believe we're marching in time. I'm sexually yeah. stimulated. I'm going to have to go and do something about that. Bart, what's your most harrowing memory? The, the one event I remember that, that, just, that, that nearly broke me was that, that fucking night in the Fibua in the freezing yeah. cold yeah. doing sentry duty and asking, you know, every literally every 30 seconds terms, me and Kirk and it was like, boy, what time is it? And like, one thirty. <laughs> time is it? That was brutal. It's one thirty one. And it's both of us just staying really awake just by me just asking what the time was. Then every now and then I remember Ross was sort of in, in a sleeping bag. He decided he couldn't lie down flat so he decided to sleep sitting up in this, this sleeping bag. Well, what was so every now he left a groan of pain. I, I, don't, I don't know if, if Rick Water remembers this, but Riggy, you were on uh, like the guard duty before me, and we were together in the hooch at some point. I don't remember what, but at some point during the night, and my sleep time was, I don't know, from 10 till midnight, and you had to get me at midnight, and I had to go out and keep my eyes open until 2 or 1 or whatever time and I remember having those sleeping bags and everyone had these, devised these plans of staying warm. Everyone was like, well, you get in a sleeping bag, you strip all your gear off, yeah, and you put it in the bottom of the, of the thing and it, and it keeps you warm. And we we're like, nah. And then there were people saying, put the, the gloves, you know, put your socks on your hands and the gloves on your feet and stupid shit. I'm sure they were making fun of it. But we had the sleeping bag over and the rope that you would pull tight 
So it was so cold, I pulled this thing fucking tight, and I'm trying to sleep, and I'm almost off to sleep, but I'm a bit dazed. And then, Ricky, Warden, you came and woke me up, and you were like, leave God. It's, it's, I remember opening my eyes, and because it was shut, it was pitch black, and I couldn't see a fucking thing. And I'm like, I've gone fucking black. I've got night blind, so I don't know what's going on. And like, I swore for like five seconds. I'm like, dude, I can't, where am I? And you're like, dude. Take, take the hood off. <laughs> <laughs> they told us, they told us there may or may not be an attack. And of course, right. we, we, we were too, too at that point, too <sighs> sleep deprived anyway and too scared and fucked up that we thought there's, you know, to realize that there's no fucking way they're going to get up in the middle of the night and come and attack us either. You know, they're going to go to sleep. And so we're just all on edge thinking, what the fuck was that? What do we see? What do we see? Oh my God, was it that move? But it was, yeah. And after, I, I didn't, I remember I didn't sleep I don't think I slept the second that night. And so from that night on, I think it was around the middle of the whole thing as well. It's sort of, I was up for 48 hours straight and I was absolutely, I was running on fumes at that point. I'm it so was Saturday night. That was so fucking tired. Rick, were you staying in character the whole time with no slips? I remember uh, Ross is that uh, in jump, jump week, which was like on the, started on the, on the Monday and the Tuesday, Ross was the first person that I broke uh, accent out of. So I'd been in accent for like <laughs> eight days by then. And I can remember leaning into Ross and saying something like, I've, I've, I'm, I've had enough of this, man. Or, or I definitely remember thinking, I've just transgressed. I've just, it's the first time I've been naughty in flipping eight days or whatever by breaking out of American. Um, what was it like? Did you guys actually have to jump out of planes to practice, or was it just yeah. jumping off the ship? Yeah, we did like we did like yeah, we, 50 jumped their loads of we did like fifty jumps. We had to do yeah. fifty to get our wings, and we did it, you know, in our ten days of boot camp. <laughs> 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 no, the truth is that there's a um, we did the boot camp itself in Longmore military training camp, but we did a couple of days of sort of One jump day. practice. At a place called where is it, lads? Bryce Norton. Bryce Norton. And they have it. How many? Correct me on how tall the tower is. The jump. Seven hundred feet. Four hundred and eighty feet. feet. <laughs> I think it's 3, like seventy feet. feet, isn't it? Fifty feet, seventy feet. Three thousand, wasn't it? Three thousand foot. Three thousand. Let's go seventy, Rick. Yeah. Right. And um, you're, you're <laughs> harnessed in. And it's sort of like a pulley system. But if you're little like me, I mean, I'm less little now, but yeah. it, I couldn't reach the ground when I jumped out. It, 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 the rubber bands didn't take Fucking it. Fucking It wasn't a rubber band. It was, um, it was a paddle. It, 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 but we did that for like a couple of days. Well, body, your body weight is the factor. Yeah, it was like bungee jumping the jump. Yeah, a bit like bungee yeah, jumping. It an elastic thing. Peter, go ahead. How many of us have jumped out of planes since then? I jumped I out, didn't I? In town. Oh. I fucking, and I'll never do it again. I'll never, never again. again. Never again. We jumped together. Fuck that. Fuck that. Oh. Yeah. Before. Can you guys do it in Switzerland at some point? We did it at Pottery, yeah. Yeah, yeah man. Some of you did it in Switzerland too, though, right? Yeah, Switzerland. Yeah, we did it in Switzerland. You and me, buddy. What happened in Switzerland stays in Switzerland. <laughs> Has anybody jumped solo out of a plane out of any of us? Rick Gomez, uh, George Lutz, of course. Yes. Nick? Oh, solo? You mean not tandem? Attached to someone? No, never solo. Fuck that. Never. Oh <laughs> 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 yeah. What the fuck I'm doing? Yeah, you know, you know forks could come out of the goddamn shoot. <laughs> oh, I need spoons! <laughs> so someone asked, Rick, you, did you do a different kind of boot camp because you were an officer? No, but what, what, what's gradually emerging, every, everyone on here knows that I've become a little bit obsessed about boot camp generally. 
And that's because I hated it. Um, Not as much as David Schwimmer, by the sounds of it. No, I hated it a lot more than David. <laughs> I hated it enough David. to want to leave. Oh, really? Um, and try to leave. And a mixture of Tim and Jimmy stopped me leaving. Um, I just hatched escape plans after about three or four days. I mean, the structure of it was that we they sort of snapped us in half physically for about two or three days until we were very, very tired very uh, and drained. Um, and then when we were very tired and drained, the reason why, what you're getting at about me having a different experience is that they then injected rank into, into the setup. And that's where my problems started, really. I was all right when I was just knackered with everyone else. But once, once rank got introduced, because obviously that hadn't been earned, rank hadn't been earned at all in two or three days. We'd only just met each other. We got half the guys from the States, half from the UK, and I had a high rank, and so suddenly I had sort of responsibility. And some of the, I would say, a, a bit of poison was sort of seeped into the situation with rank, I think, because um, we were separated off a little bit from the NCOs and from the privates. And I've worked out recently, I don't, Shane's not here, is he, guys? But I've, Shane told me, he did nothing, I didn't even know that Shane... I'd occasionally meet Doc Rowe during boot camp and he would pretend to stitch me up or ask me if I'd fallen over or whatever I'd done. He was up in a flipping classroom, man, studying veins and arterial bleeding and he would literally watch us out of the window and laugh his ass off. <laughs> One of my favourite memories, and it was for both of us really, was, uh, you know, I think you'll all remember the one day Die was like, all right, whoever's hurting producers have said you can go and rest so anyone who's hurting step forward and nobody stepped forward and everyone was like battered everyone was like beat up but nobody stepped forward and whatever and and shane knew about a few people's little injuries and i remember him coming into the hooch to me um and he said how you doing Lee? And i said ah you know the knee i, I sort of buckled my knee out there and he's like, all right let me have a look and both of us allowed this experience of i'm letting an actor who's pretending to be a doctor, who's been a doctor literally for four days, <laughs> like, give me the once over medically. And I'm, I'm allowing it and trusting it. And absolutely, 100%, my, my ligaments are in the arms of this kid. And I just thought that that was the, uh, the beauty once everybody embraced it and stepped into that zone. That was it, you know. Ben, what do you remember? I'm just really enjoying hearing all the boys. George and Tim and I were weapons. And uh, so we, we were in our own, uh, our own kind of area and we had, um, uh, had to carry all the, all the massive machinery. I had a massive machine gun that I had to kind of look after for the whole of our time at boot camp. And I just remember um, every morning going out on those five mile runs. And I remember George smoking uh, those red Marlboro <laughs> cigarettes every day. He would have a Marlboro cigarette before going on a five mile run. And then within about 10 minutes, he would be coughing his guts up at the side of the road. <laughs> and you'd be going, what are you doing? Um, but no, I also, I also have a very strong memory of, uh, of, of, of doing um, uh, what well, we did um, uh, bayonet training. And I remember breaking an M1 because I, I went at this dummy so hard that I broke an M1 in two. And that basically killed that, that exercise dead. Because uh, I think Dale was really, really scared that we were going to get through M1 rifles like there was no tomorrow and they were going to cost an absolute fortune. Um, but I, I just remember boot camp being, I mean, it was tough. It was really tough. I remember everybody having their, their moments, you know, having their, their walls to, 
to, to, to kind of battle with. And um, I just think, I just remember us all getting, getting together and, and, and kind of pulling through by the end of it. We, we, you know, we were able to form those bonds that, that were, were, were so kind of important for the show. And I just, you know, even though it was a tough time, I remember having very fond uh, memories at night, you know, looking, looking forward to kind of sharing, sharing stories as we are doing now, you know, yeah. have many years down the line. It was a, it was a fantastic experience. Tim, I think it's fair to say you were fully pissed off during this time, weren't you? We were put through a boot camp, which honestly felt kind of like, you know, a bit unfair. Like, we don't need to go to boot camp. We're not, our lives aren't in danger. Why are you doing this to us? Why, why do we have to be, go through such misery? Right. Who was the worst at boot camp? Schwimmer was the worst at boot camp. He just flat <laughs> out refused to do it. Guys, I got somebody on my phone. Swim! Swim! No, I'm joking. Great to fucking shit all over Swim and then he just shows up. Swim! That's not Swim. That's Carl Young. What I will say, though, I'll defend him for just for just a second. Was he he did get an injury, but later down the line, we did find out that that was that was a little coup from the producers, and he did injure himself, and he did need to go get checked out. But the whole separating him from the guys and making us kind of pissed off at him because he came back to boot camp and he had like stories of staying at the Dorchester and eating a hamburger and, you know, smoking <laughs> cigarettes. But he came back with, like, a bag of chocolate and porn. So he was like, boy, <laughs> here, you know, here's, I'm, I'm going to befriend you. And we're all like, oh, yeah, sweet, sweet, sweet. But it, it was a good thing to separate us. So it worked out. Did anyone else get hurt? There was a day. <laughs> oh, okay. After we were all brought outside and, and we were talked to by Dale Dye about this very fact, about the fact that there were too many injuries. Is this right? Yeah, on yes. the Friday. I remember... And like the night before, and for about, well, in most of the, the, the boot camp to that point, Scott Grimes, bless him, had been moaning about various physical ailments, but especially his back, I think. George, I don't know if you remember this. I do. It, 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 and it was getting worse and worse, and I knew it was, a, you know, an attempt at sort of a get-out. And uh, understandably, and on that very day, I just have a very clear recollection of almost stamping on his foot when we were outside, because Dale had said, look, if you're all going to be pussies about this, we're going to call off the whole shoot because we can't afford to do this. You can't fucking let me down. You can't be injured. You just can't be injured. And, I, and he said, if anybody has any serious problems, you need to tell me about them now. But he said it in a kind of ironic way. And, and I knew Scott was desperate to actually say, <laughs> my back really hurts. And I really wanted to hurt him, but he didn't. Fortunately, he read through right at the last My back hasn't hurt this bad since I was doing Mickey Mouse Club with Britney. <laughs> <laughs> but he was the reason we aced that happy birthday. No doubt about that. For Dale's uh, daughter. Do you know what? We wanted to hear about Matt and flipping boot camp too. Because yeah, he was barking yes. mad at boot camp, man. <laughs> Matt, was everyone in it together? Did you all help each other out? Except Donnie Wahlberg, but everyone else was really helpful, you know. <laughs> um, no, I'm kidding. Donnie, Donnie was... Donnie, Donnie, Donnie gave us a real sense of war. We, we assume it was Donnie because he cropped us and dust of us. He had this secret stash of high-protein shakes. And uh, we all had the pleasure for five miles every morning just enjoying... Uh, you know, some crop dusting by good old Wahlberg. Oh my god! And, uh, <laughs> I ate so, in one uh, of their restaurants. I feel dirty now. Uh, I'm not sure. That's a totally different Wahlberger. Uh, yeah, yeah, different <laughs> Wahlberger. 
Yeah. I'm not sure which don't, is harder. Don't to have take. the special sauce. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <That is so laughs> gross. You know, and you could really tell he enjoyed it. I, you know, I don't know if you know some people are like that, but you you know what can I say? You know, it it made me have that bottom element that I needed to play this character. You know, no, but I, oh, okay, you're not taking that seriously. Okay, it no. really did. It changed my life. <laughs> it wasn't all misery, was it, Rich? A great platoon. Like we had a great. Yeah. We had some laughs in that space and some moments in that space that were phenomenal. And whether it was us having these joking conversations late at night or making fun of Tim Matthews, who wouldn't want to fucking run. It's like, that was my, another, one of my favorite pinky moments is him going, oh, I didn't know we'd have to run. I just, <laughs> <laughs> like there should have been a con in the contract. Hey, did you play a soldier? You might have to jog. Like, <laughs> Yeah, you know, Rich and Tim, you guys remember, look, most of you guys were up front firing these rifles at this front of the thing. And because we were these mortarmen, we, and the mortar, we couldn't shoot a real mortar, obviously. Right. We would be about 100 yards behind everything. No one with us. Yeah, having yeah. To pretend. And once in a while, like, Spate would go to the tube and go, thunk. Because <laughs> everyone would leave us, <laughs> everyone would leave us, and we we had to have this little kind of fun aside kind of you know. There were two different dormitories, weren't there, Rick? I think, I think you, but the point you're making is a good one because it's it, those different rooms. Those, and I've gone back to Longmore, obviously, and taken whoever. I could with me. I took Tim with me. Beautiful. Back. It was beautiful. I saw Those that. Those different rooms, you've got to imagine, in the room that me and Dexter were in, it was loaded with lieutenants, really. So it had Donnie. I was next to Donnie. Settle was opposite us. Settle and Donnie were at each other quite well, were. in time. You know, it was a tense. I don't remember a great deal of laughs in that room, Dex. There were across no. the way in Jimmy's room. Yeah. It felt like more laughs going on there, but I, yeah. I, I got tired. Yeah, because, uh, so you're in there with Rick Gomez as well, right? Across the hall from us. Yeah, I had, had that, but I, we went and played poker there. That was a much, <laughs> it's a much more relaxed atmosphere. Jimmy, you were on the fun dorm, weren't you? We, no, we, we had, uh, 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 fucking swimmer, swimmer. We had, uh, yeah, he was in our room. He was right across from me. And I remember when, he, I don't know if you guys remember this because you run in the in in the in the in the, in the bunkers, but he got taken out for a day. Yeah, because of his knee. He had to get, you know, he was getting that NBC Friends kind of insurance shit, so he got <laughs> taken out to make sure that. Oh God, that beer looks so good, Tim. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> he got taken out. Like a fucking true alcoholic right right here, right now. I got three kids homeschooled and I'm gonna shoot myself. It's fuck what time is it? It's cool. But he got hurt and then we thought that he like bailed out. We were like, Oh, this fucking guy, blah blah blah. And plus he was soulable, you know. Within twenty four hours later, we walked into the room and he came in with bags, if you remember. He dumped all nudie magazines and chocolate bars all over our beds. Yeah, yeah. He was but just that, trying, to, trying to say, look, I had to go do that for, I, I didn't mean to leave you guys. I had to go do that because of insurance purpose. I had to get my knee checked out, but I'm back. And he gave us all porn magazines. But, but he did, and he, he came back and we played poker. That's what I was saying. We played poker with M&Ms as the chips. As the, with, great. We, we divided them up into different colors and they were different. And we sat until about two or three in the morning, you know, just to eating chocolate and, and playing cards. It was, it, was a, it was a great night, but that was in the other dorm. Our dorm was was a lot more intense. Donnie was like, 
super intense all the time. Oh, yeah. man. I had to go and sleep at the other end of the... You guys had super intense people in, in, in your fucking thing. You know, Donnie's trying to step away from, obviously, I don't want to speak for him, step away from, what, you know, what he's trying to do with his... Yeah, yeah. You mm. got Settle, who was Settle, you know? So I can imagine, you know, how... How that room was. Set was so insane. He was eating the paint off of the radiators. He was eating. <laughs> <laughs> he, just, he just came over as mad. Yeah. <laughs> Do you remember? He was. He was. It was. It was ludicrous. And then, and then Rick was there. And Rick was like, after about four or five days, like, you know what? <laughs> I've kind because this is the this is the difference. Is like, you know, you jump off the bus, and we all know where they're doing a job of work. And our job is as actors. We're actors. We're not soldiers. And it's a job of work to us. But we jumped off into the most real experience that they could possibly construct mm. for us, that Dale and those guys, uh, that they thought was the right thing. And they were right. You know, in hindsight, the, the rudderless nature of it was probably, that's probably what being in the war felt like. It was like, yeah. wow, I think we've got right. training, but what the fuck is going on from one minute to the next? Whether that's by accident or design is another, another question. But we jumped into it, and so when someone comes, all right, soldier, give me, give me fucking twenty. You're like, wait a minute. I remember I had some dialogue, and I was like trying to do my lines, and and Dale came up to me at one point and said, God, "What are you doing?" I was like, "I'm trying to do my lines, man." He was like, "Fuck you and your fucking lines!" <laughs> <laughs> oh, Jesus Christ! I'm, I'm an actor, you know. And there was this sort of like this line between what we thought we were there doing, you know, actually, but trying to give it that authenticity, which. It did have because there was no line for them. For them, it was like train yeah. these men to yeah. be fighting. Red, and that's what they were. We they were doing. Unfortunately, we were a little bit more like Tim. I, I didn't know there was running involved. I mean, I have to fire a weapon. That sounds. <laughs> we have Peter O'Meara here, who played Norman Dyke. Um, so you wouldn't? Did you have to do boot camp? I asked, I asked to do boot camp. You asked to do boot camp. Are you insane? I did. I was. I was, I was in. But I was told no. I can see why. I mean, they were bond of the actual guys, and yeah. then later, as we came in, I know that I had Dale Di had sort of given an instruction that you know you you're going to see some new faces. There'll be some replacement officers. Don't talk to them. Don't welcome them. Don't you know make them feel uncomfortable. Uh, now, it's a testament to the amazing cast, the professional actors that I'm lucky enough to be uh, associated with, that a lot of the guys just went, yeah, right, you know, they were very friendly and welcoming, and it's a lot to take on. Um, mm-hmm. Let me try and describe to you, like, it's a, it's a big, and for all of us, we're in our 20s, no one has been on a set like this uh, before. You have the boot camp and the and the, uh, the walking to set every day and drills going on and so you're walking into the middle of that much as I'm sure when Doug showed up and had to announce himself you know it's your first day at school uh, anyway there's a lot of moving parts there's things all over the place it's kind of it's hitting it's sort of confusing and you know who's who and what's what and it's literally first day of school so it was like that every day until eventually you've got some kind of normal season kind of rhythm into it. And I have to say, just a testament to the other casts. We're all up for it, man. You know, nobody, we all, we're all there. Robin Lang, who was Babe Heffron, you were a replacement, so no proper boot camp for you. I didn't do it. Uh, I refused. My agent got me out of it. No, I never. I, I don't know if anybody else knows this. I did try. I went out for a costume fitting and they said, we'll give you some weapons training. I did weapons training and they said, oh, actually the rest of easy company are doing maneuvers so 
why don't you come with us? And I thought, oh, I said, oh, great, I'll get to meet the guys. And they said, no, 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 you're going to come with us and be German. <laughs> I, went with, um, I went with Freddie Farnsworth and I think E maybe or Billy Budd, I can't remember. And we went into this forest area and they said, listen, we're going to be over there. You're going to be here with this big uh, German machine gun. And when you hear the gunfire start, just start firing in that direction. And um, yeah, they're going to be trying to, you know, the easy, comp- easy company are going to be trying to maneuver. But, um, and you'll know that it's us. You'll know when to start firing because any gunfire you hear will definitely be us because they won't fire first. So that was my one day boot camp. In a forest, oh, no. on my own. Wow. Dressed as a German with a machine gun. <laughs> Phil Barantini, I love how uh, smug you are about this. Well, I didn't go to boot camp. Now, there was a lot of the actors didn't realise that I didn't go to boot camp because I was one of the lucky ones who sort of came in on the first day of filming or the day before we started filming. And I just sort of, I don't know, somehow I just fitted in and, and sort of got in quietly. So nobody ever gave me any crap. I think it's fair to say, though, that there was a lot of crap being given out, like, amongst yourselves as well. I was one of them as well. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but, yeah, <clears throat> somehow I was really lucky that I didn't, I didn't get any crap for it. <laughs> That's smart. It yeah, is, it, it is, yeah, it is. Looking back, it is. And, and Dale always says, you know, he says he's, he's trained, obviously, a bunch of other people since Band of Brothers on different shows and, and films and whatnot. And he says, none of them get it like we got it. He's, he said, you know, he with his boys, he was like, nobody else seems to, to have that, um, to have had the sort of passion that we had. Let's talk a bit about Dale Diet because he deserves a lot of, of credit for what he put you through um, and how it bonded you. Tim? Because Dale spoke about this at length uh, off the back of Rick's recent sort of curiosity about it. And he was saying that it, that was all very, very deliberate, that breaking down thing but well i mean according to him um and he was given quite a lot of freedom to do that by the uh powers that be and i think it was the first time he as a, a an entity in that uh, capacity was able to really do it he'd done it before for lots of films but i think this was the first time he'd really been allowed to orchestrate it to the extent that he did so if you if you listen to what he says about it he'll say that it was all very deliberate woody our bob fest coordinator go ahead and he said never to tell the actors, but he said to me that he, on the very first day when he met all you guys, he spotted who the criers would be, who the ones who struggle <laughs> physically, who the guys would struggle <laughs> mentally. And he was bang on correct, he right said, uh, uh, with every, every prediction. He said, yeah, he'll be, a, he'll be a great physically. I mean, for example, I'm sure he said that, Nick, you'd be great physically. I think some guys, he said, yeah, they'll be struggling physically. But he, he said, I got it right on the first five minutes and everything was right 10 days later. Who cried? Come on, guys. Rick Warden cried. Big time. Friday, I cried all fucking day. I, I wanted to cry because I didn't go. I, Did you I, not do it, Renee? No, I was the last American cast. So I walked into the table read after all no. these... When you, ca- when you cast like about 20 hours before the table I was reading. cast 24 hours before I showed up there. So yeah. wow. I was cast. I was told I'm leaving. I left that night, got there that morning. They drove me to the uh, table read, and I met all these guys who went through this boot camp. And how daunting was that? <laughs> you know, every, everybody's like congratulating themselves. And I'm like, holy shit. You know? They all seem to love oh. you, though. They've forgiven you, right? No, no. Okay. <laughs> Renee has knife skills. 
Michael Cudlitz, uh, Ball Randleman. I think it's safe to say you were not loving Dale Dye in the middle of boot camp. I just remember that one night that we all went out, uh, not not the hike, or maybe it was the same night as the hike, but where we slept outside. Oh, and it was just God. cold as shit. <laughs> and uh, I just remembered it, I just remembered it like sucks. And I was like, I was like, I ain't learning anything out here right now except that Dale Dye is a fucking jackass. <laughs> and like that, the whole night, I was like, there's nothing to learn here. Fuck that guy. God, you remember, Mike, it was colder in the sleeping bags than it was oh outside. Oh, my God. It was just like, when is the sun coming up? You know, and it was just, it was literally, it was, and obviously we learned a ton. Um, but I just, you know, I remember at one point, you know, Captain pulled me aside. I screwed up something, and he's like, "Oh, you're doing push-ups. Get down there, bro, bro. You piece of shit. You're not gonna amount it." And I'm down there doing push-ups, and I'm like, "Fuck you, old man. I got a fucking, I got a wife. I got kids. I'm fucking 35 years. Suck my dick." <laughs> I was not having. It. I'm like, "All right, I'll do your fucking push-up thing and all that." And ultimately, I mean, I make light of it. I we we could not have done what we did without going through what we went through with him. Because he literally, it was like what we call hell week in, in American football here when you train. And it basically, you get a common enemy. And he became our common enemy that we all bound together with each other. And that's exactly what he wanted you know, us to do. So me sitting there going, fuck you, old man. That was exactly what I was supposed to be doing. So I, I'm sure we had each of us had our own moment of that or a different version of that. And when we, what we came away with was you know, the end result, which is something we are all really, really proud of and, and could not have done it the way it was done without um, that man. Matt, do you remember anything specific about boot camp? I think the funniest thing is uh, along the, the night things uh, was was using uh, our weapons when we had blanks and, and doing this live fire routines with our blanks. And um, we had this one particular cadre guy that kept getting injured. And I understand why. It's like, what was his name? He was like, a, he was a NASCAR driver slash, I don't know, he'd been on everything, that guy. But you guys know who I'm talking about? Yeah. He was only there at boot camp, and then he kind of, like, didn't make it through because he got, like, that. especially that night, he got, like, he, he broke the wrist. He was man, like, wasn't he? Yeah, the Oh, no, 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 the what? stunt guy, the rodeo guy. Yeah, yeah, he was, like, rodeo, yeah. and he dug yeah, a NASCAR yeah, yeah, yeah. series. He was guy. He was an ex-Marlboro. Ex yeah, he just seemed yeah. invincible, but he kept getting injured. It was almost like a, like a South Park joke, you know? Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, he, he told me, he's like, now, listen, the trick is when you shoot at night, you want to close one eye. <laughs> close one eye so when when you shoot it doesn't blind your eye that's closed so i'm like all right so i closed my eye shot and then as soon as i opened my other eye that was good somebody else fired their weapon i was totally blind you know <laughs> you're completely, and so you understand why this guy was running into trees but it seemed like a good idea at the time but it didn't work so there were some funny things that happened at camp, but that was a crazy night you look the part serious though philip it was worth it wasn't it I think I think looking back now, he was playing the part because he's he's the nicest man in the world. Like he's he's the most he's a lovely, lovely, genuine. Um, you know, he's got a heart of gold, the guy. But back then, yeah, we definitely uh, you know you, you respected him, but also you you, you sort of you know he, he was a he was an arsehole. <laughs> 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 um, but yeah, he's like he's like everybody's granddad now, really. <laughs> ben, you love him now, right? I've I've spent quite a bit of time around Dale because we've had quite a few of these reunions, and um, I mean it's been really special to kind of get to know Dale 
you know, outside of that experience. Because for a lot of us, I think we were quite scarred, maybe, or certainly had an impression of of Dale um, under those kind of very strict circumstances. So to be able to then kind of meet up sort of 15, 20 years later and spend some time just drinking a beer, talking about those experiences, hearing about the kind of lengths that Dale went to to make sure that we, you know, we abided by very strict instructions and rules um, and regulations. And, you know, I mean, it was, you know, as a lot of guys were saying, you know, that, that boot camp was very intense. Rick Gomez, you were full of appreciation too. I don't think it is. I don't think it is until I've gotten much older that I realized the improv skills of, of Die and everybody. Because I actually don't think that you can plan it. I, don't, I, don't, I think you kind of have a general idea of what the scene is. But if you're out there 10, 11 days, there's shit you can't possibly wrap your brain around about how people are going to break and how people are going to move. Say, you could say all you want, either in hindsight or whatever, <laughs> like, yeah, we knew, we knew. You didn't know. You were just brilliant. Yeah, you didn't, you didn't know who to you, Dale, Dale was, I think Dale's a master, master of improv because I know personally I stood in front of him broken in one moment and he absolutely knew it and laid off and was like, it's okay, it's going to be all right. But like, I, he brought me right to a, a, a brink where I was like, ah, fuck, this isn't going to work. And then he saw it in me and then just went, whoop, just let, let, let the air out of it. And, and so that's like improv, that's just knowing where you're at with your act. It's being a good actor. I, I think I misrepresented what he said because he wasn't saying that he knew what was going to happen for 12 days. Right. But you're absolutely right. The aim, the aim was, you know, the cohesion that we had, how we got there, I guess, was subject to what happened in situ. And you're absolutely right. He definitely responded. That's, I'm pretty sure he acknowledged that from what I remember in the conversation. Yeah, but I mean, he definitely nice. had an idea going in. I mean, it's not, you know, that cadre was put together That's for a specific question. Or doing 42nd Street, he knew that. But we're, but I don't think beyond understanding like what we what those drills were, what the thing was, he knew each member was going to bend no. in the wind on any certain no. day. You have to be, you have, he had to be in the moment, in every moment, and checking in with us in a way that I think would, if I look at that job as an actor, if I was just given that job as an actor, that's a daunting job to lead young men into something, to understanding something that they have no idea to how to wrap their brain around it in that moment. So day one, you know shit. And day 10, you've kind of looked through a keyhole. That's a fucking job and a half for a lot of guys. He did it for a lot of guys. And each one of us have a personal story about how we grew. And so to, to be successful on that level, just feel, it feels to me that it's much more just about these like masterful improv skills and, and masterful humanity skills he has just to know each of the guys. And so it's a bit of, reading us very quickly and and you know yeah he, he knew he knew who to tear down and he knew who to put an arm around you're absolutely you know, right scott sum up dal die in one word during boot camp if i had to use one word it would be and this is my own thing he was scary it was it scared me he was it, i was scared mm. of him yeah. really but were scared. you but you Thanks. were you not more scared of mike stokes stokey no, but I actually no? like his eyes, man. I like, he seemed to care. <laughs> oh. I don't know. Dale Dye scared the shit out of me. Yeah, yeah. Stokey was quiet, man. He scared the fucking bejesus yeah. out of me. I know what me, but yeah. Jeez. Well, I always got the feeling, I, I thought, I always got the feeling that uh, Stokey yeah. and Freddie Joe had like, <laughs> they had stories to tell that they weren't going to tell. You know what I mean? Yeah, Which makes right. them more... You, yeah, right. you, you felt like they actually had kills under their belt, for sure. That's that's yeah. 100%. that's kind of yeah. what you're <laughs> getting at. Uh, one word, I would say, 
uh, general. <laughs> general, because I called him the general. fucking... General, what you said, genital. <laughs> <laughs> and Rick Warden? I think if I'm being, I'm allowed to be brutally honest, at the time of boot camp... Yeah, you already were admitted that you cried, so... Yeah, listen, I'm the boot camp bore here. Everyone knows that I'm boot camp mad, but... He's Honestly, scarred. It was a traumatic experience for him. He's I, scarred. I, Let's I, just get that out there. But as a result, for that first week, certainly there were bits of boot camp when I felt that they, I felt that the proceedings were, I'm going to get in trouble for this, but they felt, and this is because probably I was very tired and pretty emotional during it, it felt rudderless to me. Mm. Ah, right. Um, and and I've really changed my opinion on that, talking to Pale. So I'd like to be able to go into why. I don't want to just leave it there, but that's how it felt. Yeah. Scott, do you know what I mean? There were bits of it, and Tim, where I, I felt, God, we don't know where this night attack is actually happening, man. Oh, that's definitely true. You know, yeah. we're down here, hunkered down in the wet, in the dark, and we're getting messages back, and we're already got some kind of rank, and I'm supposed to be a lieutenant. I don't know where this thing is, man. And I'm trying to you order a, a platoon of guys who are asking me. I was with Jimmy, I'm lying in the dirt, Jimmy, yeah. before the night. <laughs> And they're asking me what's going on, and I'm asking Sarge what's going on, and Sarge is asking Dale Dye what's going on, and all I can hear is, I don't know where the damn thing is. Yeah. You know, it felt rudderless. For, to, and and it that was scary. Nervous. It was scary to me. That comes back to why I was scared, because, and, and in, in hindsight, obviously, uh, that, I think that really was amazing that there was an element of danger about our boot camp that we, I didn't think so at the time. I thought it was all fake. I thought, okay, at any moment, the lights will come on. I can get a Band-Aid or whatever the fuck I want, but that isn't entirely true of our boot camp, you know? Cool. I never got the impression you could get pulled out. And I mean, sure, if you got really seriously injured, but it felt like he had us. He had to, and that was what was scary about it, that he owned us for those 10 days. Yeah. He could do the pretty much what the hell he wanted because someone in authority had said to him, absolutely, they're your guys, train them up, get them, you know, get them fighting yeah. fit, get them match ready. Get, and, and that was it because, you know, I mean, I... I, I saw him take antibiotics with a bottle of vodka. I saw him take, you know, antibiotics with, vo with vodka. <laughs> so, so I was like, oh, this guy's a fucking maniac. <laughs> He's just, ah, oh, great, yeah, I gotta take these. And that was in the car. So we were at the mercy of a man who, who had a different set of rules yeah. from, from what the norm was. And, and he did, he owned us for those 10 days, didn't he? We had no phones, yeah. no communication. That was it. Here's a pencil and a piece of paper and you can write to your friend, your loved ones in the rear and like shit. And then he marched us on the set. Rich? I mean, for all the gruff and the military demeanor, which is all legit, he was incredibly well-spoken and funny in his own way. And I remember there was uh, one point he was drilling us all on hand-to-hand -hand combat or something like that. And he had a frog in his throat and he kept going, oh, here you're going to grab your bayonet and you're going to square up and you're going, oh, Christ, get out and walk, you son of a bitch. I thought that was, a, thought that was a funny thing in the world to watch a man yell at his loogie. Yeah. Different set of rules. Different set of rules. There was a... There was a time, do you guys remember when, was it Neil? No, it wasn't Compton. Who had to get stitches? Who had to get? Compton, uh, Neil. Neil. It was Compton. Okay, so Compton had to get stitches, and word got back to the, 
you know, HQ production office about that. And so word came forward that, you know, can't have actors getting hurt. That was the, the overreaching comment. But, you know, Dale died sort of translated that into, you know, he, he berated us and, and, <laughs> Scott and I were, Scott and I were in formation. So we're side by side and he's going, God damn it. I'm getting from the rear that you guys are getting scared. And the rear's telling me that you guys are, where do I getting hurt? And I'm getting all this shit from the rear, and I'm tired of all this. And Scott leaned over, and he's like, wow, the captain's really getting it from the rear. <laughs> wait, wait. There was also another guy, and I believe his name was Sergeant Wilson. You guys remember him? But he yeah. couldn't run. He had really bad knees. And what, what Wilson wasn't good at, and Richard, I, I love telling this story, Richard. Wilson. What, what Wilson wasn't good at is all the things that Dale Dye was good at, saying like, if you keep this up, there's going to be six inches of my boot sticking up your ass, right? So Dale Dye would say that all the time. Be six inches of my boot sticking up your ass. And one time, Dale Dye had to go and do something else. And Spate and I are walking and we're marching. And Sergeant Wilson's just, he's, he's, he's lining us up and he's giving it a go, man. And he says, hey, hey, if you guys keep this up, there's going to be six inches of my boot sticking out of your ass. And Spate... <laughs> Spate turns to me like this and goes, wait a minute. That would mean that he is inside of us and his boot coming out. And I'm like, shut up. Don't make me laugh, you prick. Shut up. But he was right because he said it wrong. I was right. I mean, for, you know, for the record, I was right. That's yeah. logistically what would have had to happen. Yeah. <laughs> Hold the phone. <laughs> Jimmy, overall boot camp was a pretty surreal experience, right? No, I wasn't, but boot, I wasn't really scared of boot camp or anything. I, it was very confusing to me because the minute I got off the, the bus, and I don't know if you guys remember when we got off the bus, the bus ride in general was probably the strangest thing for me in the entire 10 months you're out there because no one was talking, looking at each other. We're like, what the fuck is going on here? <laughs> Took all our shit, gave us a we have toiletry bags or whatever. and uh, But I got off the bus and Freddie Joe Farnsworth, for some reason, really just made a beeline for me. And he ran up to me, and you guys heard this story a hundred times, and he came, oh, yeah, I got a short, and this is exactly his words, he'll tell you, oh, yeah, I got a short motherfucker in my platoon. Get in formation, shorty. And he was literally this close to me. Oh, no way. Spit, I remember his spit hitting me when he was doing it. And instead of like, like, Staying that thing, I I, I, just, I remember doing one of these. Oh, dude, oh, dude, like, I don't know. I'm I'm a fucking street kid from New York. Yeah. No one's done that without getting punched in their face ever. So my I know I had to be cool because I'm on a Spielberg, so I don't want to lose my job on day one. But my first reaction was, oh, no, 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 don't do that. Like back, like you know. And yeah. <laughs> and he just said, get on the front. And he, I had to do push-ups right away, and and uh, it, you know, knowing the chain of command of how private. Corporal, sergeant, the list, and general, and platoon leader, and squad leader, and the battalions and regiments was so confusing to me. That was the hardest thing about that. Everything else seemed I can do physically. I could do some of the things very well. I was okay with it. You know, some of the equipment was heavy because I was smaller, but that was my problem. Was just the, the fucking chain of command and yeah, all the information in my brain. I feel bad for like I know you, uh, Rich. Uh, I mean, Warden, you, you had to, like, do lieutenant bullshit at, like, the end of the day. You had to go look at maps and go do shit in the middle of the night with, like, Nixon and, and, and Winters, didn't you? 
Yeah. We had a different <laughs> kind of boot camp. But I, I, I feel bad for, 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 you know, I do think that it felt rudderless at the time, but I honestly think now that it was sort of inspired, really. I think, I think it, it, it made the show, and I think that, that it bonded us. We, I don't think we'd be here, actually, nattering now if we hadn't raised a boot camp. I agree, uh, I but I think, you're, I think your assessment of it being rudderless, I mean, I don't think that's a wrong assessment, especially if you're trying to put yourself back in the time of what that was. Rich, your one word for Del Dye. My word, I think it's weird. Just If I'm describing in word, I say paternal because I found something very, very, very reassuring in the sort of hard-assed, hard-nosed leadership of Dale Dye because at that moment, at that time, doing that job, preparing for that show, that Richard Spate needed that guy to be that guy. Mm-hmm. It's like if you want to be a great football player, you need the coach who gets you to that spot in whatever way – that coach doesn't. And I thought Dale Dye. Dale Dye was the right guy for Rich Spate and the right guy for our platoon. I think the right guy for the series. I think a book could be written about Dale Dye, about how Hollywood movies and their perception of war and their treatment of war hinges on Dale Dye's involvement in productions. I think he's a valuable piece of American cinematic history. When you go back and look at the movies, he's had a, a hand in, in terms of how he's prepared the men to be the men they're supposed to be on that screen reenacting those events and i agree richard wholeheartedly and i don't think he does it i know he's he, he's got a lot of kind of uh he's not short on confidence obviously an assertion but actually he's not arrogant if that makes any sense about his career i don't think but i very specifically back up that one thing richard said which is that i think cinema there's pre dale die in terms of war movies and there's then there's sort of uh, perry and post dale die He's changed it. He did change it. And maybe, maybe uh, Band of Brothers, I'm, I'm, a bit, I'm not impartial. <laughs> maybe Band of Brothers is the sort of seminal moment for him where he it's had his pepper, isn't full, it? Creative, full creative uh, input. Well, yeah, he didn't have it, it with the Pacific because everyone was turning up. Someone said, like, with a letter from Mummy saying you couldn't do the boot camp because they'd heard about Band of <laughs> Brothers. Um, so, yeah, yeah, like in terms of the creative. That was, that was so funny. That was in Baston. And he, he, we were talking to him in the middle of the day and he, and he was saying, someone said, have you ever had any groups of actors where it didn't work? And he said, yeah, the Pacific. There was one guy, but I'm not telling you who it was. And then late in the evening, we'd had a few whiskeys. He told us who it was and, yeah. and how it sort of infected um, the, whole, the whole cast. Because this one guy had his letter from his mum or something. Yeah. It just sort of spread around like wildfire. And you could see in his eyes that Dale regrets that he, he almost let this situation unfold that wasn't his wasn't his fault you know because we talked about in the last show some of these actors had heard of what happened to you guys on band that they got their agents to write them in this thing saying you can't shout at me too much wow you know why that's bullshit though is it because because he shouted because the night march was a clusterfuck because we were freaking out in our in our barracks sometimes it's because we did those things, because we had to climb those hurdles, because we had to wade through that muck that we ended up coming out the other side, able to do the job we were able to do. So, you know, if you're not willing to sweat during practice, don't expect to win the game. Like, I, I feel like Dale Dye has the right philosophy on the whole thing. When we first arrived and we're all sitting, we've gotten off the bus, we've got our haircuts, we've got our gear on, but we haven't started boot, boot camp yet. And we're all sitting in the uh, mess hall. And Tom Hanks and Steven Spielberg come in to give us a pep talk. 
and they helicoptered in. And Tom Hanks has this great speech about congratulations, you're all here. And this is American actors, British actors, and all the special ability guys who were filling in Easy Company, right? So it's a bunch of dudes, it's 60, 80 guys. And he's like, congratulations, you guys have made it here. And this is all awesome. And you're about to do boot camp. I've done this boot camp with Private Ryan and Dale Dice in charge. Um, you're actors. You don't know the military. You're going to learn the military. Soak up everything uh, that you are given. You're not going to get shot after this. This is an acting exercise in how to learn how to be a soldier. However, make no mistake. Do what you're told to do when you were told to do it by the people who I brought in to tell you to do things. And if you do not do those things to the best of your ability when you are told to do them, there is somebody back in Los Angeles who will pass you in the air as you fly home. Because if Bill Dye says you're not cutting the mustard, then you're on a plane home. And he essentially, in front of us all, handed the firing power to Dale Dye in not so many words, or in so many words. Basically saying, do this right. If he calls me, that's the only phone call I need to get to know. To, to quote Saving Private Ryan, earn it. Literally, yeah. earn it. Yeah, essentially. And I remember it was a guaranteed role, actually, I don't think. I mean, honestly, I think, that, I think that's true. I remember taking that. I don't remember the speech, but I remember taking that away from it. Oh, I see. Well, yeah, yeah, we, we don't just get to go, sorry, I don't feel like this. Yeah, and there was that moment for everybody going, Roger that, okay. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and then no, we had to get it. We weren't all there, to, you know, because people talk about, well, did Meg, is, is it Meg Lieberman? Did she assemble the greatest cast of television by sweat equity and years of training? Yes. Uh, were Steven Spielberg, Tony Cho, and, and Tom Hanks incredibly astute in finding guys who got the role and emanated the characterizations of people from that period. Yes. Did Dale Dye's boot camp bond those guys together and strip away any preconceived notions of what it meant to be a World War II soldier and take the LA and the London out of these boys and make them a unit of men ready to fight a war? Yes. It's all of those things. It's everything. It's all those dominoes had to fall in order for that group to be as bonded as it was and for us to get on a phone call or a Skype call or a Zoom call to Dexter's point, I haven't seen Dexter in 15 years. It feels like I haven't seen Dexter in 15 minutes. But that's, <laughs> that speaks to who Dexter is. It speaks to Dexter and Richard's and Tim's relationships. And it speaks to how this production worked tirelessly to be sure that we bonded and understood our, our mission. Ross? I've always, it, it was a genius stroke from the producers to put us through that because it's what the boys are saying. It was all manufactured that way. And the way that the show uh, was accepted around the world was because of that boot camp experience. Putting us through that, breaking us, bonding us, figuring out how to strip down your M1, you know, how to throw a grenade, all that shit was so imperative to make the show what it was. So Cam Dye actually gets, um, you know, a lot of respect from us anyway from day one. But even later on, I don't think he gets as much shine as he should. Because mm -hmm. between him and the cadre, putting that experience together, good, bad, indifferent, was absolutely the pinnacle that made the show what it was. Matt says it will sum up boot camp. Yeah, it's, uh, it's extraordinary what boot camp allowed us to go through and, and the relationships it, it let us create. And it gave us a little bit of metal uh, that we could lean on. Uh, so when we came to the series, like uh, Dale Dye would say, we're not actor weenies anymore. We, we, we done some sort of hazing and we, we'd done a rite of passage, so to speak. Yeah. It was like those little moments in boot camp where we all kind of got on each other's nerves and, you know, 
in each other's space, uh, it, it allowed us to, to create relationships that carried over into the, to the miniseries. For me, it was like another, another acting exercise. Uh, I don't know what it was for you guys, uh, but we were all afraid we'd lose our jobs. I think that's why we did low crawl, butt crawl, uh, atomic sit-ups. I still have a hernia from atomic sit-ups, you know, mild hernia in my stomach uh, right above my navel. If you want to feel it, I'll let you guys feel it later. Um, but <laughs> you can help me push back in my, uh, my what is that, my large intestine? Man, this, anyway. is, this is lockdown. That's the best offer I've had in the last month. Yeah. <laughs> we got back on the bus at the end of the 10 days. And I remember that they got us off the bus um, uh, sort of you know, a few minutes away from the, the Hatfield studios and they marched us in as a company. And I remember that everybody that was working on Band of Brothers stopped what they were doing, all the production offices, and they all hang out, hung out the window and watched these actors who had left, you know, making jokes and, and laughing and, 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 um, and, and, and kind of taking, taking it all in jest. They marched the, us off the bus. And we marched back in as a company of soldiers. And I think it was, a, I wish somebody had caught that moment because it was really special to watch actors that had left 10 days before yeah. and came back as a unit, you know. Nick, Aaron, you were Popeye and you were late and you suffered for it, didn't you? Oh, am I allowed to say it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. sure. It's the internet, man. Yeah, you can yeah. say whatever you say want. Say what you want. I swear all the time. <laughs> it's great. I was doing a play. Um, so I was late. I was like three or four days late. So they had already been through a lot of shit before I got there. Um, I showed up at Hatfield. I just come, just finished doing a play. I showed up at Hatfield. They stuck me in my in my uniform. I'm getting driven to the barracks in the Mercedes. Think this is fucking. This is great. This is great. And I get that as soon as I pull up the barracks, the back door literally gets ripped open, and it was Farnsworth. It's <laughs> just it's like, get the fuck out of the car. I'm like, I'm all flustered being all actory. I don't know what the fuck I'm doing. So he said, get your shit from the trunk. I get my bag. And he's like, get your fucking soft cover. And I didn't know what a soft cover was. And he just kind of, he, he makes me run all the way across where they're doing, P they, they're doing PLF. Um, and then all the guys are fucking eyeballing me, like the new, the new kid in school. Um, so he makes me run in the back. He says, choose, choose a fucking bed. I chose a bed, came back down, all flustered. He's like, where's your fucking soft cover? I said, what the fuck is your soft cover? It's <laughs> <laughs> fucking soft cover. So I run back up, I get my hand. They take me over to where all the guys are doing PLFs. And there's a whole fucking line of these gnarly, fucking unshaven, tired looking motherfuckers. Staring at me, just you know, I just showed up in a Mercedes. I probably had a cup of coffee, you know, twenty minutes previous. And, and none of these fuckers would, would speak to me for twenty four hours. They were, they were just fucking eyeballing me. Everyone was just eyeballing me, and it was really pissing me off. So nobody would speak to me. It was horrible. It's Scott Grimes. I just remember thinking, man, if anyone's going to get it, the ginger one's going to get it. I'm going to fucking get it. <laughs> hey, 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 hey. Easy, easy. Yeah. Uh, you, you weren't there, you weren't there. But it was just the, it was just the way, and, it, and it, it went on for like a whole day, just nobody speaking to me. It was horrible, and I tried to make conversations, and they would just be like, shush, shut up. And it was really, I hated it. I fucking hated it. I was just thinking, this is shit. <laughs> and uh, I just, yeah, just, it was, it was tough, man. It was tough, but, you know, 
I had to get my head down. I had a lot of catching up to do. They they'd done a hell of a lot of work, you know, in those three or four days. So I had to get my shit together and uh, and catch up. It was, but it was a great experience. Um, yeah, it's just fucking. I just the only one I remember hating Scott Grimes. I just all remember is his red hair. <laughs> I, if, if, if I don't remember, if I don't remember any of these faces, the fucking ginger ones getting it. <laughs> what was great about that is I had, I no matter you know he could he could point me out as a person that gives him shit, but I had fucking fifty other guys that had. Yeah, my right, back. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, he would have come on well and stopped that. I actually amazing. felt bad. I remember specifically because I I'm not that person that's gonna. I'll, I'll jump. I'll go behind Rich's face and go, yeah, you're fucking, you don't belong here. But I'm not going to do it on my own. And I felt bad for Nick. I remember his, the look on his yeah. face. Let's just finish with Jason O'Mara, who played Thomas Meehan, because you literally didn't arrive till the start of filming. Um, and that was tough, wasn't it? I was handed a, a package, you know, that was uh, all the research material. Um, a couple of days in advance of shooting, uh, where I got, you know, photographs, but also his his D-Day letter home, which is beautiful. It's, you know, uh, that was like a real eye opener and, and really helped me get into the character. Um, and, uh, but no, I didn't go on boot camp with any of them. You know, I think it was, it was decided that my character died too early on to really invest in doing boot camp with, um, which meant it was really awkward for me for the first few days because um, I was also the commander of Easy Company but I didn't know any of the men and they didn't know me, you know, and they all came in with their Corcoran boots, nicely broken in after boot camp, but mine were brand new. I tried to break them in myself, but you know, it's, it's really hard to do unless you actually <laughs> go to boot camp. And, uh, and so a few, a few of the, few of the soldiers started calling me new, new boots thinking I was just some kind of, you know, new guy, but, I was actually their leader and, and it was only later on in my first day and second day that they realized that I was their boss, you know, I was their commander. And, um, and it was really only after the big scene in the hangar where I go through Operation Overlord where they, they realized that that was the case, you know. Um, and I think I got, I got a bit more respect after that. But... Um, it was hard going in as, as a lead because everyone was sort of acting, playing their roles and their rank. Mm-hmm. Mm. So it's hard to go in as, you know, top dog when nobody knows who you are. I had a big speech. I had to stand up in front of whatever it was, 200 people, um, and look like I know exactly what I'm talking about. Um, I didn't know anybody at that point. They didn't know me. Um, it was freezing. So it was actually me focusing on my uh, mouth not completely shutting down, you know, <laughs> and my teeth not chattering that got me through it, you know. Um, and it was my big moment. You know, I didn't want to, I didn't want to blow it. And I was, I was pretty, I was pretty nervous. Um, but yeah, it, it, uh, it, it, once I realized, once Phil Alden Robinson came over to me after a couple of the takes and said, look, it's really good. You're, it, you're doing fine. He just gave me a couple of things to think about. Um, and I played them and it really, it really started to come together for me. But it was very cold. Uh, we were all very tired. And this was day, I don't think it was day one, but I think it was day two, you know. 
Mm. And uh, it was very early in the morning. Yeah, it was. It was. Um, it wasn't easy. Philip Barantini, who played Skinny Sisk, um, you've got big Hollywood sets. Were you treated like big Hollywood stars? We all had honey wagons, you know, with our names on. It was all very Hollywood, um, but we weren't allowed to go in them at first. For the, first, I'd say, for the probably the first, maybe the first month, um, because we all had to, we all had to get changed in this in this huge tent um, all together. Richard Spate, who played Skip Mark, go ahead. We had trailers, but we basically were in that tent. I mean, yeah. I, you know, like it was more like we were circus performers, and we uh, had like a, a a little nook. Yes, Jimmy Maddio, who was Frank Picante. Uh, yeah. The bottom line is, Rick Rick Water can tell you if you were caught in your trailer, we went and took shits in your trailer. We didn't. <laughs> <laughs> What's the rule? Which is What's why I don't rule? remember my trailer because I I read that seriously. Don't let me tell you. you uh, Scott Grimes, who played Don Malarkey. If you had a scene to do, it's like if you had speaking scene, you were allowed to go in your trailer. Other than that, right? Am I wrong? That was yeah, 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 yeah. Philip, even getting to set was done in character, wasn't it? They made us march from the base to the sets, which were like, you know, maybe a mile, um, all on this huge complex, which was an old um, British aerospace uh, plot where they used to build uh, parts for planes. Which was which was shut down. So they were they used the the, the air hangers as sets. Mm. Um, so we used to have to line up in formation, in character, and march the sets. And we did that every day for well for nine months really. Um, <clears throat> and I think partly that's that's the reason why it's it, it is so authentic the, the the show. You know because because of people like Dale Dye who who were drilled drilled us <laughs> every day. Um, but yeah, being in character was 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 a it was just normal jimmy and everyone has said like oh, i'd never seen a set that size before but you had hadn't you you'd been on hook did it still surprise you the amount of the scale of band of brothers well yeah i mean it, it, was, it, it was big it was a lot going on uh i don't know how many acres it was but there was villages and towns and i mean everything you could imagine a uh, hook was you know uh was that 91 so 10 years prior hook was hook took over the entire lot as well and you had ships pirate ships in neverland and and uh i remember that that those sets were so big that like everybody was bringing their kids on every big star was showing up to that set i think prince showed up madonna showed up bruce willis at the time all these huge people showed up to kind of see the set uh but you were in hollywood so they were able mm. to do that but the sets were really really big then uh, yeah, but Band Band of Brothers just seemed like it was ten times bigger than Hook could ever be. Mark Lawrence, you played Jukeman. You had early dialogue. Was it scary? First thing was on the airfield, and there's maybe like four, five hundred extras, and I stand up and say something, and I'm like, "Oh, do not fuck this up." I mean, you're just thinking. You got camera cranes going everywhere. You got four hundred extras. You got this, that, the other, and I mean, this is a Steven Spielberg, Tom Hanks production, and you're like, "Oh my god." Please don't stumble. But it's, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's amazing. It's amazing. I mean, it's it's stuck with me like the rest of the boys. I'm sure it's, it's it just it'll never leave us. How many takes? Oh, only one. Come on, man! <laughs> <laughs> Boom! Hit that. Ben Kaplan, uh, you played Smokey Gordon. What do you remember of the early filming? 
think I think if my memory serves me rightly, and, and forgive me if, if if I'm a bit vague, I think we did a lot of night shoots to start off with. I'm pretty sure. I remember lots and lots of cold night shoots, doing all of that stuff, running up and down Carantan and the the stuff with the water bottle and Michael Fassbender um, with with David Trimble, all of that stuff in the, in the you know the, the the night marches and stuff. I think we did a lot of that early doors. So there was a lot of big company uh, scenes being shot early on, and that that was um, pretty intense because we were working all hours, you know, in the middle of the night. But again, brilliant experience to be able to kind of get that many guys together so that we can continue, you know, enjoying each other's company. Because I think you know that camaraderie was really really important. Mm. So by the time we came back from 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 boot camp, and then we had a lot of those big sequences to shoot, and we were able to con- continue where we left off. And staying with Ben, you want to mention the attention to detail on set, don't you? Yeah, I mean, incredible. The sets were absolutely incredible. And that's one of the other things that, that um, I've been reminded of recently because a lot of people have been posting um, quite a lot of photos of the set and stuff. And um, I mean, I, you know, I, you still look at those sets now and you think, you know, we're 20 years down the line and those sets were incredible, you know, then. And they stand up now, you know, they, they, the, the, the level of detail. I remember just looking at the guys that were sort of painting tiny bits of, um, colour in the wall and, and, and the buildings and stuff. And, and then when we went to Carantan for real, Paul will we'll, we'll vouch for this, we went to Carantan for real and you kind of then go, oh my God, I remember this set and they have, they have matched this detail incredibly well because um, obviously I'd never been to the, to, 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 the, to the real location. So to go into Carantan was very, very special. Um, when we went to Bastogne, it was very, very special to be able to see the woods and then actually to see what they recreated inside a sound inside a sound studio. I mean, that was incredible to ship, you know, however many 300, 400 trees over from Belgium and create the kind of the, the woods. I mean, it was just just um, uh, br- brilliant production design, uh, really, really, really stunning. And, and as I say, to this day, I've worked on many sets, but I've never worked on anything quite as amazing as Band of Brothers. And the, the amount of sets as well, the amount of different locations they had to produce was was quite incredible and I don't live very far away from there now so I you know I sometimes go up to Hatfield and obviously the, the studio is not there because they they got rid of it and now it's um it's a gym in fact I used to be belong I used to belong to uh, to a gym that is in one of the hangars where we shot Band of Brothers <laughs> so it's quite incredible to go back in that hangar now and to see that it's a David Lloyd gym and not a you know not a not a World War II hangar where we shot Band of Brothers but um yeah incredible really really incredible Rick Warden, who played Harry Welsh, what about you? I can remember being on the set in that, and, and listen, the town set, the Carantan set was massive. It was a, it was a fucking town, really. Incredible. And I can yes. remember Spielberg saying that one of the walls wasn't dirty enough. This is when I was <laughs> gathering the, 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 the platoon together in that town square. He literally was like, we're going to have to dirty up that wall. And I... I, I, I what in a massive bombed out town that's the kind of and, and isn't it true michael you might know this or, or one of the other guys who were in i wasn't in it too but my recollection is that some things needed to be reshot in it too because of the um the kick the pullback on the, the m1 wasn't quite the right kick on the, yeah. the, kick was, the kick was wasn't up it was back yeah. and he basically yeah. said it's got to be up guys Michael Kudlitz, of course, he was Ball Randleman. What do you remember about Carantan and learning as you go, and not just the cast, but the crew as well? That was our first sort of large-scale Big. group battle. So I think that they were, yeah. like, with the with the, the pilot through the first episode when we had to go back and, you know, they learn stuff. You know, you learn if 
we killed people in episode six and seven and we didn't get to know them well enough early on, then it's, it doesn't have the impact that it should. So I think that for everyone, including the filmmakers, um, there was, it was a process and they realized as Rick was saying, Hey, you know, that, that doesn't look right. That's not what it did. This is what it did. And then they were like, all right, we're going back in. We're going to make that wall dirtier and we're going to make the kick accurate. And that, that was the sort of the, the commitment from everyone doing it. And we were all like, oh, okay, if it's not right, let's go back and do it again. Ben, how real did it all feel? Yeah, and, and, and again, I think one of the great uh, experiences of, of, obviously, we've talked about boot camp, but then when we actually got on the sets and the authenticity of the sets themselves, they were so real. Um, and, you know, once those battle sequences started, it did feel very real. So it, it felt for an actor, it, for an actor, it was, it was, it, it made our job much easier because I actually, you just kind of thought, you know, what, what if it was, this was me in this situation? Yeah. And, and once all of that, you know, that, um, once all of that stuff kicks off, once the explosions and the, the squibs and everything else start firing up, you kind of just go into kind of survival mode. Um, and a lot of that training does kick in, but then a lot of that training goes out the window. And, and as, as I'm sure that it did with the real guys, you know, you can't prepare for combat because, you know, once you get in it, you kind of go, wow, this is very different to what we've been doing in training. And you just have to kind of have that survival mechanism kick in and think, you know, all I need to do is worry about, you know, myself and my friends around me and just make sure that we try and get through this, make sure that we don't, we don't, we don't lose our lives. So that survival instinct kicks in. The crew must have worked as hard as you guys, Mark. Yeah, I mean, uh, crew are the unsung heroes of it. I mean, luckily, luckily a lot of them are known. There's, there's a guy called, I'm sure, Paul knows, Joe Hobbs, mm. who, who was an amazing guy. And uh, he was he was basically dedicated his life to this production. You know, that's how it seemed. And um, everybody was like that on set. Man. Well, I was going to say, I remember talking to you, Rick, in Bastogne in 2016, and we were walking in. We just parked up, hadn't we? And we walked in. And you must have said 20 times in a row, this is like being on the set. It's just like being on the set. It's just like being <laughs> on the set. You told us about the belt. They, if you recall, if I recall correctly, they brought in even trees from Belgium or something, didn't they? And they spaced yeah. out exactly at the same distance. You know, you Joe Hobbs, God rest his soul, um, uh, our costume designer. Oh, I, I'm pretty oh, sure, that, or, or certainly high up in costume, whether he was the designer or not, right down to the patches, the number yeah. of stitches in the patches, the leather that the corker and the, the boots were made out of, you know, the de- and, and I, I'm pretty sure they there were trees from Be- there were other trees from Belgium or there, there's something about that in the story. Yeah, they were the, the trees were imported. Uh, yeah, Joe Hobbs when the the first batch of shirts arrived, he took them out of the packet and he looked at them and he went, "Oh dear, the thread the thread count's yeah. wrong." And production were like, well, what do you want to do? He said, "Well, we can use them if you want." And they said, "But will will it be authentic?" And he said, "Well, no, they won't be." Matt Settle, you played Lieutenant Spears. How do you remember the authenticity efforts, um, especially the stuntmen? I remember Bailey, Ian Bailey saying, uh, played Webster, saying he remembers pulling the trigger in a shot and, and a stuntman falling exactly when he pulled the trigger. He's, he's aiming at someone and he pulls a trigger in a big battle scene and then that person falls exactly when he pulls the trigger. Yes, Rene Moreno, who played Joseph Ramirez. And that attested the, the, the best stuntmen working at that time, too, with us. It was amazing. Yeah. 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 I mean, I had moments during, during some of that three when we did the big tank battle in the field. Yeah. Just the, the sort of size of the task in hand that we were doing, the amount of mechanized real. sort of <laughs> violence mm. there. I mean, the reset on the tanks, when it came yeah. through the, 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 the hedge, 
It was like what a two-and-a-half-hour reset, man, because you had to yeah, back you to were with tank us that day where the guy the went fucking... under the tread, right? under, Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That was the weirdest. I was that like, was what the surreal. hell? Yeah. yeah. It was the most extraordinary stunt. Yeah, he would like fall a... on, and then it would push him down, and he was literally oh, rolled over oh by God. the tank. He's got to be trusting for that, up. right? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. He did two takes of it, I think, and they were. he made a lot... It was one of the most expensive stunts on the show. I, I, yes. I, 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 so what was it? And it was, was like it a, a trap. It was like he a sort of. No, it was like a coffin built, shape, mm-hmm. and he would crawl. It, it was more scary even than we're describing. He would crawl on solid right. ground to, to a place, place that he knew you... wasn't, and then be crushed into the hole by the tank. Oh my god! And his helmet yeah, right. was bring loaded outside the tank, just yep. outside the hole, so it crushed. The, the weight of the tank would push him down. Yeah. yeah. Episode four, the replacements. You get all these new guys coming in. Um, how did you treat them? Because weren't you told to treat them like pariahs? Like, don't be nice to them. Rich. You know, to be honest, I, I know we were told that, but we also just kind of did it because we were dickheads at the time. I mean, we, we, we had bonded in our own way. And when somebody would come on and they'd have shiny boots and their uniform, it just made us mad. I mean, I don't, I don't know what to tell you. It, it, you know, the psychology worked kind of. Ben, how real did it all feel? We all went through that, you know, that experience of what the hell is this? And I think when you turn up late, you know, the fact is, you know, that the replacements got given quite a lot of stick about the fact that they hadn't been to boot camp. And it was exactly the same as what happens in, in episode four, what happens in, in the, the scenes when they turn up. So they were given the same amount of, 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 of grief um, as actors and any actor that turned up sort of, you know, later into filming were kind of ignored or given quite a hard time at the beginning. And I think some of act- some actors, you know, some fam- famous actors uh, famously have spoken about this in interviews. And they said, you know, that they turned up on set and it was it was quite a hostile atmosphere. But there was a reason for that. And, um, and, and you know, some people didn't like it and, and thought it was, you know, a, a bit of nonsense. But actually, you know, we had been that's how we'd been trained. And, you know, I think it was just natural that was going to happen. Robin Lang, you played Babe Heffron. Um, there's a South Philly connection there, isn't there, um, with Garnier? So when you came in, if everybody's in character, did you get a slightly easier ride in terms of being a replacement? Um, I was given a slight pass to an extent. Um, or certainly I think I was maybe welcomed into the fold um, quite readily because, because of who Babe and Bill were. Um, I remember coming from a costume fitting and being shown into the big marquee that everyone got mm-hmm. changed in and kind of, you know, relaxed in and people being um, uh, quite kind of like, oh, babe's here, babe's here, where's where's Bill, where's Bill? And somebody went and got Frank and kind of, you know, um, brought him over so we could, you know, to introduce us. And, and we chatted and stuff. And so, yeah, there was, I, I, I guess I was kind of given a bit of a pass. But by the same token, I remember being um going through the same things you know where early on you'd you'd put your rifle down and go away to do something and you turn back around and your rifle's gone and then you're like oh man you know and you're just waiting for one of the cadre to walk past and go uh where's your rifle and you're like i don't know (laughs) and they're like drop and give me 10 you know so i had to go through that as well Right, so there's a great incident um, that illustrates what we're talking about with Robin, Push-Up Gate, which Rich has talked about. Um, Let's incorporate your take on it. 
don't remember the group of guys, but I'm going to – I can leap forward and assume it was Gomez, Matteo, Grimes, like the usual suspects, and a new <laughs> guy came in. And you know how, like, sometimes it wouldn't be necessary that we would be, quote-unquote, mean to somebody, but there was also sort of a rite of passage of, you're the new guy. Oh, nice to meet you, man. You're going to need to give me 20 push-ups. Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. you, you would just, just be in passing. And, and I know that, that um, uh, Farnsworth, Freddie Joe would – you know, warn the dudes, hey, you're going to set, you know, this is the, this is how this is going to play out. You're probably going to get that request, whatever. Um, I remember sort of pushing against that at one point. The group said, you're going to need to give us 20. And he's like, nah, screw you guys. And like, no, 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 you're going to need to give us 20. And he's like, no, screw you guys. And now it's, now it's going like this. You know, now it's a couple mm-hmm. guys standing up on the chair like, I don't think you understand what we're saying. We're not asking you. You're not hearing a question mark at the end of the sentence. You're going to need to give us 20 push-ups. Because I'd say, I'm not doing fucking push-ups, you know. And, uh, and not to one of the cadre. It was somebody, It was another cast member that said, oh, you don't know where your rifle is, you know. Just give me 20. And I can't remember who it was, but I was like, nah. You know, if one of the cadre give me push-ups, fine. But I'm not taking it off another member of cast, you know. And it was starting to get heated. The guy's like, you know, fuck you guys. And I pulled that dude aside and sort of took off the mask for 20 seconds. Yeah. And said, hey, man, here's how this is going to play out. I know we're making a movie, and I know we're all actors, but we've all been in, this, in the trenches since the word go, and you're arriving here, and this is sort of your rite of passage. This is your secret handshake. You have two choices. Do the 20 push-ups, or don't do the 20 push-ups, and make this a miserable experience for yourself for the remainder of the shoot. Yeah. Is it worth that? No, it's not worth that. So yeah. I think this guy who did his 20 push-ups, everybody left him alone. It's like he did his 20 push-up, and everybody was like, that's all we asked, dude. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I was kind of like, all right, yeah, fuck it. So I did it. I remember doing the, it was 20 I had to do. And as I was approaching 20, I think Frank, I remember vividly, Frank was there. And he was like, go on, babe, go on. Now give me 30, go for 30. And so I kept going. And, and I remember and people pushing me to 40. And then I got to, and I managed to do 50. And, uh, and when I got to 50, and then, you know, I got up and everybody was really like, yeah, you know, and Frank gave me a big hug. And every, people were kind of patting me on the back. And I was, I, re- I suddenly realized how, how right um, uh, uh, Richard Spate, I think. I'm sure it was Richard. How right he was to kind of, um, you know, push me to do that. You know, he, he, you know, how important it was that I bought into it, um, that, that thing. So, I, yeah, so I kind of got a free pass, but I, uh, to an extent. But, um, hmm. yeah, I had that little thing. Because I don't think any of those people who did catch shit as a replacement, you know, sure there would have been an initial you know, reluctance or, or tough time they would have had to come through because that was kind of what was instructed to do. And I suppose, mm. you know, we'd all had a tough time and it felt right passing it on a little bit. But it's not like it went on forever and ever and we were complete oh, shit no, to everybody no, else. No, so it was guys, there was a lot of new guys that came in and they were there for like, you know, for the duration of the show. And that hazing stopped, you know, week two or whatever. Yeah. A lot of these guys came in for one episode. And I think the guys that came in for one episode had a tough time because they didn't understand what the makeup of the movie was. Mm. And so they would come in, they would kind of get their balls busted a little bit right. and then walk away going, fuck that, that was miserable. Whereas the people that stuck around because their character... It, it doesn't matter. The thing was, it was a mindset. You know, the, yeah. this is all part of, you know, that was all yeah. part and parcel of what we were all drawn into. That's the thing. We did get thrown into the madness of that boot camp. And it's like, it was 24 hours a day for 10 days. It wasn't like you ever went, okay, guys, you know, clock off. It was no clocking off. It was 
240 hours continuous. Scott, yes. As long as they're like, I'll never forget. We have to give like Colin Hanks a credit because he came on. We gave him shit and he we dealt did. with it really well. Yeah. He played the game on his side really well. So Definitely, because I think to a man, the people that we've spoken to that were replacements did hang around for a while and not one of them. They've all like laughed and joked about the hazing yeah, and how shit it was, but not one of them. Martin, Hashi, all those guys. Hashi, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, they, they were there throughout it. Babe had fun. Ross McCall, who played Joseph Liebgott. You know, there were, there were actors, and we got the actor kicked out of us in boot camp. Like, the actor mm. was knocked out of us early on. Other guys were coming in, and they just finished Rado, or they just finished a, a theatrical run, and they're coming in, and a bunch of Americans are kind of giving them bullshit, and they're going, what is this? They're in one episode, they go away, and they go, oh, <laughs> it was like a crazy bunch of lunatics. And they didn't really understand the fabric of the show because they weren't there for long, you know? Yeah. Some of the cast who are little more than extras in Band of Brothers have gone on to be um, really famous. How much crap did they get? Uh, Mark, let's go to you. But yeah, but the, I mean, the replacements, when it, when it came to episode four, they've never really been doing it for a few months. I mean, they, they, they got most of, the, most of the grief. I mean, I, I, made, I made a guy called Dominic Cooper, and I can't remember his character. Um, but I made him do push-ups, and I think he wrote about <laughs> it in the paper like 15 years later saying how traumatized he was by it all. This <laughs> is oh a God. star of Preacher now, right? There you go. I, yeah. I carry that <laughs> around. But um, he got his payback. He's, he's a very rich young man now. Yes, Tim Matthews, who played Alex Pancala. I have yeah. this story that I remember. I hope somebody can back this up. Um, I think maybe Rich or Scott was there. We were having lunch one day. And James McAvoy, who at the time obviously was just, you know, came and uh, had lunch. He was, he was talking to us. And I think it was Rick Gomez. Yes, sir, it was. Were, I know the story. There were some mum jokes go going on. And they was funny for us. And then <laughs> James McAvoy made the mistake of making a mum joke to, uh, to Rick Gomez. And oh, he yeah. fucking launched. He launched across the table at him oh. and grabbed him and started threatening him. Like, very seriously. He was really affronted by the fact that cause he'd overstepped the line. Like, no, 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 no. We, we can do the mum jokes. Yeah. You're a fucking new guy. You don't get to do it. I was a little bit worried. I, I honestly thought we were going to get a black eye out of it. Somebody was going to get a black eye. No, I, I also remember Tom been... Hardy getting a, a fucking tough time when he came in as well. Yeah, Tom yeah. Hardy. Me and Rick gave really? him a tough time on the back of that fucking dude. Basically, we just picked on anyone that we knew were going to be movie stars. That's what it was. We just yeah. picked yeah. on anyone that were going to blow up. Give us the Tom Hardy stories. George Khalil, you played Mo Ali. The concentration camp. Tom Hardy... It was the first scene he ever did, as he told me. And he's now a big movie star, God bless him. And uh, and uh, Tom threw up in his helmet, for real. <laughs> At the concentration camp, Alina. No. Are you talking about Tom Hardy? How did you know, man? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I remember, like, I remember Tom Hardy had this, uh, he had a, like, little mole on his arm, and it had a hair sticking out of it. And I just mindlessly plucked it. <laughs> and he was furious. He's like, that was my lucky hat. <laughs> well, it wasn't that lucky, was it? <laughs> so, no, it was, a, it was a great scene he shot after that. And I guess it was his lucky hair. He had a great career. <laughs> Matt Settle, ladies and gentlemen, destroyer of Tom Hardy. Um, he's found Bane's Achilles heel. Michael, seriously, though, in a way, this is what made the acting dynamic work right 
I would also say to to everybody out there, you know, who sees it, um, one of the things that's never really addressed is, and, and we all know this as actors and as male actors and as young male actors, to be that selfless <laughs> with other male actors, like, holy, sh like, they hit the fucking lottery. I mean, that, that was, that in itself is like you just don't get that like it's a, you get a young actor male actor who's trying to make his mark i mean it's kind of like it, there's there's an element in there that was could have taken hold and could have wrecked everything and to the credit of the men i'm looking at on the screen right now it did not tim and yeah. there were one or two notable exceptions that i won't mention out loud and they were and they but they weren't they were very short-lived they were a little kind of yeah the flash in the pan so conspicuous for that reason yeah. and so vulgar for that reason they they took care They've of themselves never done any of this stuff exactly it's interesting it burnt, it burnt itself out mark dale died god bless him created a space where everybody everybody sort of believed in it you know Every, there was there was nobody was precious and it was it was a i mean i don't want to say it, it was a band of brothers on set yes rich Knight. The thing that I think that only we can appreciate, and I think, is how bizarre and unique that experience was. How, how emotional it was. And, you know, I'm going to go back to something Dexter said. I love telling the story. It doesn't involve me at all. It involves this specific one. It's Dexter and Donnie. And I remember those guys. I always use this as an example of how Band of Brothers functioned and why it stands the test of time. Because actors took themselves out of scenes. That didn't happen anywhere. Nobody takes himself off screen. Right. right. So mm -hmm. just regardless of a, if I fought too much or Tim, you feel like you fought too little or Matthew feels like you fought too little or I was, you know, Cutlass was too mouthy and other people were not mouthy yeah. enough, whatever. At the end of the day, everybody's aim was the same. Right. And everybody's aim was an egoless pursuit. Right. <laughs> because right. I, I remember – uh, Dex, you guys taking yourself out. I remember because you took yourself out of a out of a thing, <laughs> yeah. and suddenly they gave me your line because I was like, "Well, Muck was here," and they're like, "Great, now you're saying blah blah blah." I'm like, okay, uh, you know, because you you showed up, walked over, and you literally walked over, and and you're like, "I'm not in this," and you turned and walked away. It wasn't like a big big uh, dramatic <laughs> conversation. And I was like, "Well, there goes all right." That does not one. sound like me. But I think you should come. I think it comes back to what you were saying about earlier. You know, it's like we, you know, for those of us whose veterans were still around who we could talk to, and it was, it was, it was you know, shared knowledge. I don't think, you know, if your veteran wasn't alive that, that we sort of, we kind of held on to it. But you, you had an authenticity and, and an understanding and a knowledge that gave an authenticity to what we were doing and who we were. And, because what happened to me, I just going back to what you said about, about, you know, picking off the scab of something for someone that to us was kind of like a role that we were playing. And the first time I spoke to Johnny, he spoke to me about the first day that he landed in France, hiding in a barn, waiting for some Nazis to come collect some milk from a farm. And the first person that he killed during the war when he was 22 years wow. old. And, 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 and he opened up. It's like you were saying, they, he cried. You know, there was tears. And, and he hung up, and I had to call him back later. And I suddenly realized, oh, my God, this, it's a real thing. For me, I was like, hey, I'm playing soldiers. I'm marching around with a bunch of guys. And, oh, I've got a machine gun. And isn't it great? To, to the reality of, oh, there are real people involved. And it, it just, 
it's that's what's unique about the experiences because there's so rarely that you get such a human connection to what it is that you do. We can intellectualize it and we analyze and we deconstruct and we kind of, oh, I can do this and how do I want to, but this, these people were real and we suddenly had a massive responsibility to those people. And I think that comes back to what Richard's saying about, you know, his experience and even Matthew saying about his, because that doesn't go away. That sense of responsibility, that sense of connection to a real person who went through something enormous that we, we feel like we've got an understanding of because the, 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 the programs are so fantastic. They connect you as much as they can to the wartime experience through the humanity of these guys and that relationship and, that, and how connected and what a band of brothers they really were. That's what makes the war real for us. It's interesting because I remember on the, patrol, the episode, The Patrol, that David Leland was directing, that he started making decisions about people being on the patrol that weren't. He just started cherry picking characters and, 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 and for those of us whose veterans or, or characters were actually on the patrol, it was kind of like, wow, I've got to start fighting for my, for my place. Fortunately, Randleman, <laughs> Cudlitz, was like, I'm having none of that. I mean, the English guys were a little bit more kind of like, oh, this is awkward. Uh, that's a little bit of a sticky situation. Randleman was like, fuck that. And I remember him going to front Leland and absolutely telling him, I know on certain terms, these are the men that were on that patrol and they are the men that should be in that episode. Yeah. And you can't just cherry pick the characters that you like because you want us to have an episode full of those guys. It was these guys and they're the ones, and it did, and it all reverted yeah, back Dexter, to work. I was originally on that, Malarkey was originally on that patrol. And yeah. I was so fucking happy when I found out he wasn't. Because that was like two weeks of night shoots in the water, right? <laughs> Sorry. Yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah. Rick Warden, you all sacrificed glory to some extent. Um, did you regret it when you saw it on screen afterwards? No, I, you know, I had egoistic ones for a year or two after we made it. And, and, and because of how what this is, Tim referred to it earlier on, the fact that we're all here now talking about it 20 years after we made it, those regrets disappeared a long, long yeah. time ago. I don't have a single regret. I don't regret a frame of it anymore. Mm -hmm. I, I, for two years, I beat myself up with decisions I could have made. And, hey, this thing would be really good if only I wasn't in it. I was wrecking this whole flipping battle scene. You know, those things are ludicrous and, they're, and they're, they're, we've all had those, I'm sure. Because the thing about it, at the time, it felt like it was about us, but it's not about us. It's I don't not have that about us. We, we have it as a shared experience as a group of actors that we went through saying it was great. But it, and it's, it, it's bigger than us. It is. It's about those guys. And we represented those guys. We represent those guys in a big way, in a small way, in a fleeting way, in a, you know, yeah. and that's what's so amazing about it. You know, we that's the, the, the great thing for us. We've got I to agree. represent them. It's like I, I represent Malarkey, Ross Liebgott, uh, Spade, whoever you played. Um. <laughs> 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 Historians have been basically lining up to say good things about the show. Veterans have been lining up. I mean, of all wars, all nations saying, oh, my God, it's brilliant. And you guys are happy to come and talk about it. it that doesn't really happen very often. You get the shows that the public like, but the veterans say, no, it's all just Hollywood, or the historians think it's ridiculous. Something, there was really something special that it, it appealed across the board. And mm. uh, and that was all due to the bail and, and writers and Tom Hanks and 
and what you guys all brought to it. So it's it's amazing. It really is. Yeah, there was a, there was definitely a, um, a a seriousness. I mean, you know, we had a lot of fun. Don't get me wrong. You know, we 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 enjoyed each other's company, and there was a, there was a lot of laughter. But when we got on set, there was a real sense that we wanted to get to get that right. We wanted to tell these stories. We wanted to get the authenticity bang on. And um, you know, we as I say, we had a responsibility. We we met you know those those vets, a lot of the guys that were still alive when we were making the show. They came to set, and to see their emotional reaction to us walking around in the uniforms to the German, uh, to, to the actors that were portraying the Germans walking around in the uniforms, to seeing those sets and to see them emotionally affected by the, the, the authenticity was quite staggering. Renee, it was a hard slog on set, wasn't it? You know, yeah. it's funny for me, um, and it goes along saying with uh, what Mike was saying earlier and point i think we're so young i mean i was 30 but this was like my big break you know and here i am walking on or marching on this tarmac we're about 100 yards away from the nearest camera and then we're we're marching in our our wool and our wool uh, uniforms and i'm thinking to myself what the hell am i doing here I thought I was hired as an actor. I'm a freaking extra, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm like, what the fuck am I doing here? And I'm just like, just miserable, cold in the rain. I'm marching. I don't really know what I'm doing because everybody else has been marching beforehand. I, I, I'm there new, kind of, I'm just bitching and moaning. And, and Bull just, he goes to me, Renee, what the fuck are you talking? What are you complaining about? You're getting paid to be in this ministry as an actor you could be back home flipping burgers doing whatever the fuck you're doing and it, at that moment my whole perspective of what <laughs> what I was there for completely changed and uh, I give a lot to Mike just because he just he just put me back he just put me in my place and I was like thank you <laughs> yes I, 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 I could be on a roof roofing a, a house I could be in a freaking attic which I was um, doing this whole like flooring in this attic in 110 degree heat, you know, mm. when I got the call that I got the job. So I was like, yes, I'm blessed. <laughs> Even though it's cold and miserable, you know, so that definitely, uh, mm. yeah. I was, you were that cold was and miserable and employed at that point. And, yeah. and <laughs> at that point, I was extremely grateful for what I, what I got. Yeah, definitely. One of my favorite moments. Ben, did you have work to do in the evenings too? And I also remember in early days, we were given a lot, a lot of research material. I mean, I remember being given a, a whole pack of research about Walter Gordon when I was at boot camp. And I, when I had the opportunity, which wasn't very often, I used to sit on my bed and just kind of read through it. We had all the transcripts from Stephen Ambrose interviews. And that was really special to be able to kind of go through that with a fine tooth comb. And it was, you know, I mean, to have that much research for an actor is just like, you know, it's like gold dust. You sort of, you can just, you know, almost inhale all of that detail. And then when we started doing, you know, some of the scenes, we could then say, well, actually in the, in the research material, this is what Gordon actually said. This is what I should be wearing in this particular scene. This is what, you know, as far as he was concerned, this is what happens. So we were able to dictate to a certain extent some of that detail over to the directors who came in for one or two episodes. Um, and I remember having a conversation with Phil Alden Robinson, who directed episode one, because obviously he had sort of arrived quite late. So I think Steven Spielberg was due to direct the first episode and then he, he had to pull out. So Phil was a bit of a late 
a late um, a, a, a late entry. And I remember going in one by one and having a conversation with Phil. And he sort of said, you know, talk to us. What about, you know, give us any information that you've picked up over the last few weeks. And I just remember sort of being able to kind of, you know, reel off a whole load of detail about some of the research that I was um, reading. And, uh, you know, that was really useful. For some of you, it was over midway through. How did it feel to leave everyone behind? Uh, Peter O'Meara, who played Lieutenant Dyke. The worst thing was going home. I didn't want to go home. I just wanted to be there all the time. And when I could, I would ask to come in on days off just so I could watch and learn. Because there's a lot to learn. Mark, of course, poor Dukeman dies. Yeah, it was it was it was really sad. I mean, I had to go back maybe three weeks later to do some pickup shots, and obviously the production had moved on by then. And it was it was weird walking into a back onto the set, uh, just seeing everybody, and then also seeing people that had been killed in between my time of leaving and going back to do the pickup shots. And I was like, so where is so and so? And they're like, oh, he's dead. And it was it was kind of it was freaky. I mean, it was it was it was a very I don't know, emotional production to be on because everybody took it very seriously. And um, yeah, when, when people died, they were missed. Ben, you're another one whose character was written out in line with real events. Yeah, um, yeah it was difficult. I think, I mean, I, I, one of the last scenes that I shot was pretty much the last scenes in, in Bastogne anyway for, 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 for Gordon when he got um, injured in the foxhole. Um, so that was a very emotional, they, they were very emotional scenes to play anyway. Mm. Um, so it was almost like, you know, the emotional stuff I had to do kind of on set in the scenes, being dragged out of the foxhole and then being rushed off to the aid station, um, you know, was very emotional to play. Um, but it was also emotional because we knew, well, the, the guys that knew that they were finishing on set were sort of saying goodbye to this sort of epic um, sort of situation that we've been in for however many months and I mean they shot out of sequence so I was there for I can't remember it in all probably about four of the six months and it was very emotional to leave um but uh again just to have been part of it was just special in itself I mean it must have been difficult for Bart because he'd only just arrived and yeah so three is very early on but to have done sort of six out of the ten was special to just have been part part of it and and to have formed those kind of bonds and as I say, I, I think when, when, when I left, I can't remember what I went back to do. I think I went back and I was busy doing some stuff anyway. So that took me out of that headspace for a while. And then we had, we had the, um, we had the rap party. Um, so we were all called back and we got back together and, and it was all, as if we'd never kind of left. So it was emotional to leave, but, um, you know, it was one of those, one of those things that, you know, you were just really grateful to have been there in the first place. Bart Raspoli, um, you played Ed Tipper and you were the first um, to go in episode three, really, of, of the main guys. How did that feel? Awful. That's the truth. It was, it was really awful. It wasn't, um, it, you know, I, it, Ed was the first, I think he was the first Tacoma man to sort of, you know, leave the war. Mm. Um But it was, no, it, it was absolutely awful because again, you've done, done all the boot camp and you've, you know, you've been a part of this thing and you've, we created this bond between all of us. That that's why we're here today, you know, um, in literally in 10 days and or 11 or 12 or 13, however everyone remembers it. Um, but yeah, it wasn't, I remember this apprehension, this dread of like, oh shit, this is, you know, I'm out of here after that. And it, it, the thing is, it's like this in every, every show that everyone's ever done. It's, you know, when you're done, you're like, that's it, bye, you're done. End up. 
but it was it was different for this because you're like I, I you know you, because of that bond you didn't want it I didn't want it it was, it was awful it was it was fucking traumatic I remember sitting at home thinking you know oh god and then there was um the last scene I shot was just in the aid station after Ed's hit and just lying there and you know you're thinking oh maybe <laughs> and it's not even like oh, maybe, maybe they'll write in another scene for me no <laughs> Ed, was, you know, Ed, was, Ed was out of there you know he got blown up he was gone um and it just yeah it, it was it was absolutely terrible and i'm sure all the diehard fans know that at the time shane taylor was sleeping on my sofa uh, while we were shooting the series and so he'd go out and come back oh it's great we did this and i'd be sitting at home there just, you know, a bit like lockdown you know in a pair of you know a pair of boxer shorts eating cereal all day long watching daytime tv you know thinking you know i should be there and yeah it was it was awful it really was it was probably traumatic yeah, three three is harsh, isn't it? It's just yeah, long yeah. enough to get you into the groove and friends with everybody, and then like kicking you out the door. But we shot we shot one, and then we shot three, and then we shot okay. two as well. So it was like she like for me it was bang, I was in the groove, and then straight away out. Oh wow! And it was um, uh, yeah, and I did I think I did one day on the on two the jump at the beginning, and that, and that was it. It was, but we shot that. It was overlapping. So I remember the last, the last thing I definitely shot, the last thing I shot was definitely the last scene, uh, my last day on set was the, 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 the aid station thing. Although I did get called back to train some of the replacement uh, essays that came in. So they sort of got me in. I can't remember who I did it with someone else. I can't remember who was. I want to say Matt Leach. I can't remember. And we sort of just got called in and said, you guys fancy training some of the guys some of the new essays really so i sort of implemented yeah so we implemented some of the stuff we'd learned at boot camp and wow. we trained about 20 essays one day yes ross you want to add something the one thing that i remember about bart was it, because he was the first to call man to leave the show that was the first time for for me and i'm sure some of the other boys were one of our guys was going and it was like it was too early for us even, you know, and it was like, what do you mean he's got, I mean, we, we knew what yeah. was going to happen to Tipper, you know, we'd all read the book, we knew the scripts, but I mean, I, I remember the day, you know, we, we, we did the, the, the big blow up scene and the fact that we were losing one of our Tacoa men was like a real, a real slog for all of us, you know, because mm. it sucked. We're like, this is going to happen throughout the show. Throughout the show, we're going to lose our buddies, yeah. you know, um, nowhere near as, dramatic as, as the real events but yeah uh, but still some kind of semblance yeah. of loss isn't it do you so, keep coming out with us but like of a weekend and yeah, yeah 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 because again and, shane was shane was living yeah. living on my sofa so you know the weekends i'd always but they couldn't not invite you then could they <laughs> that'd, just be, that'd be fucking shitty yeah. it? <laughs> it was almost the thing is it was almost worse it was like you know and they'd be, oh, and they'd be talking about shit that happened on set and i'd be like felt left out no, well, we were talking to Jamie Bamber last night about getting killed off in Hornblower and he said that um, it just isn't the done thing to go and hang around like a loser on set after you've been killed off either. Oh, really? Oh, I would have done it if okay. it was near it. That's why they're sticking me in here. He wasn't on boot camp. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I didn't, I didn't go back to the set. I, don't, yeah. I, I never went back to the set. No, that, that would have been... You that would, just, been you like, would just meet us... Yeah, you would just meet us at the weekend. That was it. Yeah, I'd, I'd come out on Friday and Saturday night and stuff. Speaking of social life, you lot tore up London at the weekends, didn't you? Dexter Fletcher. They lived in the UK for over a year, these guys. They all moved up lock, stock and barrel to the... You know, they all had their apartments dotted around all over town. They... Mm. 
Oh, they brought their families and everybody came, didn't they? I mean, it was there was it was a big undertaking for the for the for the Yanks. They they yeah they sort of you know closed up home and moved over. They all had flats, different apartments around the city. Yeah. Yeah, Frank yeah. John Hughes in Gloucester Road or something. I, d- I don't know where you guys were. I don't remember. Scotty, you you didn't have a kid at that time yet, right? Scott? My daughter, my daughter turned spate. You were at my daughter's first birthday. I was okay. the day after we got out of boot camp. Wow. Okay. Because wow. I know Cutledge and and obviously Hughes had kids. Uh, yeah. And they had that. They had them out there. I mean, I you know. We'd yeah. be out running a muck and drinking all night, and those guys like, "No, nah, I gotta head back at the kids." And we we're like, "What?" Yeah, <laughs> you know, there were definitely two factions having very different experiences because <laughs> the majority of the single guys lived on on Martian Street, you know, in the, in that. Right. Um, I don't remember the name of the building. What was the building, Jimmy? What, 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 I don't know. It was a great spot, though. I loved it. What about downtown on set? Football out in the field. Like there was a field of really long grass, and there was like a football field. It was a VCR too, right? Do you remember that story of Donnie Wahlberg? What? No. Oh yeah, I, I, what was he? <laughs> one of the one of the special ability extras brought in a tape of the New Kids on the Block in concert and put it on on that VCR. <laughs> I don't Donnie, that. Donnie ejected it, smashed it on the ground. <laughs> <laughs> I remember. I just remember the, the the Brits all playing football. And then there was some there was some little basketball action going on as well. And there was watching watching Rick Warden try to dribble was a great source <laughs> of music. He's an excellent basketball player and he oh acquitted himself beautifully. It he was he was sailed through the air like Jordan. He was amazing. <laughs> it was almost as fun as watching all the bridge have to learn to play baseball for episode nine. I mean oh, oh. had to throw out he, they made Martin the picture, the the picture. Oh God, that was just the guys were so nervous. Like so you guys bad. walking around with like your gloves and your ball, you wanted to practice and practice yeah. and practice. And that's I remember it so. even to this day when I watch it, I'm like I'm <laughs> like trying to throw a, 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 a tub of jello or something. It's like I don't know what the fuck I'm doing. <laughs> I, I, I have uh, you know, I have three boys and my youngest is eight, and so he's learning basketball and that's a that's a recurring chant at the house is no matter Dribbles with two hands, picks up and runs with it. I say, well, you're still better than Rick Warden. That's, that's like for me. <laughs> I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. <laughs> Rick, have you got any comeback for this? You know, the truth is I can remember the Americans playing ball, whether it was they, 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 they either, I mean, when we were in battle, In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder Podcast. 
The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. A stone like a few years ago, Jimmy. I remember you and, and Rick Gomez fucking shotgunning that flipping American football around yeah. in Foy when we were supposed to be being sensible. The Americans, for some reason, just were handier sport-wise. Maybe it's because the sports that we were mucking around with were American. Um, who had the you hand, the handball the handball bouncing mm. off the wall hit me in the yeah. hit me in the bollocks one day I did really hard that hurt a lot yeah you know <laughs> as, as I'm getting older man I'm hearing a lot of stories about me doing it I I was a little prick wasn't I no <laughs> <laughs> oh, no no you, you, <laughs> don't think you did it deliberately that would have been an impressive shot I think it was an accident at least I hope it was a fucking oh, accident so. <laughs> the, the way Jimmy sort of said oops made you think it was an accident. <laughs> <laughs> Back to the filming, um, you actually got quite a lot of leeway, isn't that right, Peter? It's one of the rare occasions where if lines didn't specifically work, Damien would kind of switch it to make it fit better. You know what I mean? There was like a bit more, a bit more loose, like, okay, that doesn't quite work. Uh, why don't we say this? You know what I mean? Where the normally writers don't have the last say on what you say and how it goes. But on this, because we were sort of deep in, the situation uh, as we actively kept moving then you know if the line didn't work which we were allowed to kind of come up with something that sort of kept the energy going so a lot of the, the scenes really work because of the actors who were involved and their relationships that all been worked out and the energy like the connectivity the magnetism between everyone that's actually what's sizzling the scenes and moving it forward nolan hemmings is with us he played sergeant grant i know paul has a question for you were you were you a bit annoyed that Chuck Grant's story wasn't told in the end of episode ten? Because I mean, he had an amazing story. I mean, he 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 was a he, he was paralyzed. He had his own business. He was the five hundred sixth representative at the hundred first Airborne Association. Would you have liked yeah. to have seen his story told at the end? I mean, I would have liked his story to be told a lot more throughout. But you just can't tell everyone's story to that much detail. You spread it. You spread it. You spread everyone out too thin. I think the focus of the producer, the way it was written, was to focus on these key characters and to flesh out as much as they could the other ones that weren't really part of the main narrative of the story. And I was amazed how many people they did cover. I mean, you really got a sense of a lot of the of the Easy Company men from the series. Uh, they did get a lot of time, each of them, but it's just not long enough to, to flesh everyone out efficiently. And I think that Chuck could have got a bit more of a story told, being that he was a very well-loved member of Easy Company and also a staff sergeant and went from the very beginning of D-Day right to the end of the war, pretty much unscathed. So, you know, it, I mean, he got to the end and then, it was, and then he got shot in the head, which is the irony of it, you know, it's sort of terrible for him, but, but, but survived that. I mean, that's a pretty amazing story in itself. Um, so I think that, I think possibly what was missed for him was a little bit more of how much he was a part of the Easy Company, you know, the, long, the longer term Easy Company men who went from D-Day to the end. Um, and they did show obviously him being shot in the head. I, I don't know, I don't know if, if the audience really connected with him enough for that to, to really hit home as much as it could have possibly in the story. Um, but, but again, I was never, I wouldn't have, I was, didn't feel at all at the end of it when, when it was all 
uh, you know, when they were doing those parts in episode 10 that he didn't get a, a say because it's just, you've got too many guys to cover. You can't cover everyone. Michael, tell us about the scene with the Dutch farmer. Yeah, that was, um, nobody spoke English. I don't know if anybody, like you guys, actually you, nobody else was there. So nobody else knows. <laughs> <laughs> All you motherfuckers were out doing the photo shoot. <laughs> I feel your pain, Michael. I feel your pain. <laughs> the, uh, uh, the the gentleman who, and I wish I, I wish I remembered his name. Uh, the, the he played the farm owner. He's he's some huge Dutch actor. Uh, somebody out there might know, or if they're able to look it up quickly. He's uh, he. You know, a couple of people walked up and they're like, "Oh my God, you know who you're working with?" And I was like, "No." And they said, "He's he's an, like an incredible, uh, incredibly respected." Dutch actor uh, uh, done a tremendous amount of theater um, in uh, in Holland and the Netherlands, and uh, he he was just amazing. And the idea or the fact that he couldn't speak any English literally made that scene completely come alive because uh, I was trying to communicate with him, and he was trying to communicate with me without speaking the language. Um, and it literally, you know, David Nutter, God bless him, just shot it. You know, mm -hmm. we, mm -hmm. that was possibly one of the easiest scenes to shoot because uh, we were just playing the circumstances as they were happening in real time with somebody who did not speak my language and I didn't speak their language. Um, Jack Wouters. Jack Wouters. Yeah, Jack Wouters. Yeah, I looked. I think you're. Yeah, I think you're pronouncing the name. Wouters. Yes. Yeah, man. His his uh, awards and nominations section is quite. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> got a lot of best actors. Yeah, it was terrific, and he was like a, a mountain. I mean, the guy, I, I, you know, for me, I'm six two, and I remember standing up, and I'm like, you know, looking up at the guy. There's not, there's not too many people I physically have to tilt my head up to look up to, and and he was one of them, and he's about as wide as he was tall, mm -hmm. um, and possibly one of the most gentle souls you'd ever want to meet. It was, it was really wonderful working with both of them. Do you remember on the dike? in episode five, I when the Germans come were coming there. over the hill. Yeah. That yeah. to me was one of the most sort of surreal things to shoot because you'd actually be tracking a German that you were gonna fire at. Cause they were like, you know, pick a target and fire. And then you'd fire and then the fucking guy would drop. Yeah. 300 yards away. And you're just like, holy shit, I just killed somebody. Like, I, for me, it was it was a really really bizarre feeling to just you know keep reloading and finding people and shooting out in the distance and then seeing them you know in in the same frame in the same shot and, and continuously continuously coming over the hill to see them just dropping in the distance. To me, that was I, probably the closest I'll ever get to that type of situation. Knock on wood, dear God, I hope so. Um, but it was it was it was very real in a weird way did anyone else sort of feel that that was there mm. am i crazy i mean yeah i'm no. crazy i, I, I got that in my stone michael absolutely man Where, on the on the machine gun when i took over from Smokey, and you saw the they, they just dropped you put you yeah. pull the trigger and they dropped it was yeah, yeah, yeah. and it's like what no was it you in boot camp when I, I i shot next to you and you screamed at me for like shooting in your ear and no that wasn't doing, that was, who was that tommy was that Tommy? I think it was, yeah. Well, it wouldn't have been me. I never mind. Well, it was, okay, okay. <laughs> it's the funniest <laughs> thing. Because here we are in battle, and the guy's like, excuse me, that was in my ear. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think it's going to be? 
Nolan, you're a bit of a thrill seeker. You must have loved it. Yeah, I had a, I had a couple of, I had a couple of moments that that you know I saw where it was like, oh, that was a bit close. But of course, you just get on with it because you don't focus on what that that moment is. It's not the moment that's happening. So you're just like. You know, unless they stop filming right there, you just keep going. You're just like, oh, and then you carry on. Isn't, uh, I mean, that's a little, that's a little tiny uh, facsimile of what it must have been like a bit, right? I know it's nothing really like it, but you survive and you carry on with the next moment. Uh, I, I mean, yeah. Really, yeah. I can put myself to what maybe people went through in those situations were those chaotic fake battles, which weren't dangerous, but they were unpredictable and they were um noisy one of the most unpredictable things was what other people were going to do um yeah, I think well, I was going to die or get injured seriously wounded i may yeah, be projecting yeah. here and and saying that this is how you should have felt but i that i definitely felt that the funny thing was you know there's obviously always somebody who they're they're focusing on key characters in any one of the episodes and those key those key characters are ultimately you know, there's a narrative going through that particular episode, which really, you know, some people have more have more of a focus than others. And what I did notice, which I think I noticed also the, the, the absolute converse with other actors, was was that I didn't even know where the camera was and didn't really care. I was like, I'm doing this, I'm going that way, that's our objective, this is what we're up to. And then, you know, and I do remember during filming the difference between those of us who were very much in the moment and just living that scene and doing it properly pro- properly and those who were showboating and being really close to the camera and i'm not talking about scenes where the camera's focused on them that's different it's when we're all just doing a wide or there's some and there's maybe one and you can tell you can tell that there's some, some of the actors were a little bit more like slowing down to make sure that the camera is on them and, and i guess that's <laughs> the thing of being an actor you know is that you are supposed to be on camera because if you don't get seen it's not really happening and I think for me, and I didn't have a huge amount in the show, and I guess I just sort of, I just, so I was kind of very much just doing everything in that way, you know, and, and never, I didn't really ever really know where the camera was. Um, uh, so yeah, that was kind of an interesting side of it. It was, the experience for me was much more than, than, than I think is, show, is, is seen in, in the actual show. You know, I was there all the time, from the very beginning to the very end. I was there pretty much everywhere. See when you can find me. You know, I did nine months of filming. It's, there's a, few, a handful of moments where Chuck Grant is really... Similar, similar for me. Yeah, but I mean, but for me, the experience was just extraordinary and I loved it. And, I, and looking at it now or even just afterwards and being like, well, I'm hardly in it, that really didn't make any difference to me whatsoever. Peter O'Meara, who played Lieutenant Dyke, what do you remember about filming? We prepped to run into the town of Foy. There was a lot of anxious tension preparation we didn't really know what was going to happen they were wiring everything to explode and i remember just my walking through you know just rehearsing in my head what was you know what the moves would be and then they when we were ready to go everything went hot and it just became i can't even describe it it's it's well it's the closest to combat i should ever hope to be near i mean it was electrifying there was just things exploding everywhere firing this machine gun there was just noise fire and we just ran. We just ran around. We think we did it two or three times. And every time we did it, it was it was incredible. So just that energy, that surge, that everything that you rehearsed kind of goes out the window because now you, your actions are quite natural. So just to make it to the haystack, just to give the command, just to think and to ex- avoid the exploding uh, device and all of that, 
we're running on raw energy, and that's what's captured in the in the scene. And Rick and I, you know, stumbling, and and halfway through, on the way down, we get to the haystack, and then everybody falls in, and, um, and George Khalil is there, and the, and the whole weapons platoon. We get we get hunkered down, and uh, every time we shot it, it was just electrified. I got I got to say one thing to Maddie really quick, dude. Uh, I, you know, it's it's twenty years ago, whatever whatever it was. I guess it's twenty years, right, guys? Is it yeah, it's twenty now. Yeah. So 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 twenty years ago, and so you can reflect over twenty years and go, there's uh there's uh there are some pretty important things that happen to you, um, j- just on set. Whereas an actor, you go, oh fuck, that was amazing. I just learned sixteen things in four seconds, and and I think I was around something that's gonna touch people or or be a part of uh, the iconography of our lives for a while. And it doesn't happen a ton, but you do have them. You have moments of like, oh shit, that was really good. Somebody just brought God into the room or whatever the fuck that is. I don't even know what it is. The, the, uh, the untangible it, right? And we were doing, I was with Donnie when, when Spears comes back to relieve, uh, uh, to, to relieve uh, Dyke. And, um, and when Spears comes into that shot, sitting there in that moment with Donnie and, and sort of th- that scene going on. And I can't, I'm, I'm trying to think who else is in that scene with us by the hay bale, by the, by the old, you know, in seven, uh, I, I mean, it might've yeah. been just me, Donnie and Dyke. Right. Anyway, Maddie, you come running through the woods and there, there, there's a, bu- you know, a bunch of shells go off and, and you come through the smoke of this thing. And I remember Donnie and I looking at the end of that and just like, we were nine years old. Donnie and I were nine <laughs> years old. And we looked at each other and we just went like, holy shit, we saw that for real. We were there when that just happened. And then I remember watching the show and then watching the shot and go, nobody could get it. Mm. You had to be there for real. Like it fucking happened. And I mm. remember feeling like this little kid in this moment. And so the magic of whatever work everybody put into that to get to that space and the magic of where Tom and Stephen were and the whole, I think that was, I think that was, um, who directed that one? It was David Frankel maybe, right? David right? Frankel, David Frankel. Yeah. So, so, so uh, what David was doing, what everybody was doing, all the work that everybody was doing, to be a part of that and have these little shots that you can look back on and go, oh my God, I lived through that moment. I lived through a moment that was a different angle on what everybody else sees. But Maddie, I remember thinking of you in that moment that it was one of those proud, really deeply proud moments to be an actor because Mm -hmm. surrendering to that moment was just fucking fearless, man. And I I remember you coming to us and me going like, Holy shit! And you kind of gave us this smile, like I'm here. You do that. You do that. You do that. No one's dead. Let's go. And it was, uh, it was in the moment. It was just like holy shit. Like it was. It was. It's beyond words. I remember when we shot it. The incredible. You know, through the smoke, <laughs> Spears comes. It is straight out of a Hollywood movie. And mm. I, I vividly remember the moment because it was like, wow, exactly what Rick was saying. Like. Oh my God! It just looks incredible. It felt incredible, and it, if you when you look at the show, it's still what a highlight. Uh, and to get to be the guy coming through the smoke to the rescue is is pretty great. I think for for Matt. Um, so I mean, just me, the performer, there as we shouted, it was an electric. Well, cer- certainly one of the talisman aspects of acting is you you, you can pick up a you can pick up something that's imbued with so much meaning and you don't even know until you pick it up or you can see something happen like that. Or you can, you can, you can have a window. It's almost like there's so many portals 
it's, it's like you're you're uh, you're shooting a film, but you're outside of time, in a way. And mm-hmm. and what Rick was just was that Rick just talking? That was Rick yeah, I was yeah. Together. Yeah, you got an amazing voice, Rick. Um, anyway, after <laughs> <laughs> uh, do you know what you're, that moment that Rick's just described so brilliantly, and, and it was the most mind blowing thing I've ever seen. And this is my fangirl moment. Alina's going to get hers later, but yeah, I completely fell in love with you in that scene. I was mind blown. Russ McCall, who played Leave Got, go ahead. Definitely one of the most iconic scenes in the in the yeah. You know, when everybody talks about favorite episodes, and there's probably two that people really always mention, and mine by far is episode seven. And I think I'm in it for a heartbeat. I mean, I'm not even there, but when I watch it now, 20 years on, I mean, there's just it, throughout that episode there was iconic moments, and most of them are Maddie and, and Spears and and. Yeah. I mean, you know, mm. even when Lipton's watching Spears and he's like, and then he came right back, that voiceover, yeah. he just ran and came. I mean, it's just, that's the moment for the show. It was really you know, big icon. Yeah. Yeah, I guess I have a natural aloofness, just the way my brain works. That, <laughs> you know, uh, I remember Rick Gomez and, uh, you know, other people would just so, hey, 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 Spears, where are you? What are you thinking about? What are you, what, what are you, what are you doing? You okay? You all right? Yeah. You know, um, because I'm off, uh, you know, feeling something intrinsically so i guess that lended itself to playing the character i'm sure you got you you all had moments like that where you just kind of zone out uh, in the middle of shooting and uh you you feel like you're lost in t- in time so to speak yeah mm. you're not mm. yeah do you get him he's a complex man people why people do what they do in a given moment uh is anybody's guess let's say spears knew after a couple of payphone calls with his wife back in England that uh, things weren't going well. Who knows? I don't, I don't know. I mean, uh, maybe, he, maybe he felt suicidal. Maybe he was like, uh, you know, yeah. he, he, didn't care, he didn't care what happened. Maybe he's like, I feel terrible. Let me do it. You know, who, who, who knows what plays in the hearts of men at a given moment? I mean, honestly, my, my belief now is that everybody's God doing business as everybody. You know, and we're all here having these experiences. We're all kind of God in a collective creating this tapestry of what is consciousness, you know. So why do we do what we do? I don't know. Why why did Spears run across Foy? There's a lot of circumstances. As actors, we try to produce as much as that as we can in the background before we get to the stasis of the scene. We try to we try to create the backstories that will make us believable for an audience and suspend that disbelief belief and rooted in something that's got a vibrational frequency of truth for us because we we wrote that letter to ourselves or whatever whatever you did to make it real for you so that it's believable for an audience you know um Mm. so i I know that i went to foy and i looked for a place where spears might have made that run Mm. and it was a the only place i could find is it was a lot further than it was in on the day you know, when we shot it, it was a couple of uh, cornfields, you know, when in the town of Foy, it was it was like a marathon. You know, it's like so it, w- it wouldn't have been as dramatic in real life from what I saw. Now, now maybe everything had changed. I don't know. But I actually went to the town of Foy. I saw the depressions in the forest. It's probably pretty crazy to be walking around there because there were, they say there was still shells that were unexploded and all of that stuff. But I had to see. So. Um, who knows? I mean, and I think it, a lot of it, you know, people get thrown on the characters got thrown under the bus for dramatic effect. Um, yeah. 
And That's so the, the actors that portrayed him, um, at least in, in, in regards for that, I've had that happen to me. I've had, I've been cut out of films that I got. I was so excited. I got a film and I'm, I'm on the editing floor. Not, it could be my performance. Maybe uh, you just keep moving forward. You know, I, if I thought about it, um, I wouldn't be thinking about the things I should be thinking about. So, um, yeah, it's a, it, it, when it's something so epic, yeah, you're going to have regret that that character got thrown under the bus, but we all do our part to serve the overarching theme, which is to honor the men that actually did this, that fought such a great evil in the world. Um, yeah. And hopefully we'll get to the one, to the day where, where we don't have to make war movies anymore, ever again. Peter, we've mentioned you played Lieutenant Dyke. Um, and to make Spears look that good, your character had to suffer, right? But from the writer's point of view, I think it's, it's sort of difficult. You know, um, like, look, all of us would wish that our characters had been discussed or, you know, discovered or, you know, what do I say? And, you know, that there was more. Yeah. There was more for Smokey Gordon. There was more for Lieutenant Dyke. There was more for... Uh, but in the end, you only have... You have to tell it from somebody's point of view, and it's really Winter's, right? What do you make of what happened, Peter? Look, I'm going to just read something from the book because as I prepped to talk to you today, I just took out the book. I haven't read it in a while. Mm -hmm. But here's a quote uh, from The Breaking Point, which is, there's no such thing as getting used to combat. The army psychiatrist stated in an official report on combat exhaustion. Each moment of combat imposes a strain so great that men will break down in direct relation to the intensity and duration of their exposure. Psychiatric casualties are as inevitable as gunshot and shrapnel wounds. The general consensus was that a man reached his peak of effectiveness in the first 90 days of combat, that after that his efficiency began to fall off, that he became steadily less valuable thereafter until he was completely useless. So, you know, it's in the book, it's in Stephen Ramos's book, it's all there. It's the pressures that I folded under. Um, are not unique to him. It's happened to other people. And in fact, when I was in Normandy last year, I got to spend some time with some great people from the 82nd Airborne. And one of them finally said to me, you know, what your character does, I've had that actually happen. I had a, he was a sergeant. He said, I had a commanding officer who, during an exercise drill, like they were used, it was a live fire drill, froze, just totally froze. And somebody else had to come and take over. And, and, you know, he got back eventually, but uh, it, it's not unusual. It does. In the kind of epic nature of Band of Brothers, I suppose Dyke gets blamed or carries the weight of this, you know, it's, it's much heavier right? because in, in the storytelling, the mistakes that other people made or the faults that other people had are not portrayed, right? Yeah. So, the, and I think what gets lost, I would say, although I understand that there's not much time when you're making a drama, What's get, what gets lost is the humanity. So what we did film was we filmed Dyke leaving. There was a voiceover about Lieutenant Dyke leaving. <clears throat> there was a voiceover about his promotion afterwards. Uh, I think essentially he's not a bad person. You know, he's not. He's not a traitor. He's not right. I think you've you've summed it up. I, I think perfectly and eloquently because apparently you have said that rightly or wrongly he has been judged forever by the worst day of his life exactly that's it um woody that's it. Yeah. just to bring in um you you said that um 
he had two bronze stars, one of them just a few days earlier, and that's not shown. And the fact that he's wounded is not shown either. So, so what has been dropped of Dyke um, to make the story that we admittedly all love so much in Band of Brothers, um, but, but at what expense for Lieutenant Dyke? Well, I, I called um, Reg Jans, who's the best Baston guide, to check my facts out this afternoon. And um, it, 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 Dyke is a casualty, no pun intended, of, of bad timing. I mean, he, he had done Normandy, he'd done Market Garden, he earned a first bronze star in Uden in Holland for coordinating a patrol under fire in, in an incident that actually sounds remarkably similar to the Foy action. And then on January the 3rd, which is the same day while Bill Garnier and Joe Toy lose their legs, Dyke is, is decorated with a bronze star, a second one, for pulling three men out under small arms fire, which was a patrol across the road towards Noville. And, and by the time the attack comes in on Foy, he's been, as, as Peter so you know, wonderfully said, he'd been on the line since Normandy. Um, and... He was definitely wounded in that attack near the haystack. Clancy Lyle of Third Platoon, who's not portrayed in the show, said that you know, he saw, saw the, the hit go into, uh, into Dyke's shoulders. So he's physically wounded. And um, yeah, and within a few days of it, he loses command of the company, although only in a promotional way. He gets, the, he gets promoted up to regiment and ends, ends up becoming General Maxwell Taylor's aide-de-camp. So he, he had a good career, but it's just that in the process of the show, there's no backstory you know peter comes into the show there's no you know peter as he said there, there's a narration at the end of saying he went on elsewhere but when he, he joins the company there's no narration saying and dyke was a veteran of normandy and holland he's brought in with the audience understanding he's a he's a novice when he isn't so and and we think it's because they just didn't research him properly because they believe there were no dyke family members alive and they kind of went by the testimonies of people like um, Lipton and Garnier, who, who, who didn't like Dyke for whatever reason, and mainly because it's timing. As I said, he comes in, they've lost Winters to, to the battalion, they've lost Heiliger, and everybody's on uh, you know, short tempers, everybody's knackered and exhausted and fed up, and he comes in, and you know, he could have come in and given them all $100 each personally, they still wouldn't have liked it. You know, he's joining a team when they've been, they've been playing together as a team for so many weeks and months, and here comes the new kid. And it's very He's hard. on a complete hiding to nothing, isn't he? Exactly. You know, it's it's like it's like, you know, you're you know you're a football girl, Alex. It's like a player coming in to Chelsea from Tottenham. You know, you're hated at the beginning. It doesn't matter how good you are, you're coming in with baggage. I'm not, you know, comparing World War Two to football, but Dyke is just a casualty of he comes in at the wrong time. Peter, so Dyke died in 1989. So they, did they believe that there were no family? Have any family come forward since the programme? Or is it still that we don't know anything about his descendant? I remember Scotty, uh, you know, some of the guys would be talking with their real counterparts. And thought, wow, that's amazing, you know, that you have Phil Garnier on the other end of the phone and you can talk to him. But there was certainly no line of communication for me. You know, I think about that. I think about his, his family and what they must feel about the betrayal. I don't think it's entirely fair. Um, but they're just, you know, they're telling a story. And as Woody rightly says, it is a bit slanted as to who whose opinion you're, you know, that's not just died, but obviously so this, you know. So, I mean, the blessing, even though, yes, I play the guy that nobody likes and all that stuff, uh, is it's one of the more memorable, for, for, for better or worse, is the memorable moment uh, in the story. And I'm, I'm grateful for it. I miss that people think that Dyke died. That's the general. People are like, oh, you, then you died behind the haystack. And like, he didn't die. 
that's mm-hmm. like that's some editing and i think also the labeling of a coward is just not very helpful i think in this day and age you know what i mean if you really want to talk about people and humanity and understanding because that's that's where we're going right that's as we mature that's where we want to be we want to have a broader understanding of, of the real toll of combat he, he didn't run away he just under the pressure of the moment didn't know what to do you know that's very human and i know i mean okay Paulie, how do you portray that like how do you does everyone go oh poor dyke no uh, obviously that's the, the mission is the mission and i think as willie has said he got, he's a, just a victim of circumstance he was not the right guy for that particular job on the day it happens you know and maybe if he'd have been the feature of episode seven, um, then it would have been portrayed very differently. I mean, it is art, isn't it? It's exactly, exactly like um, Mark Warren's character. Like that has a much more sort of human touch to it, doesn't it? And he had his story arc, didn't he? The Bl- Blythe had his redemption, didn't he? But Blythe had a visible on-screen redemption of, of, of volunteering for a patrol. Whereas Dykes, not that Dyke needed a redemption, but anything that happened to Dyke was off screen. So there was no, there was no um, conclusion to it. Um, so so Blythe, a similar, similar story, but Blythe has, a, yeah, has that denouement to it, which is um, yeah, the difference, I think. When you meet, you're meeting people and designing, I've had one or two women, you know, they just, they automatically think that you're that guy. They go, oh my God, you're horrified to see Lieutenant Dyke. <laughs> and I'm laughing because, I mean, how well else am I supposed to do? Look, I wasn't there. I'm sorry. It's, you know, but that's the story you carry. You hear that, you know, that people just see you through, through, through the, they don't see the actor. They just see what they see, don't they? To me, though, they're not the ones who matter. Um, it's nice that they show up, but if they don't comprehend it, um, the people who matter did. Tell us about Dick Winters. Me, meeting Winters and him giving me his nod of approval and saying, you did a great job. That's, and in that moment, I will treasure for the rest of my life. It was incredibly moving. Did that mean more because of the way that you had to portray Dyke as well, to have that from someone who knew him? Absolutely. I felt incredibly, I mean, I was in awe, obviously, in Mira and meeting Winters. I feel incredibly guilty and sort of feeling shy. I shouldn't say anything. Like, I'm the guy who carries the story of the guy who hurt the company, right? Uh-huh. Well, these are the real veterans. They welcomed me. And that was something, you know. Um, let's talk again a bit more generally about filming. How real did it all feel, Ben Kaplan, who played Smokey Gordon? Um, I mean, it was very real and it was quite a dangerous place to be. You know, obviously they walked us through where, where explosions were going to be and made sure that, you know, people did get injured. Um, but, it, but for me, I, I, I sort of just loved the, the enormity of it because it just made me think, well, actually, I don't need to worry too much about imagining what this must have been like. I'm just, I'm, I'm kind of living it. Mm. And I've always, I've said this before to people I've, I've, I've spoken to about Band of Brothers. It was the best history lesson for me as a human being about, you know, the realities of war, um, in reading the material, in being on those sets and, and actually reliving the experiences of that many people running around, there were tanks and, you know, mortar, mortar uh, explosions going off. And it was, it, was a, it was a very, very scary and very intense experience. But it meant that you were just, you were giving an experience of what it must be like for, for anybody to go through that situation. And, and again, I think that's shown in the performances that, you know, you just, you just feel like those guys are really going through what they went through. And, um, and that authenticity and that detail just helped our job as actors. 
Philip Barantini, you played Skinny Sisk. When the, whenever there was explosions or, or gunfire, that was all, you know, <clears throat> nowadays when you, when you have like a, a, a gun on set and, you, and it's fired, usually you can either fire blank still, but the, 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 usually they, they don't use blanks. They just use a, it's, it's like a, I don't know what it is, but it, it's like an air pistol sort of thing. It doesn't really make a sound. And then they put the sound effect in later. Uh-huh. But with, with the weapons that we had, the, the M1 rifles, they were real, uh, they were discontinued actual World War, One, uh, World War II M1 rifles that we were using. So they made the noise, the exact sound, you know, the only thing that was, that was different was that the sort of kickback on, on the gun didn't happen. So you had to fake that, but the rest of it was completely real. I mean, explosions and, and, and everything that's going on around you, you know, it, it's, it's so high and the adrenaline is so high that, you know, you've got a, a set piece to do where you have to run from, from one end of the street to the other or to, for, to you know, to, to go in a building and take a building out and, and, and do that kind of thing. And, you know, you rehearse it, rehearse it, rehearse it. And when it comes to, to actually filming it, it's like literally like you're about to go to war. You're like, the energy is so high. Um, so it felt completely real. Like, you know, obviously, you know, you're not in too much danger because of the health and safety aspect, but anything could go wrong. Yes, Renee Moreno, who played Joseph Ramirez. We felt safe with everybody in charge. Yeah. However, we knew that we could hurt ourselves really easily if we didn't pay attention. Mm. You know, we had to listen yeah. and we had to make sure we followed our marks, especially when we knew where the uh, mortars were. And then they said, okay, we're going to shoot the scene in five, four. And they took out the markers and we're like, holy shit. Where are the mortars? <laughs> Holy crap. And we're running through this field and things are going off. On, you know, awesome. but we had to really pay attention. Yeah. Tim Matthews, who played Alex Mancala. I, I don't know how anyone, how anyone else feels about this, but I remember the very first time there was any kind of firefight at boot camp. At, and I think maybe it was that one, we'd done a night maneuver. We'd, we'd been, um, We'd marched throughout the night. We didn't know where we were going, how long it was going to take. Thursday nobody, night. nobody knew where we were going. <laughs> nobody knew. What a big firefight. <laughs> In the pitch dark, um, I nearly pissed my pants. I'm not exaggerating. There was a very genuine feeling of, of terror that I had. It was really primal, and it wasn't, you know, I could rationalise it away, and I knew that there were blanks, and I knew that I was in no danger, but fuck me. Put yeah, but how near were you to Matt Settle, man? we'd all been trained not to put anyone's faces and everyone forgot that because i swear to god i I nearly lost an eye and an an eardrum and god knows what else but yeah that's that's frightening i really do need to say that episode nine has had a huge (laughs) huge effect on my life it's why i've become a concentration camp historian um it's really moved me, but what I saw, I just, I didn't want that to happen to other people for it to be forgotten. And Ross in particular, your performance was so influential. Um, I need to know, how did you prepare for the scenes at the camp? Good question. Mm. Uh, so we knew episode nine was coming. <clears throat> and we knew what it was going to entail. Uh, and I think most of the boys will, will say this in certain episodes where they had more to do with. So certainly like eight, nine and 10 were pretty heavy for leave up. Um, and so I knew that they were coming up and I, I knew what nine was going to be about. And we didn't really get a script 
that early in advance. But if you were heavily involved in a particular episode, some, at some point would take you to one side and sneak something or talk to you about something. So I knew it was coming up. I also knew it was going to be really German heavy. Um, and I don't speak German. Uh, and, uh, and so I knew that I had this big, uh, uh, you know, various speeches in German that I had to learn with the dialect that going to translate. Um, and then there were discussions about whether or not I should go to one of the camps beforehand, like, the, you know, on a weekend to, to go and, and have a look at Krakow or uh, Landsberg. There was only one left at a seven. And after a lot of thought, I decided again um, because I wanted to relay how it would have felt for the guy seeing this thing for the first time. He wanted to capture that on camera. So we knew that they were building a set. Uh, it was close by to to base camp, but it was still, you know, in the middle of the woods. But um, we all chose not to see it until the camera started rolling. Uh, and so we knew that they were building it. We knew what was coming. We, I remember I remember reading the script and being really, um, really affected by the script, like everybody was. Um, and... The, the show was a show, but it was a real bond between us all. So there was a lot of laughs. You know, we had a lot of good times. And when nine came around, everybody just, just sat in it a little bit more. Um, because, you know, th these guys didn't know what they were going to walk into. You know, nobody knew about the concentration camps. The higher-ups did, but but the, the grunt soldiers themselves, nobody knew what it what it entailed and if you ever spoke to any of the vets they're all very they kept it in their chest a little they wouldn't really divulge much information so it was all your own research um really to get us to that place and i remember the night before the camp i had learned the german that i needed to learn and i got a phone call from the producers and the translator saying we've got it wrong we've we've given you the wrong dialogue it's not right um, and I was like, we shoot this tomorrow. And they're like, yeah, I know. And this is the correct dialogue. So <clears throat> we learn <clears throat> this whole speech. So as an actor, there's a part of you trying to remember your lines going, I've got to go and do this thing. But also as a human being, you convey what that was going to be like seeing something that nobody had any idea what it was. So it's that great scene with my, uh, you know, with Paul and I think Christian said, and I think uh, Perko was there. I can't remember, there's a few others remembering. They walk out of the woods and they actually see the camp for the first time, but the audience don't see it. And I remember all of us just having that um, uh, reaction when we when we saw this thing. It was incredible. The director was Franco again, so he's the same guy here. So, um, and David had family in the Holocaust, so it was really important to him to get it right. And I remember us all just showing up and seeing this pure devastation. And, and like everything else in the show, they handled it with such authority and such respect, but also just such brilliant detail. So, you know, the smoke that you see, they had a lot of very frail um, folks there being our, being our background actors. Um, they added some body makeup to some of them. Um, they did a little bit of green screen with some of them. Some of them were animatronics. Uh, 
and of course, you know, there was just like an abundance of, of bodies and mass graves. So it was a very, very strange thing to walk in. So, you know, asking how did I get there? It was very easy just by looking at it. You know, seriously, like just by watching what these actors were bringing, um, what the script was bringing, the, the mood on the set was pretty dense. Um, and so to get into that mindset and imagine what it would be like for somebody to come across this for the first time. Now, add on top that Joe was a Jew, and add on top that, you know, he had German family in his blood. I just found this incredible juxtaposition of, of this, you know, American soldier who speaks German, who is Jewish, who's finding out for the first time that his people have been persecuted. And, uh, but that was all in the writing. So seriously, it was about showing up and everybody just was affected by it the way that you see. I know that um, we wanted to send this around the room as well. If any of you, any of the others, um, because Alina wants to know, like, what is what was the feeling? Because if you that I, it's a brave thing to do not to let yourself see it before you started shooting it. But it must have been harrowing. Philip, talk to us about arriving on set. The way we arrived on the set was we were all put onto the onto the uh, trucks and we were driven there. And there was cameras on, on on there was a bunch of cameras, some on the trucks with us and some you know sort of hidden uh, in places that we didn't we I didn't know we nobody knew where they were. And it was our initial first reaction of seeing the, the, the camp that they built. Um, and it was just like, it, I, I can't explain, really. You, you sort of, you, you forget that you're acting and you forget that you're in, a, you're in a movie. And you forget that these people who are playing, you know, the, these, these victims are actors as well. Because they were so realistic and it was so well, well done. You know, the, the emotion was real that, that we felt. Certainly for me, anyway, it was it was heartbreaking, and and you know a lot of us had to sort of once once we cut the cameras, and that was the, you know we knew what we were what we were coming into. Now it was a lot of us had to go away and just sort of uh, process what we just seen, and 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 also you know re- remember that it's it's a film it, we're filming and it's it's not real, but also remember like that that <laughs> the horrific things that did happen for real. You know that was that was definitely weighing heavy on on me. Personally, during that whole um, segment, it was it was it was really tough. Yes, Robin Lang, who played Babe Hefron. It was, yeah. It was really somber. I remember vividly. It was really <coughs> somber um, period because by that time we'd been together for a long time, and not only were we working together all week, we were all going out at the weekends and and you know partying together and eating together, and you know we were. Spending all of our time together, so we were, we were close, and we were having a lot of fun. We were all young, and we, you know, it was really, it was a really happy set, you know, despite the the subject matter. But I remember that period being really quite somber, and res- I guess respectful, you know, because it was, it was a really stark set, and those extras and the animatronics, and um, yeah. You just—it was very respectful and and kind of restrained, and I think a lot of people were quite um, quite kind of reflective and ruminative over that mm. um, over over that you know while we shot those sequences. I think today is the liberation of Koffering, isn't it? It is. I think today is the anniversary of. I think uh, it's the end of April anyway. Yeah, would be um, Koffering. Uh, the one that Easy Company um, helped to liberate. We Easy Company didn't arrive for a couple of days afterwards, but I think today's the day. 
that just occurred to me. The first time that I, went um, to, uh, that I actually went to Landsberg wasn't until probably 18 years later. Hmm. And, uh, and like I said, I think there was seven uh, different camps in Landsberg, uh, only two are surviving. Hmm. Germans got rid of, rid of the others. But I remember going there and just having that really surreal moment of, wow, who really got this correct? Yeah, they depicted it on the screen was like everything else that they did. I mean, you know, in Hollywood, we we you know, tweaks have to be made for entertainment purposes, but also for you know, slots. Um, and uh, but on this show, they were pretty damn good at keeping everything pretty much on key. This is one. Yeah, I remember it very like Ross is describing. Actually, uh, very peculiar because I was in one of the trucks. And just exactly as Ross has said, we'd had the opportunity, we'd turned down the opportunity to see any of the set. So I can't remember how many, it's all a fog of how many days we were actually there for, guys. But I do remember driving along in a truck and thinking, I don't know what we're going to see. I know what we're going to see in a, in a macro, in a macro sense, but actually micro-wise, I don't know what it looks like. And then just pitching up. I just remember it being very quiet there, incredibly quiet. And then, as Ross says, lots and lots of, of extras. And I don't know whether they they must have been primed beforehand to that, or that whole sequence of giving out the food at the gates. And when they came, when the gates were opened, and yeah, it was, it, it, it was, yeah, I think I need to pass from there. Yeah. Someone else. I want, just want to say thank you. Thank you so much because you guys, all of you, had some sort of input into who I am today. So, um, especially Ross with, with, um, with the scenes. Elena, so, you're so sweet, darling. Thank you very much. One of the actors was convinced he could, he could smell. He, he, he remembered there being a smell being pumped through of like, you know, death or something. And the other said, no, 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 that, there was no smell. He convinced himself it was so real yeah, he managed to add a smell to his memory that wasn't there. And yeah, because, you know, because they can't have pumped smell out. That would be ridiculous. No, I mean, I know, I know they have these, um, these, um, they're like gas. Uh, what do you call them? Like, it, it's it's like a, a smoke machine. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's to create like you know atmos atmos uh, in, in the in in the air sort of thing, and. I know that they had a lot of them around. So there was a lot of, there was like smoke going through and stuff like that. But, and then you have a distinctive smell, but certainly don't smell of, you know, of death. Mm. So, so yeah, that, that's, you know, a lot of actors have their own, their own process and their own way that they work. And, you know, th there was a lot of actors on, on Band of Brothers that were, that were fairly method. Um, the method, the method technique is, the method is, is basically you become that character and you, believe 100 percent that you are that person so i can believe that you know that certain people would have that um it would have that effect on them and you would believe that you could smell it this episode perhaps more than any other relies on artistic license and how did the veterans feel scott grimes who played don malarkey no shit this is how this is who don malarkey was as a human being as you know as i expected at least you know when he saw the whole series to maybe a compliment, not that I wanted it, but maybe, you know, he goes, thank you, whatever. The one, the first thing Don Malarkey said to me when he saw the series 
is I was not at that concentration camp and I'm very upset that you were there. And yeah. that's, uh, he wasn't there. And uh, there's one small scene in episode nine of me walking through and with a, you know, with a handkerchief over my uh, mouth and Don Malarkey never said great work. He said, I'm very upset that, cause that's a huge thing for, to, you know, those guys that liberated that camp. And he said, I wasn't there. I had the flu and I felt really bad because it was too late by then. Yes, Jimmy Maggio, who played Frank Ponte. When episode nine came and I first read that script, that was the first time I went, oh my God, you know, after all this time we've been working, Frank's got some stuff in here. This is great. And I'm reading it and I'm reading, I'm just thinking concentration camps, he's running a fine winters, single family, like all this stuff and this replacement will keep. And I called Frank right away and I was like, Frank, here's what's going on. This is what's going on with the uh, <clears throat> with the show. And Frank said the same thing. He was like, uh, you know, no, I didn't find the concentration camps. I was still, you know, I, I didn't single-handedly find them. I didn't run back to HQ. I didn't do any of that. Meanwhile, I've been reporting back to the producers all the time. Like, well, Frank was really crazy about hygiene. And, and, and that's why he did the toothbrush and the hair and the scissors, all that shit. So they were like listening to what I was saying, the production. Same thing with what, you know, Spate said about Muck going back. And, and they would add it in if, 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 it, if it worked. And I remember going back to them. And this is actors kind of, you don't do this. But at the same time, you didn't want to fuck it up so bad. Like you didn't want to swing and miss and be smoking a cigarette. And then your veteran never touched a cigarette in his life. And throughout the series, you have a cigarette in your mouth and he's got to watch this thing and look like, oh man, that sucks. Like this kid is playing me. I never touched him. I was against him. I lost a family member smoking. Anyway, so when I, when I <clears throat> went to, uh, Frankel was doing nine. And I was like, David, I spoke with Frank. Picante. He never ran back to HQ and did all this. And, you know, he never did that. I said, you know, I'm just telling you what it was. I don't know if it's going to change. I don't know what needs to happen, but Frank didn't single-handedly find the concentration camps. And it was just sort of creative license. It's like, hey, man, here's what it is. It's a little too late. It is what it is. And Frank was very easygoing, you know, and he was like, oh, yeah, it is what it is. And he brushed it off. He didn't really, you know, think much about it. You know, Malachi wore a lot on his sleeve, uh, so he, he was verbal about it. Frank was more like, nah, I don't, you know, it is what it is. But, we spoke to John Orloff actually, and he was saying that he just the guys wouldn't talk about it. So that one more than any of them is creative license. He said, "I think it's two paragraphs in the book because they." I don't remember that. I don't want to talk about that. Um, and so he literally had to go from nothing to craft that episode. He was told, "This is your time span, and it has to have the concentration camp in it. Go make it happen." And that was basically oh, he had two paragraphs to work on. Uh, Scott, when you look at the character arcs over the show, Malarkey is possibly the soldier who changes the most from happy-go-lucky at Tokoa to a kind of jaded combat veteran you see at the end. How much of that change was in the script and how much did you bring it as an actor? I got really lucky and here's why. I got really... <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. Oh, I, I got really lucky because one, it was written from the, before I even went to boot camp, I saw this thing, you know, on the page. And then two... The, my episodes that I did that, that Malarkey had to go through, what he went through, came at the fucking time where I personally, Scott Grimes, was hating this and wanted to go home, just like maybe he wanted to go home. And, mm -hmm. and also, you know, when, when he loses, when Muck uh, and, and, and Pinkala, at that they left. Tim and Richard 
weren't there filming for a while. So I was lonely and it all just kind of worked out luckily for me because I mean, I could sit here and tell you, yes, I went and did so much uh, research and get, you know, went into myself and stuff. No, it just luckily. Uh, that was the last episode that was shot though as well, wasn't it? Eight is the one where I think you're talking about. It's eight exactly is really, right. And it must've been, you know, oh, these sorry. guys have been away from home for 10, 11 yeah. months. You know I mean? It's like for us, we all got to go home to our, every night to our own beds and stuff yeah. like that, which is, but it's that, it's, I don't know. I mean, just keen at what you're saying is like, you must have been so right. near, but so far away still. And Yeah. So when I did I think, that, like in episode eight, when I did that shower scene, it's just me in the shower. I was fucking miserable, man. I mean, it was best cold. Best scene in the show, man. Best scene in the show. <laughs> I'll, do it. I'll do it right now, man. <laughs> Stop it. <laughs> Any chance he gets. Yeah. <laughs> oh, so, I don't yeah, know no, if you remember no, this or not, Scott. Scotty, you, you said something to me, and I don't know if you remember or not, but it was when we were watching the episodes kind of line up, mm-hmm. uh, because we shot episode eight last, and I always remember you turning around and saying, man, I sort of wish we had known exactly where the scripts were going to go because there was a difference in our arcs. And it's true, like you and I in 9 and 10 are very different to how we are in 8. You know, because we shot 9, 10, then went back and did 6, 7, 8. And by that time we got to 8, we were like weary and war-torn and all that jazz. And 9 and 10, we were still kind of in, you know, in a different mindset. And that that was always interesting to me to hear that from you because I agreed with you. Episode 10, Scott, um, the location got your seal of approval, didn't it? Making 10 in, uh, in Interlaken, Switzerland was just like a gift. Yeah. That was like, came, came on the train, Scotty. You came on the train. I remember coming again. Perfect, it's a perfect kind of where we were as brothers, having spent all this you know, time together. I fell asleep uh, and missed the plane. And so I got on a train with my buddy, who was just visiting from, uh, from the States, and I took this gorgeous train for hours and hours and I get off an interlock and at like 10 PM at night, I looked, it looked like, I remember it looked like this little, exactly what I would expect this little town to look like. And I get off and I look to my right, I look to my left and I say, okay, I guess I'll go to the left. And I'm going down this, this, this street, exhausted, just trying to get to the hotel. And Ross comes out of this bar. You remember this buddy? You come out of this bar, Scotty, we're in a fight with these dudes. Come on. (laughs) Are you fucking kidding me? But I said, are you kidding me in my head? But then I went, fuck it. I got (laughs) to do it. It never ended up happening. We didn't end up fighting anybody. But I was like, that's, I mean, I'm not a fighter. But now Ross is telling me, help me. We need your help. I'm like, fuck yeah, man. I'm going to help my brother, man. Dale Dye did that, though. As much as you all hated his guts in boot camp. (laughs) That's down to Dale Dye. (laughs) Peter Youngblood Hills, who played Shifty Powers. What's your fondest memory on set? Can I just say that the one thing I remember with with Matthew was uh, uh, he would, I think it was with Ian Bailey, they they were singing this song... Uh, pardon me, boy. Is that the Chattanooga choo choo? That was then Scott. Track 29. We weren't allowed to put it in the show. Well, that was it. And I remember that. I, it was like one of the most beautiful moments, beautiful things. I, and I, I've got this, I've got this, I'm living with a 92 year old woman at this moment. And we're of thinking about a song. <laughs> 
I'm not. It isn't she a cougar? You might need to clarify this, Peter. Uh, Some smarty minds at work. She's my landlady. Okay. My landlady. She is. <laughs> yeah. And it was anyway. It was the song that we were we were singing together last night, and I was thinking I was searching a lot of that stuff, wasn't he? As I remember it, Matt had a load of that old those that were, music glasses. He's a wonderful singer. Tim. I I remember Scott Grimes singing it. That's what I remember. So forgive me, Matthew, if he, uh, if if it was you. But I remember Scott suggesting that he, Richard, and I do it because we were in the Mortar Squad, and we do it like a little barber shop uh, trio, not a quartet, obviously. And uh, we weren't allowed to because uh, racist. When I heard you, that was after boot camp. I think it was after. Yeah, yeah, Matt. You, I remember you having it in Austria, in in Switzerland, Matt, having that well, music I on a loop. You, you, you were, you were, no, it was you were singing it with a with a group. You were doing a barbershop kind of thing. Matt, yes. And Tim, do you, I mean, Tim, you remember uh, Scotty Graham singing it, right? So uh, I remember. You have to get to the bottom of this. So was alcohol involved? <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> I remember Matt you Honestly, singing. it was on set. Scott, Richard, and I were singing it. I remember, I remember that. But Matt, you had a sort of playlist of that stuff, didn't you, during that year? Yeah, I did. I did. I mean, we, we, uh, I, I grew up singing a lot of that that stuff and uh Peter I don't think I don't th I I don't think maybe Bailey wasn't singing it because I don't know if Bailey can sing but I know you were singing and you could sing and I was I was like ah that's that's what I want to hear these are entirely <laughs> separate memories and entirely separate stories uh, maybe they're separate memories yeah yeah go on Matt Hey Tim, do you remember? Did you ever get to hear Babe Heffron sing with uh, some of the other vets? Wait, well, they would sing no, like "Mousey Doats and Dozy Doats and Little Mousey Divey." You guys remember that? No. Yep. Hey, hey, pardon me, boys, but do you want to sing that song now? Pardon yeah, me, boys, is that the Chattanooga Choo Choo? Come on, everybody, one, two, track twenty nine. Well, you can give me a shine. That's the line. Can you afford to board the Chattanooga Choo Choo? I've got my fare. And just, just a trifle to spare. spare. You leave that Pennsylvania Read a magazine and then you're in Baltimore. Dinner in the diner. diner. Nothing, Nothing could be finer. Than to have your ham and eggs in Carolina. Alright, that's enough. You're muted, Alex. I had no idea. You, this is awesome. Is it really 20 years? Is it? Yeah. 20, 20 years, man. 20 years. Yeah. You know, you all know I make my uh, my bread and butter taking people to battlefields and have done for 20 years. And so it's just that the open question is what is it like for you guys that you've now had the opportunity, some of you, to return to battlefields? I mean, Robin, you've been to Baston, you've, you've been to uh, those places, and, and, and Rick, you have as well. And has it changed you? Or did it, has it, do you wish you'd done it before? I mean, what, what's it actually like visiting the real places? That's, just, that's, that's it. That's my question. Well, um, can I answer that a bit? Yeah, um, please do. Um, Paul, you know that I've got a, I've got a history degree, but um, uh, my speciality wasn't anything to do with the Second World War. It was First World War and modern memory. Um, so I actually, during my time at university, had trip had a trip over to the Western Front, and so visited um, Peron um, sites of the Battle of the Somme and Passchendaele as well in Ypres 
into Belgium. So though, that experience of battlefields for me, I, I'd, I'd had before. Um, and so, so it, wasn't, it wasn't necessarily new to me. Um, but I guess the, the, the difference is, yeah, I was just thinking about modern memory and, and the show, and I've heard things said on here so far. I think it was Ross who brought up the word detail. I think Michael might have talked about love and the, the kind of care and attention taken to stuff on the show. Um, and it just strikes me that like, so I'm not really answering your question, am I really? I've just gone off on a ramble. <laughs> Do it. Ramble away. But Rick, listen, Alex is going to be your new best friend because she is a World War One historian. Well, no, but the, the, the truth is that... <laughs> hey, Alex. Yeah. Uh, the, the truth is that the, the, if you haven't been to the Western Front, you guys, and I know, Paul, I'm sure you'd have done that anyway. Yeah, of course. Uh, it, it, it's something else. To, to, to visit those sites. And we studied things like, culturally, we studied things like uh, war memorials. So I remember statues at, at Ypres that, that are designed to weep when it rains. And it strikes me that, that when things are done, because I, I, I did so badly at my degree, actually, uh, history is, as part of my penance has followed me around as an actor quite a lot. Um, but nothing like the way the Band of Brothers history has followed me around. Um, and, and it strikes me that if a show, if a TV show puts that much effort and energy and attention to detail into something, and money too, let's not mm. forget that, it can be a little bit like that statue that weeps when it rains. It can actually form part of modern memory about war. Mm. And really, I'm getting back to your question now because it's beginning to I'm beginning to grow my brain again. Um, those, those visiting of those sites, isn't it interesting what's going on at the moment with lockdown? I think the First World War used to feel used to feel a long, long way ago to me when a long time ago when I studied it when I was a 19 year old. It sort of feels closer now. And I think the Second World War that's that's it, even more so. It's really not that long ago. Yes, George Khalil, who played Mo Ali. I mean, it, there's easy answer and very and hard answers to that question because I, I had never, I'd never seen any of them until uh, you took me, oh, you and uh, and Eric, yeah, between yeah, you. Good two, old Eric, two, yeah. Took us on on a on a on a few very lovely uh, walks and experiences and. And I, I know you, you sent me a question about um, this, about why, why do I come from somewhere far away? And, uh, and, you know, it made me laugh when I read it, Paul, because uh, the very first time I came, I paid for it myself. And, uh, and the reason that I paid for it was because of, because of, I mean, you see it today because of, because of all of you, because of all of us, because, because of you, Paul, because of Robin, because of Tim, because of everyone who's on this. Uh, I say them because they were right in front of me, not because <laughs> <laughs> anybody else, Michael, and everyone who's, who's on here. But, you know, I think Michael said it. What a great, great example of, uh, you know, choosing people. And um, the, the, these guys are, uh, Band of Brothers changed my life. And uh, it's because of everyone who is involved, not just who, who's here, but. Yeah, so seeing those sites, uh, I, I hated war. I really, when I went to boot camp, and I'm sure, you know, Tim will, the guys that were there will remember, I, 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 
I said something very stupid to Captain Die about, you know, how come the U.S. Army has the the biggest rate of blue on blue in the world, and I got shouted at and kicked out of the mess, and I ran outside. and And funny enough, the 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 one English member of the cadre chased me outside, and uh, at the time, you know, I thought I was being clever, and I didn't think I was being clever. I just, I just, I just believe I believed what I said, but. Then when you see the reality of it and you see what it, what, what it really means, and you, you, at least I came to realize that it's the only, the only just war in, in history. Like, I mean, Rick will correct me, but World War I was fucking Duke's vanities. And, and, but it's World one War of those II, ones where you look at it and there's no one is in the wrong. They just can't agree. World War II, there's something you know, tangible I, I, and yeah, evil that needs eradicating. Like Yes, yes, yes. You know, Bertrand Russell was talking about World War One, and I was I was listening to him on YouTube, and I couldn't believe it because they asked him what he would change in history, and this is my my favorite philosopher, and he 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 said he would have had the Germans win World War One, and not had the Americans get involved uh, or the British, and he said, and they said why, and he said because it would have been over quickly and decisively, and millions of young men would not have died. And to get and to, to just to come back to what Paul was saying is that that it just Paul it brings it home, and uh, you bring it home, brother, and and, and thank you for, for 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 doing this. And just as a postscript to that, um, what I was rambling on about, Paul. What's interesting is when these guys now talk about when we talked earlier with Matt Settle about the for uh, about the foie scene, um, and the running through. Now, and Robin, you'll back me up with this, and all the guys who have seen the spaces, now I see the places in my head, obviously. Mm -hmm. I've been there. So I can see that, I can see that that corner of the building that's had the, 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 what is that rifle fire against it in Foix there? Yeah. And I can see, you know, uh, I've been to Carantan. Yeah, Carantan, Dead Man's Corner. I, 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 I know how me and Rick Gomez against the wall and where we pull the pin and run across the rock. I've, 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 I've stood Rick, there, man. Yeah. Rick, I, I had that with, with, uh, with Scotty, with Scotty Gordon two years ago when he came to Normandy, he took, we went and we saw the foxhole where Ali pulled, pulled Scotty out of, uh, out mm. of the foxhole. Well, pulled his, pulled his father, excuse me, but pulled his father out of the Scott, uh, the foxhole. Yeah, it's a bit. It's a bit. I mean, in particular, I think Bois Jacques. The Bois, Bois Jacques. Yes, that's the one for so me. Evocative that you. Yeah. Has ever, the wood, man, man is, yeah. Oh, the wood is just. Oh. Peter O'Meara, who played Lieutenant Dyke. It's because of the show that we got to go to Brerecourt Manor and get this access to the fields and meet you and get all this incredible kind of information behind the scenes. Uh, I'm just fascinated by it. Like it's, it's really something. And when you stand in that field and you look at the gun positions or sort of try and imagine them, well, you sort of get the vibe. When you get the feeling you're in Normandy of what it was like, what it must have been like on those days. It's such an important thing, I think, for young people to go and experience. Or, you know, partic- I say young people because look what's happening in the world. We need to, you know, there's a lot of World War II history that's not being taught, and particularly in America, sadly, but it needs to be. The power of historians and retelling and just putting that in perspective for our younger next group and you know, for, the, well, for the adults and for the youngers is so important. I, I'm, I'm grateful for what you guys do and uh, I look forward to bringing my kids there and 
you know, thinking them learn something. Tim, is it right you in particular um, really got into the history after being in Band of Brothers? More, more after joining, uh, seeing the battlefields. Yeah. yeah. First trip you came, you were you were a rabbit in the headlights, weren't you? Yeah, my first trip to Normandy, which was what two years ago, was um, uh, the guy opener. I've, I've um, yeah. There was a huge realisation that I hadn't had when we shot it. Um, I was more um, interested in other things. I've been acting since I was 11, so it was another job, really. That sounds really callous, but um, I didn't have a huge role. I didn't realise the significance of it when I got cast, so I wasn't hugely ignited by the historical significance of it. Uh, That wasn't who I was then. So when I went to Normandy recently, apart from the fact that I hooked up with these guys and remembered what an amazing experience it had been as if it were yesterday um i finally came face to face with i guess some of the more visceral sort of elements of what it may have been like for these guys so yeah it absolutely brought that alive um and yeah i had a few little moments when i was there so let's talk about the responsibility um how do you even begin getting ready um matt settle who played lieutenant spears I guess, I don't know, I absorb the energy of everyone around me. Yes, Peter? That question of did you do right by a veteran, uh, I think haunts all of us. Well, certainly me as well. Go on, Philip Barantini, who played Skinny Sisk. It, it was just an honour to, to play somebody who's been through, through that. It felt like an honour that, that we had to sort of, you know, portray these people as, as best we can and, and do them, the, the, them justice of what, what, they, what they've done in the world um so yeah just the whole time when we were shooting it was just had that in the back of your mind that you know you've got to do this you've got to be as respectful as you can and 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 do a good job you know yes jason o'mara um who played thomas meehan easy company commander who tragically was killed before setting foot in france um it's hard because you know on on the one hand we talk about plot and character on the other hand we'd, we're talking about what really happened in real life and, and and what happened to stick 66 was a tragedy you know hmm. um i mean it was it was the command stick and and it went down in a in a fireball and um it burned because of the amount of bangalore torpedoes on board it burned for for two to three weeks in a field and, um, you know, when I was, when I was, uh, one of the webbing guys on the show towards the end of my time there said, are you going to that uh, memorial service in Boozeville plant? And I said, what are you, what are you talking about? And he said, well, there's a memorial service next weekend. If you want to go there, they're unveiling a, um, a, a, a stale, they call it a, yeah, a yeah. plaque, a new plaque. And I said, uh, Okay. Uh, yeah, I'll check it out. So I got on the boat, brought a friend and I got on the boat and I drove to, to Normandy to Boozville Plan and um, talked my way into the church, mentioned Band of Brothers, mentioned Steven Spielberg in some pigeon French. And they, uh, once, I, once they understood Steven Spielberg, they let me into the church and I was able to um, be there for the mass, the ceremony. And then afterwards we went outside and um, just before they unveiled the the, the uh, memorial, I, a squad of paratroopers came marching sort of over the bridge and down the hill towards us. Um, 
and there was a major with them in their full full dress and uh they brought a bugle as well and they showed up this this squad of paratroopers showed up for this unveiling of the memorial uh with uh, full colors bugle salute um and it was unveiled um and they played taps i think and uh then they turned around marched back down the hill and back to their to their bus it was just amazing it was just you know it was a really formal it was formally done it was it was classily done they showed up on time they did everything they were supposed to do you know there's it was it was the right way to honor that particular occasion with the right people anyway afterwards um and and the memorials in the shape of the tail of a c47 and afterwards i uh i asked um i was asked by a couple of guys who call themselves the forced landing association a couple of belgians and they said do you want to come and see do you want to come and see the field where i was going to ask you you've actually been to the field then yeah yeah so i said of course i do Mm-hmm. didn't have to ask me twice you know so um so we walked down to the fields it was you know, a quarter of a mile from from the church and um i pointed to this very dark patch and they said that's that's where it burned for two weeks grass still doesn't grow there and this was what this was what 2000 2001 2000 i think it was 2000 was the monument yeah yeah grass doesn't grass doesn't still doesn't grow here so um I was just amazed. And they said, listen, we've spent some time in this field with, you know, uh, metal detectors and such, and we've come across a couple of things. Do you want to see them? I said, sure. And one of the things was a detonated M1 rifle bullet, and he handed it to me, and he said, you may as well have this because, you know, this doesn't belong to anybody, really. It kind of belongs to the U.S. Army, so you may as well have it. It's no use now. It's, it's damaged. And I was like, thank you. So I have that. I've kept it. It's right over there. And... Um, then they handed me this ring and uh, on the inside of the ring was etched TM, yep. which could only really have been Thomas Meehan mm-hmm. that they found deep in, 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 the, uh, in, the, in the dirt, in the soil. And uh, I held it in my hand and that was the moment when I realized that we could talk about character and we could talk about plot and we could talk about dialogue but this was a real man who mm-hmm. really lived and really died. And the tragedy of that, you know, that he was in his early 20s and he was trusted enough to be made a, a, the commander of these men, you know. He must have been quite an extraordinary character. Mm-hmm. And uh, he, you're right, he probably would have been able to lead them with a great deal of success for, for quite deep into that campaign. Anyway, I gave the ring back and said thank you. And uh, I asked if there was any way to return the ring to the family. And they said, well, this is, that's what we do. We try to get some of these personal effects that we find from these forced landings, these essentially shot down planes all over Europe. And we try to return them to the families. Um, sometimes it's hard. Some of the men were so young, they don't have a whole load of, you know, they don't have any progeny. Some of them weren't even married. So oftentimes they're looking for, at this point, 
grandnieces, grandnephews, cousins, you know, to try to return some of these effects to some degree of family. And it's not easy. But they do a great job, those guys. It's the, just to, to finish that story, it's on display in a museum. Uh, it's on display in Carrington. They've got the ring and they've Mian's dog tag and there's some other bits and pieces because they try, well, they did contact the family. And if I'm remembering correctly, the family said, it's not that we don't want it. It's just that it's, it would be better staying in Normandy so that other people can see it. And so it's on display there. So, Mark, your character, William Dukeman, dies in Holland, of course, in an incident many of the easy veterans recalled with great sadness. Have you ever had a chance to visit his grave, and how was it? Do you think there was extra responsibility playing one of the men who were killed? Well, uh, after the... I mean, during the show, I obviously didn't get to meet my character because he, he died in, in Holland. And um, after the show, I felt a sense of guilt, actually, um, because... You get people coming up to you saying what a fantastic job it was and um, what a great show this was. And um, it wasn't me that did these things, you know. It was it was Jukeman that did these things. So for a long time, I, I, I didn't want to go and visit his grave. Um, now, I, I live in Colorado, which is where he's from. I married a girl from Colorado. So I, I, I've been to his hometown, uh, seen where he was born, saw his house where he was born. Um, I got the tattoo of his service number on my arm. And I'm sort of like a, a Jukeman junkie now. The day... I got killed, or my character Jukeman got killed. Um, we we shot it only once, and it was it was a, a night shoot, so it was middle of the night, pitch black. Tom Hanks is directing that one, and um, it was just eerie, you know. And like nobody nobody spoke to me hardly because they sort of knew that it was coming. And after after we did the shoot, and um, I got my chest exploded, all that kind of stuff, I sort of broke down a little bit, I had a cry. Mostly because the paycheck was ending, but <laughs> but no, it was um, it was it was it was it was amazing set to be on because everything was so real, so realistic. Richard Spate, who played Skip Muck, um, was there extra responsibility if your character died? Absolutely, I think there. I think that that responsibility extended not just from the beginning of production, but all the way through everything. There was a. Um, I tell this story a lot because it really requires a perspective that predates the internet. But you couldn't just research things, even though the internet was a thing, it wasn't the thing it is now. You couldn't readily access archives the way you can now. And I remember getting a phone call, production gave me the number of, of a couple of veterans to speak to as reference, and it was Bill Garnier and, and Don Malarkey. My first phone call was to Don Malarkey. Huh. And had a conversation with Don Malarkey and, you know, I'm some dopey actor in Los Angeles who's excited to play a job. And I'm like, I got my notepad and I'm going to ask him questions about my guy. And I'm going to, you know, I'm going to really get to know him through this man. And I, we talked about 30 seconds before Don Larkey burst into tears and hung up the phone, which, you know, made me realize, oh, fuck. I just ripped a scab off. I didn't mean to rip. And this is not, I'm not, this is no bullshit. Like, I just stepped in it and I'm going to be in this for a while. And I remember speaking to him again later and just this time with the appropriate attitude and, and being very cautious in my questioning and mentioning, I wanted to find the family. I felt like that I owe, I needed to talk to the family because everybody else was given a wife or a, a brother or not everybody, but the majority of people had some reference, a, a, a child, if their veteran had passed away, but Skip never married, you know, never had kids. They, I just remember saying to Don, I'm like, 
what part of Florida was Skip from? Because it said in the script, in the movie theater scene, I was in Florida and then I came here. And he's like, he's not from Florida, he's from New York. He's from upstate New York, a city called Tonawanda. And that was sort of the first domino to fall in the journey where I literally looked up all the mucks in the, that I could find in, the, in New York State and was just randomly calling people. And when that didn't work, I sent an email to the Chamber of Commerce for the city of Tonawanda right before we started boot camp. So explaining who I was, explaining the project, and, and you know, trying to figure out if I could get any intel from the city. We went to boot camp, came back, and I had an email. That's two weeks later. I had an email from a woman saying, hello, my name is Maureen O'Hara. I mean, sorry, Eileen O'Hara. And my mom got a call from the Chamber of Commerce saying you were asking questions about her brother who died in World War II. You know, what oh, wow. can I help you? Wow. So we got in a phone, I got in a phone call with her and I said, Hey, we're doing a mini series about band of brothers. And I would like to talk to your mom or you guys about your uncle. And she said, what's, what's band of brothers. And I said, we're making a mini series of the book. She goes, what's the book? What are you talking about? And they didn't know. I said, you don't know there's a, that your, your uncle's war efforts are chronicled in this, you know, revered book. And he said, no, we, last, last we heard was a Western Union telegram in 1945 saying he was wow. dead. That's the, last in, that's the last we heard of it. So thus began my sort of back and forth with, uh, it was Becky Kronowski and Eileen O'Hara and, and Ruth LaFleur, who's his, his uh, Skip's sister. And we swapped, they ended up sending me color copies of the Western Union Telegram. My walls at the, at the Marshall Street were just pasted with letters. A letter was never opened because it was returned deceased. They still never opened, but they sent me a copy of the envelope and everything that had the deceased stamp on it. I got all these letters to, to him, from him, was talking to the mom. And one, at one point, the mom wrote me a letter, a detailed letter, just talking about her brother. And it was interesting because... I really did rip a scab off there too, because they didn't know anything about how he died. They never got his personal effects. And so I said, rather than me tell you the story, go read the book so you can get to know everybody. And they did, and they got to, and, and but they, nonetheless, it was very emotional for me to read that book and go on that journey. And that I think opened up Ruth to start writing letters. And she wrote me a letter telling me the story about Skip swimming the Niagara River. And she wrote, this whole letter about how he, before he went to boot camp, he wanted to swim the Niagara River, so he did, and his girlfriend Faye was all upset. And she sent me this letter, and I took it to David Frankel, who was directing at the time. I said, "This is unbelievable. Like we we've we've known nothing about this guy. The only fact I've gotten about this guy was that he wasn't from Florida. He was from Tonawanda, New York. So when we did episode five, I went to Tom Hanks, who was directing. I said, "Hey, it says." you know, Muck says I was in Florida, but now I'm here. He's not from Florida. Can I say where he's really from? Like, I don't want to wing it and improv, but he's from Tonawanda. Can I say that? And he's like, yeah, man, do what you want. So, you know, but that's, that's about all the intel I had. And here we got this letter. We got this beautiful letter about swimming the Niagara river and this emote and, and what a moment that was for him and his sister before he flew off to, to war. And I showed it to Frankel and Frankel's like, we're going to aim a camera at a foxhole and you're going to just tell that story. So, you know, it, Tim and I sat side by side 
Gomez sat across from us. He gave us a chance to create a moment between these three dudes so that when story-wise, so when Luz, Gomez is crawling towards our foxhole, you've seen these guys bond because other than that, there was nothing in the script that bonded those guys together. You know, we were bonded in boot camp, but that's not on camera. The, there was no story point that connected these guys. And suddenly I had this letter, this real story. And, and, and Frankel was, was astute enough to know that it, it mattered in terms of the grand scope of who these three guys are and who Skip is. And if we're going to connect them at all, other than just a guy in green, let's give them some humanity. And so I just, I just told that story. Well, I was just, just didn't you discover that uh, Mark and Pencarla were from, were both from upstate New York. So we're not yeah, that's why you ended, up, you ended up sitting in there because we didn't know that either. Yeah. And so when she sent the letter, she mentioned Pencarla. I'm like, Oh, well, that's why you and I ended up doing it together. Cause we're like, well, then we should be there re- reminiscing about this. You know, even though Pencarla wasn't there for that event, but he was there, they are connected by their region. And they can tell Luz's story. And they tell this story. And we, we, I remember we came, Rick came to the apartment the night before. And he's like, oh, I'll, I'll, add, the, I'll add the question about the barrel. And we'll like, I'm like, yeah, oh, great. Yeah, we'll make it more conversational. And, and the, the girlfriend's name I mentioned, Faye, was a real person who really was his girlfriend. And so after the series uh, aired, Faye Tanner watched the series, saw that, and got back in touch with the Muck family and sent them back skips original jump wings which he had mailed her wow. after uh-huh. after Tacoa. and and it really set the whole thing on a journey i i had this i had this moment with hbo that was really really weird um because your question is a loaded one i felt a tremendous amount of responsibility playing somebody who had passed during the war and i didn't necessarily think it got the full support it deserved you kind of had to fight for the support a little bit. Well, and, and Rich, job of all time, but. Rich, you did. I remember you did, my friend. And, and you set that precedent early on, cause, uh, and you made it clear. And, and I remember talking to you about it and what you did and what it meant to make sure that Mark was up there in cinematic history. Uh, and you did it, man. You went and you fought for that. It wasn't there. You went and fought for a lot, man. And, uh, and, you know, I remember it. And I actually remember all everything that you're saying. Yeah, because, well, that's the other thing is, like, for us, we're telling you guys who are reporting on this, but for us, we lived it in real time. We were all having these conversations all the time. I mean, like, Scott was part of the conversation about changing the name of the city in the movie theater, because that was our scene together. And, and Malarkey was our connected veteran. I mean, in a way, Scott had Don Malarkey, but then I also had Don Malarkey, so Scott and I would always talk to Don Malarkey. You know, like, everybody had this connected thing. And I remember HBO... And, I, you know, this is one of those things that you say that's maybe not the best thing to say in, in, in the business world. But the fact of the matter is, is that when the premiere happened, people invited, HBO invited the actor and their, veteran, their, their families. And they didn't invite the Muck family. They didn't sit, the Muck family wasn't included in the invitation. And I wrote HBO, I started an email exchange. I said, there's been an oversight. You need to do this, you know, because they're, they're, they are representing the man I played. And they sent back saying, we appreciate that. We understand that, that connection. However, we're limiting the tickets to um, families of veterans who are alive. And I said, then you're punishing my soldier for getting killed in the war because... <laughs> I yeah. asked of them 
all of the emotional impact and help that you are asking of your, of your people, of everybody else who had a sister or brother or parent or wife involved in this, and they had to get emotionally involved to help that actor deliver that story. I did that to these people. Mm-hmm. And I need you to show them the same respect or I'm not coming, which was not like me. Yeah. But I also <laughs> felt like, I felt like HBO was a replacement and they needed to do their 20 fucking push-ups because I had done my goddamn job from day one. And I was not going to now be told that I was not wearing a uniform and now it was going to be fancy and we're going to be having cocktails on the beach, that suddenly it wasn't about the war. And I thought that was bullshit. That was a decision being made by people in suits who were not in the fucking mud when we made the show. And I was not going to stop doing my job because it was time to dress fancy. And it's and, and luckily they did the right thing. Yeah, but uh, it, it got under yeah. my crawl. As you can tell, it still I, gets under my crawl. I'm sure that I remember you introducing me to them on the train, the the uh, yeah. Mark's family. Yeah, I because that's why I was like, wow. Because I, yeah, I, I'm I'm pretty sure I remember them them being there. Yeah, they were there. Uh, they, was, they, yeah, they, that, sure, they got the, they got flown over there because they were the girls. They were the women I dealt with the most. Yeah, uh, yeah. Eileen and they flew over. They were in and Paris, right? Awesome. And, they, and they, you know, they yeah. got to bond to their, they'd never met anybody. All these, all their, you know, Garnier and Malarkey, and they finally got to be a part of, you know, they were as much a part of that experience as anybody else because they, they sacrificed a loved one for the greater good of the, of the war effort. And they deserved yeah. to be a part of the honoring of that, that we were spearheading as the performers in Band of Brothers and as the production team behind Band of Brothers, you know? The the series begat some good stuff for them in terms of honoring Muck. Uh, in they, they because he lost all his medals, they were able to uh, lobby the chamber the chamber of commerce and their local and federal government representatives to get all of his medals reissued, which was great because that stuff never made it back to the family. And then the city of Tonawanda, with some help from some you know benefactors. Uh, built a monument to really all veterans of all wars um, with a specific focus on uh, Skip Muck and Fritz Nyland. And for, this goes back a while guys, but Fritz Nyland um, was mentioned in the book Band of Brothers when Muck goes to London and they all hang out with some guys in another company. Then Fritz Nyland is the Ryan of Saving Private Ryan. It was the five Nyland brothers were the, the brothers on which uh, Private Ryan was based and Fritz was the one that got pulled out. And this is an interesting, I always think this is a fascinating little piece of like cinematic trivia is that the Nyland brothers were also from Tonawanda, New York and Fritz and Skip were great friends. And when Skip Muck swam the Niagara river, and I did not know this when we shot the series, talking to your point, Paul, about things you learn later, but Fritz Nyland so that, you know, if the current is too strong and you can't make it across, you die because you go over the falls. So when Skip swam the Niagara River, Fritz Nyland paddled alongside him on a boat, in a boat, to be sure that if he got too tired, he could cling to the boat. So you have Skip Muck, who ended up being portrayed in Band of Brothers, and, and Fritz Nyland, who ended up being immortalized in Private Ryan, on the same, sharing the same moment in the same river right before the war started. And wow. so they built a memorial on the bank of the river where they wow. shoved to make that journey. And so it's a specific tribute. I actually spoke at the dedication of that ceremony. That's going back a couple years now, but uh, yeah, it's been nice to have 
it's been nice to have everything that family went through to help me uh, pay, you know, return to them in goodwill from their community and from the representatives. So it's been, it's been pretty great. Awesome. Beautiful. Matthew Leach, who played Floyd Talbot, um, at the other end of the scale, you struggled with the responsibility since, um, and then and since, I think it's fair to say. Dick Winters said that if he could take one soldier into combat, it would be Floyd Talbot. And then there's a ten-part, ten-hour-long series where you don't see that. Um, <laughs> and, uh, of course, I feature in, in certain episodes, um, but you don't really see why Dick Winters said that. Uh, as far as, <clears throat> uh, like you said, uh, like a breakout manner or something, where you see he was tactical genius or anything like that. And uh, the reason for that is several fold. Firstly, um, Tab died in 1982 and so he wasn't available to be interviewed. I was given quite a scant amount of literature as far as he was concerned and so I guess the writers didn't have a great deal to work on in that respect. So that's one reason. But <sighs> the real reason is that it's my fault and that's because if you work in an office, if you run an office say and there are certain people that are doing a lot of hard work uh, you're liable to promote them uh, and if there is a person who likes to sit next to the photocopier eyeing up the receptionist and trying to get laid you uh, don't promote them and uh, there was definitely, in the first couple of episodes, people being felt out as to, you know, what the story was going to be, who you kind of follow, and there were definitely certain actors who put themselves forward more, um, had more interaction with their veterans, the veterans' families, got those stories together, took them to the writers, took them to the producers, and... Uh, and, and helped flesh out and create more stories... Uh, for their characters, putting their characters forward. And that's not being particularly political or sharp-elbowed, it's just being smart and doing your job. And um, to my lasting regret, I feel like I didn't do that a lot at all, really, when I think back about it. I just... I, I'd come from doing a show where I was more the main character and they just gave me a whole bunch of stuff to say and I'd say it. And I'd never really worked on something like this, the size of this before, and had to sort of do a lot of research on a character and, and find out about them and bring it to the writers. And so, in certain respects, I kind of almost coasted through it. I did what they told me to do. Um, I think they liked what I did, and in certain cases they gave me more to do. But as far as actually bringing more to the story that the writers didn't know, which would only have happened through research and Tab's two brothers were alive so I did have that resource Honest Indian I just kind of didn't do it <laughs> uh, that's a terrible thing to say I, I don't know whether it was just stupidity or naivety or I mean a lot of the guys in the show were, 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 had been actors since they were kids 
and I wasn't one of them. I mean, I would only really just come out of drama school and done like a kids show. So uh, when I look back, I'm not quite sure whether I can say I was super lazy or just super naive or maybe a bit of the both. But it would be ingenuine of me to just say it wasn't, it was just because there wasn't literature wasn't there. Um, I should have worked harder. And I don't know whether it was just my own kind of shyness to be able to like go to producers and writers and say, look, 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 look I've got this. But uh, I just honest kind of didn't do it. Yeah, it's something that I look back on with great regret. I feel like the stuff that I was given to do, I did well. But I could have brought more to it as far as doing the shovel work myself as an actor. So that's me probably admitting that for the first time. Russ McCall, who played Liebgott, do you want to respond to that? There's a double point here, in, in a sense, because I see what Matt is saying. There, there was, you have to look at it, there were a few things that were happening too. There was, look, I didn't have a veteran. I had nobody to talk to about Liga. Mm. Nobody. Sorry. I had no family members. I had one piece of paper with a picture on it. That was it. So the only times that I could actually get any information was to speak to the veterans who were still alive, who always talk about their brother and they don't talk about themselves. But there were also, you know, a lot of the, the scripts were coming out and the stories were coming out and people were going and talking to directors and talking to writers and sort of going, well, what about this and what about this and what about this? Yeah. And I did think that there needed to be a healthy balance, which I think the producers found in saying, look, it's still, of course, we would love to give everybody every story. There are people mentioned in the book that are not in the series. There are people who have big mentions in the book that are hardly in the series. Yes, Rick Warden. To an extent, any series has to be emblematic on yeah, some sort of absolutely. level. And, you know, I could, t I knew that I knew Harry's story coming out of the plane was an extraordinary story, mm. and it's not in there. Yeah, and he was saved by the updraft of an exploding plane underneath him, saved his life, and blew him high yeah. enough to land safely. You know, these details are extraordinary, and those stories are out there, but they can't all make the show. Go on, Scott Grimes. You played Don Malarkey. Uh, Matthew was a was an excellent dude and a great yeah, actor. Great, he's a great soldier, man. Yeah, he's not one person. There is one person, but he's not here right now, and I don't even hardly remember his name. Uh, there was a, you know, I had I got in a fight with someone on a truck once because he wouldn't take put his helmet on. Whatever. <laughs> I don't know who you're talking about. <laughs> Matthew, <laughs> Matthew was fucking always there, always making us laugh, always doing his job. He was excellent. So if that helps him at all, man, I have nothing but fond memories of him. Tim, go ahead. In defence, I guess, of the, uh, you know, the fact that we were young, uh, young actors who got a role. I mean, this is going to sound a bit crass. But I think it's important. I didn't sign something that said, you know, I'm going to represent to the best of my ability and fight for to the best of my ability this person that actually I had no information about. I didn't have a very big role, so it's, it's perhaps a bit different. Um, but I think I think sometimes there's a, a little bit of romanticising about perhaps what we all thought we were getting ourselves into versus what we got ourselves into. I mean, certainly I didn't fucking expect this, uh, right. You know, we're still doing this now. It's amazing. I love it. I love it way more now than I did at the time. I didn't know what I was doing. I was 23. Like Matthew, I'd been doing quite a lot of TV. I'd been working since I was 11 years old, I think. So it wasn't my first role and it wasn't a very big one. I was a bit disappointed if I'm honest. 
um, you know, it was from an actor's point of view, didn't have much to work with, didn't really have any info, kind of got my head down and got on with it. Uh, could I have done more? Absolutely. But there were a whole team of writers, producers and directors and, you know, everybody else who had uh, opportunities to do that as well, way before we were cast. I understand there were opportunities as things unfolded. Information comes up and that's amazing. Wonderful that people were able to do things with it. But I think, yeah, I just wanted to say something, I guess, in defence of the young ignoramuses that some yeah, of us definitely I, I also were. think that you shouldn't, we, none of us should underestimate what we did contribute or whatever level it was on, you know, because we are all here now talking yeah. about it. But it, it's true. And and those guys, the veterans, you know, even Johnny Martin, I'm sure there's complete anachronisms in, in terms of what was portrayed there I as an actor as you all know we all took our moment to go all right I can get I'll get my helmet off here and I'll stand up front and I'll whatever you know those natural actor instincts or whatever it is because you represent them in the way that you represent and it's just that ultimately they're there and they are this band of brothers it sounds a corny thing to say and I add on to what Dex is saying there is something that Jimmy and I have talked about in the past couple of years when we've been you know back in Europe um, you know following the, the easy company steps and stuff and we've had a chance to rewatch the show. And um, probably the same as everyone, I hadn't watched the show in 15, 16 years. I mean, I, I hadn't watched it in a long, long time. And we were f- not forced, but we certainly had time to sit down and watch this show. And, and you could sort of now detach from it and watch it as an audience member, as a professional in our profession, and no longer as the actor that was trying to see when they were on screen and whatnot. Mm-hmm. And the thing that Jim and I have both been really passionate about and this sort of goes to what you're saying here Tim and what you were saying Dex every single person every single person pops and it's incredible you watch the show and every single person doesn't matter if they have a small piece it doesn't matter if you have a great one episode doesn't matter if you're spread out every single person pops in that show in such an incredible way it's really it's it's fascinating to watch Jimmy yeah, there's not many yeah. false moments, if any, in that entire series. It, it's, yeah. I don't know if you guys have watched it in a while, but it, it is really fucking good. Yeah. Yeah. It's good. Well, I got to say, in, it, uh, to, just to piggyback on what you said, Tim, I think it's easy for us to sit here and romanticize even what I was saying. The question I was asked, like, yeah, I fought for and we got this scene. It seems easy to say in hindsight, but I, don't, I, don't, I, I sometimes think that my choices were questionable and you know i was very close to you scott and and jim during that whole time and there's a lot of things that were really fucked because i became mono focused in a way so tim if, if matthew's concern is that he he aired on one side of the line i might have aired too far on the other mm-hmm. i became like almost obsessed it was my only like i not from england i didn't have any family around me i wasn't a married dude i didn't have kids i was like my i almost became hyper obsessed with this idea of doing the right thing, which is an unachievable goal because as to, to Rick Warden's point, tons of stuff, not going to make this move. Like it's, it's a movie. It's not, it's mm-hmm. not a, a, a moment by moment reenactment of the entire experience. Uh, yeah, it's a bit heavy, but honestly I fucked up band of brothers and it's the biggest regret I ever had in my life really because you know when the guys were talking about that you were talking to Alina or or, or 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 you were Alex about the last scene where you can't watch it yep I filmed that last scene 
Yeah. And they didn't put it in Band of Brothers. And I felt, I still feel, uh, uh, I'm going to make light of it because I'll probably cry if I don't. I, I still feel fucking awful for, uh, for, for Jim's family who are friends of mine. And, uh, you know, I didn't make that. I didn't make the cut. It was your first time after Birmingham rep being on camera. On camera. And you, you, God bless you, Matthew Settle. You told me not to look at you in a scene. And I asked you why. And you said, come over to Westminster. Do you remember? And I came to your flat. And what did I say? You told me how to act on screen. (laughs) <laughs> oh, I did? I, I, I fucking did. know. I can't know. I, know I made that shit up. <laughs> but it made him feel better. That's what he's saying. Yeah, no, no. I, I, did try, I did try to give you confidence. Because, you know, as, a, as a, the youngest in my family, I had to fight for, you know, every inch of, you know, everything I got, right? Um, and, it, and, and normally you get spoiled, but I was number six, and I don't know, it was just a numbers thing. So I, I learned early on to... Uh, if, if you could be a champion for people who were scared, it helped you get over your own fear. Oh, so that was, my, that was my way of dealing with my own fear. You know? No, and when I was young, man, when you did it, I was like, who the fuck does Matthew Settle think he is? Tell me to come up to his flat. And 20 years later, you remember, man. You think, what a lovely man. Oh, it shows something about the pressure you guys felt about yeah. representing, doesn't it? Michael Kudlitz, you had an even bigger discovery um, than Rich's, didn't you? Talk to us about what it was like meeting the real Randleman. Um, wow. Well, meeting the Randleman's was interesting because uh, I think we were given um, information, contact information for those of us um, that had our vet uh, people were alive that still knew them or could tell Mm -hmm. stories of them or they knew that they were friends. And, uh, I remember talking to, uh, Hashi, uh, uh, calling him up because he was one of the replacements and they were like, he's the best that we could find for you to talk to because obviously, uh, Denver's passed away and we can't find any of his family. So you can talk to Hashi. So I'm talking to Hashi for about 40 minutes. And at one point he says, well, you should probably just call him up and double check this. And I'm like, uh, I, I would love to, but I, I think he's, I, I think he's passed. And he said, Oh shit. When, like, when did he pass? I just talked to him a week ago. What the fuck? I'm like, Whoa, 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 Whoa. No. Okay. Okay. Hang on. Hang on. No, I got this information. They've been looking for him. They have not been able to contact him at all. So if you talked to him a week ago or a week and a half ago, like, like, hang on. He's probably still alive and they don't have the right information on their end. That is incredible. So, so I went and I said, I'll get back to you. So I, I called up the production office and I, I said, uh, talk to Jennifer. And I said, I, uh, I, I think I got information that he's still alive. So here's, here's what I did. You know, you, you guys can call you back and check with him what number he has and this and that so about four days later i get contact and they're like yeah actually uh he's alive and uh he's in texarkana and uh we have his number and he'd be more than willing to talk to you oh, man. um so it's like okay so i know everybody's gone through this if you've talked to any either even 
adjacent to their vet. Um, I mean, I look back at it now, and I don't, I don't know if it, would, if it would be any different, but I'm sitting there remembering looking at my phone, and it was probably the hardest phone call I've ever made. Mm. Because you sort of think, oh, okay, cool, I'm going to ask all these questions. But then when you, when you go to make the phone call, you sort of go, how the fuck do I even start? Mm. Like, what is it? What is it? Hey, I'm the, the actor that's going to be playing you. How's it going? Which is pretty much how it goes. Yeah. <laughs> we got nothing back in return. He's like, hey, how you doing? So I'm like, um, so I was wondering if you could uh, answer some questions. And he's like, yep. <laughs> like uh you know and you're going through your mind and you're sort of like what do you even ask hey how was the war like where do, you, where do you even begin with that like tell me about your life so it was a very interesting process early on i got very very little out of uh denver at first um but like with many of the guys and their families and their family friends um he put his wife back on the phone afterwards vera and I spoke to Vera for about two hours. Now, in retrospect, that's probably a better person to talk to than him about this, because we are, we are all, all of us in this video, everybody walking through life, we, we know who we hope the world perceives us as. Mm. But the people who see you and actually love you and spend time with you, they know how you really are and how you really present to the world. I mean, you may think you're not a selfish person, but if everybody around you says you're a fucking selfish bastard, guess what? <laughs> you're a selfish bastard. It always used to be, like, we would talk about that with a lot of the vets too. Whenever you try to get information about your vet, going to your vet was probably the last person you'd go to the other yeah. guy. The other guys- because yeah, they're all- you know, Exactly. Talk about the brother. Exactly, and they're all like, "Oh, no, it was no big deal." And you're like, "Are you kidding? That guy was fucking over the wall. He was in there, and he's and if you talk to your guy, he's like, nah, it wasn't a big yeah, yeah, let's talk about him." Yeah, yeah, exactly. So there was a there's a lot of that, but that is uh, that's I would say that's pretty much the constant and the and the one sort of through line with all these is that they they the conversations with the families did start out very um, innocuous, very passive, very talking about things that didn't really matter. And the more that the trust was gained um, and they had sent some people to set and some people were reporting back and they were getting more and more info. And the more and more they realized that the story was being told properly, the more the vets opened up to us, yeah. the more they opened up to their families, even mm -hmm. during this process. Um, and we, we were ultimately sort of absorbed uh, into their families. Uh, and it must have been weird for them as well, though, like to have this yeah. kid in front of you saying, so I'm going to be you. Uh, how yeah. do you even process that? That's yeah. It must have been weird as shit for them. <laughs> I, I, it would have been. I look back and I'm thinking I wouldn't have told me anything. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's a, you talk about a trust exercise. You know, they, they were already leery of the book initially when, you know, when uh, Ambrose was doing the interviews that that was the sort of the same process, the more, Mm. that they opened up to him and the more that he talked and they talked to each other, the more they wanted to talk to him. Um, and then ultimately I, I do believe there are some vets out there who wish they had talked to him who chose not to because right. they saw how, how the story was done with so much love and care, um, which wasn't a given, you know, ultimately when you really look back, it, it, it could have had it not been done by, you know, in the hands of Tom Hanks, Steven Spielberg, 
uh, and us, you know, and everyone who played the, the, the background, our, our special ability background, uh, men and women who, who put so much into every scene and made us able to do the work we were able to do. Because honestly, so many of those scenes revolve around everything in the background working. And, and, you know, we've all seen it where you look and you're like, what the hell is that guy doing in the back? And that's the last thing you want. Everybody who was there was there to tell the story the best it could be told, the, the most accurately it could be told, and with the most love and care it could be told. We had the best of the best in every for the show because everybody knew the story that was to tell and everybody was uh, humbled enough to, to, to be a part of it, you know? Yeah. So showed up and brought their again. That as yeah. a kid and, watching and it, I know that for me, I, I'll level with you. I've rewatched that series, I can't tell you how many times, nine and a half episodes, because I've only ever once watched the bit where they start telling you the names under the old guys and they start telling you who's who um, and the baseball game. I can't do it. I did it once. It destroyed me for days and I've never done it again since. No matter how much I love the show. Let's talk more about the veterans. Philip, you couldn't talk to Sisk, could you? Well, my character, Wayne Skinny Sisk, unfortunately passed away um, the year before we started shooting. Um, so I didn't get a chance to, to speak to him. Uh, and and, a, and a, a lot of the guys, no one had really been in touch with him anyway. When the war ended, he turned to drink a little bit. And then he, and then he became a, a, a pastor and, and, um, and turned to God. But, but I didn't get a chance to speak to any of his family. I'm not sure whether any of his family wanted to be involved in the, in the project. So I didn't really get a chance to see any of those but everybody that came on set we had we had uh, Bill Garnier and uh, Babe and, and a bunch of the other the, the, the veterans came on set one for, for like a week or so, or so and, and they were just telling me stories about Skinny. Ben you were one of the cast who didn't get to meet the man you played but you did get to befriend his family including his son Scotty what was it like visiting the actual foxhole where Smokey was wounded with his son? Yeah I mean very very emotional to, to to go there i mean it was a very it was one of those things i wanted to do um obviously i've been to france and um been to normandy and been to carantan and and um uh, you know visited quite a lot of the sites uh previously but when the offer or the opportunity came up to go to bastogne i jumped at the opportunity and uh it was one of those places that i'd always wanted to visit and uh, to, to to actually go there and have the tour i mean the, 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 you know the, the woods themselves are, are very eerie and it's a very eerie sort of feeling when you go there, as if something, you know, clearly, I mean, obviously something very dramatic did happen there, but it, it's almost like the, the woods are almost kind of whispering with, with the amount of history and um, the, the, the amount of, of, of experiences that have taken place. Um, but to actually go around and be able to see the foxhole was, was extraordinary. And obviously Scotty was there. Um, and, um, you know, we had some pictures taken, but you also had some moments to just reflect and, and, and to think about his dad. And, um, you know, I formed a great bond with Scott and, um, and, and one of the greatest experiences on set for me was, was obviously meeting Betty, his, um, his, his wife and, uh, and Scott's, Scott's sisters, they all came to set. And that was a very special moment to meet them in the first place. Um, when they first came on set, I was in the middle of shooting a scene and then I think they were sort of just hanging back and then somebody came in and said, Ben, I've got people that would love to meet you. And it, and it was a really special moment to meet the family. And, um, you know, again, it, it sort of, it, it sort of upped the stakes as it were, because you suddenly, you know, it became very real that you are telling somebody's real story and there's, there's a family that 
whose legacy you are you are carrying and um the responsibility was was huge but they were very very supportive it was lovely to meet them it was lovely to be able to spend some time talking to them and share you know hear their memories and and, and uh, you know almost inhale some of that information from from the people that knew him and as i say i've seen scott at quite a few different events and we've become very good friends and um when i was in la last year and the year before i've met i've met uh, i met his um uh, I bet Walter's granddaughter who lives in LA and we've hung out a bit and uh, again it's just been it's been really special and whenever I've, I've met up with her you know she introduces me to all her friends she works at the Magic Castle in LA and she always introduces me as this is Ben and he played my grandfather in that series Band of Brother and it's almost like that Tom Hanks speech that um yeah. <laughs> at the beginning of boot camp you know there's there that what a, what an amazing story to be able to sort of hang out with 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 his family and to, to form that very special bond that we'll have forever and they're always very um very complimentary about um about my portrayal and, and as I say I just hope I did it justice. Rick Gomez um you two couldn't talk to your vet but again you had a relationship with his family didn't you? What's it like um playing someone when you actually know their family? Uh, oh boy. Um, it's, uh, I mean, I, look, I think all of us went through a, a bit of, all, of this. You, you, you feel like you have a responsibility, an incredible responsibility to get everything right. That's sort of, we've said that a, a, a million times and we can say it a million times more and to be, um, be sincere about it every single time we say it because there, there's no, uh, it, it's it, the weight of that was, was felt in every, uh, conversation we had with each other and every frame we shot. I know it's certainly, Anybody who was in anything with me, we always, we, there was a weight. There was a weight even if you were, and honestly, the whole like clown the company thing was sort of a it's an odd thing because I never even thought about that. Like I never thought like, hey man, so now I got to come with a joke because I'm the comic relief at the moment. Um, I just felt like shit was said when shit was said and people did what they did in those moments and those who were those, those were the people they were. Those, those, those were those characters. And, um, and ultimately, I feel like every one of us in the nine, ten months that we shot, uh, or eight or, eight or nine, if boot camp is a month or whatever, everybody arced as human beings. Everybody I know arced. Mike arced, Renee arced, Ross arced. We all, we all became different people by shooting it. And because they cast so full human beings, that was all there. And that's the truth of what you'd go through in, in, in going through what the men went through. So, so that, was, that, was, that was just the experience of living through something. Honestly, we all changed. Um, as far as the family, I just, I just always wanted them to, to, to be proud. And, um, and, and uh, uh, Delphina, Del Luz, George's, George's wife, before she passed away, we got to go to Normandy and ride the train together. And she held my hand for an hour and a half, and I mean squeezed it, and she rubbed my arm, and and um and I know I know I I I knew I got it right. It was good. It was good enough for her. And so then any any bullshit that kind of was in my head about like oh you could do more, you could do this, or why is that? Blah, 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 it just kind of all disappeared in the in the glow of of her smile and and her um, appreciation of it. And so I mean, man. That's, that's all you can do. And, and I lo love that family. And anytime I get to see George, I see George the most because when we do, we do something, we get together. I saw him a couple years back, right, Ross? When was Cleveland? A couple years back? A year and a half, yeah. year and a half, yeah. 
so so I get to see them, and it's great to to have a beer and catch up and and do all that. So so th- that's always that's always a, a, a fun thing to be able to do. But um, but yeah, man, it's a it's family forever. We're all, not only just us, but the families we brought into that circle. It's a beautiful thing. When did that start to dawn on you that that's what that you were going to get that out of it as well as a paycheck? Like when I first talked to Dell before mm. the whole thing started, um, and we were on the phone for about three and a half hours, I realized, okay. This is legit because she. I, I just started writing notes, and she was. It, was. it was cathartic for her to go through it. Yeah. And then I realized, like, oh, I know, I know everything about this guy from a wife's perspective, and um, it's an interesting perspective. But it wasn't about the paycheck either. <laughs> no, it wasn't about the paycheck ever. No. Um, ever. No, no, it never wait, was. Wait, 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 I we got a, we got a, we got a paycheck. Did we get a paycheck? <laughs> <laughs> you guys got pay. Peter Youngblood Hill to play Shifty Powers. Tell us a little bit about the special relationship you forged with Shifty and what playing him has meant to you. Uh, well, I, I guess uh, I met Shifty before we started filming and he happened to live about an hour away from my mom uh, in Clinchco, Virginia. And so he it was kind of easy for me to access him, access him. And his daughter, Margot was very helpful with that. And at the time I didn't know how to drive. And so uh, she, she, she drove me up there and we basically spent the time I spent, you know, a couple of days with him. And, you know, that kind of started, he was such a beautiful, beautiful person and really uh, welcoming and, uh, very thoughtful, and uh, it, obviously, I was a na- naive, kind of stupid kid in many regards, and didn't really know what was going on. And he, he was kind of, you know, just trying to help me as best as he could. And I think now I look back on it, and I look back on the the moments that we shared, and it's like really, you know, you just feel so deeply for those those times that we shared those that the relationship that we had and I, I i suppose that would go for you know a lot of the older generation you know that we've you know that we the the elders and they've been through things and been through so much of you know of where we've what you know where we've come from ultimately and we're just kind of i think with shifty it was there was a way that he understood a through, there was a through line of uh, wisdom that he under, he kind of understood about, uh, you know, where he had come from and where, where he was going and, and, uh, and always so loving and, and, and humble in how he related to, to everybody else, you know, and it was kind of, we went on a USO tour where we, you know, later on we went to Japan and um, and to Hawaii with one Lum McClung and I think it was uh, Buck Compton and uh, Don Malarkey and it was Jimmy Matteo and we basically we you know had a good time just you know learning about each other and uh, in the context of you know the 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 you know the 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 world as as it was then 
and and they're just their 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 love for you know what these men were going through these soldiers were going through and what they faced and uh you know it it just it reminded me i guess you know, probably the thing that shifty used to he used to sit on his porch and he used to sit on his porch in in his holler in Clinchco. He's been there for all his life. And he would just, he would drink a cocktail and he'd smoke a cigarette and look out into the woods. And that was his piece. And that was just what he did. And he would do that every night. And I, it was, that's kind of, you know, you'd remember remember the good times and remember each other and and that kind of it's it's grown within me i don't know if it's it's almost like you know it's taken time for me to mature enough to understand what you know what these guys were actually dealing with what they were longing for what they what they loved and and it's you know i'm kind of understanding a little bit more about that these days and and I think about that think about him at that on his porch looking out at his holler and just kind of you know, just pondering you know pondering what home is getting old Pete <laughs> yeah yeah for me I was always absolutely heartbroken um by Spears's backstory didn't he get home from the war and his wife had gone hadn't she he that's what they that. told me yeah they did. they he did me. all yeah. that in world war ii and he got home and there was no one waiting for him yeah i always wondered about that why he was looting so much but uh, you know there's there's nothing was it charles bukowski said is nothing like a woman that can bring it all out of you right so i mean <laughs> well, so he's he's over there in zalemsey and everywhere looting like the dickens to try to keep a, a relationship then he gets home to to the uk and he finds out that the wife that he's been storing up all these treasures for her husband comes back to life that's the memory i have mm. of his backstory so his husband was in a uh, uh some prison camp over in russia um to my memory does that sound right to everybody else it's uh if i may jump in here what happened is, is is ron spears got married to an english girl and her husband had been missing for i think three or four years out in the far east in singapore and they married they had a kid and then the husband turned up and under English law, the only way they could rectify this was to annul the marriage. Spears loses his wife, but the kid he'd had had to be raised by the, the, the actual previous husband. Tim, go ahead. Wow, Jesus, that's, uh, that's unimaginable, really. Not the kind of thing you expect uh, to have to come home to, you know, when you've just been through all of that. I, I can't imagine what, what a bittersweet set of circumstances for everyone, though. Like, you know, the guy's still alive. Great. Uh, you know, her her husband. But, yeah. I, I mean, it's an impossible situation, isn't it? Mark Lawrence, who played Dukeman, you couldn't talk to him, obviously. And that hurt, didn't it? Because I never got the chance to meet him, you know, and I, I was quite jealous of a lot of the other guys because they, they got to hang out with their men you know, go drinking and all that stuff with him and hear all the stories. And um, I was talking to Babe Heffron one day, he came on set and um, he said to me, which character are you playing? I said, Dukeman. And he just started to break down in tears and just give me a big hug, you know? And it was like, 
I just wish I could have met him. You know, I really do. I really do. Um, were they able to tell you much, the veterans that you did meet? Well, they, they said um, they said he was a good-looking guy, um, and he smoked and drank a lot. So it's it's pretty much me down to a T. So <laughs> I got lucky. But no, they 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 all said they liked him, and I mean, it's they were kids, you know. And it's like so when I met Heffron and Garnier and all that, they were they were older men. They were all like 60s, 70s, and they were remembering a guy that was 21, 22. Who, who obviously never got old. So, um, yeah, they just they had good things to say about him. You've made a pilgrimage, sort of in the same vein as Jason, haven't you? Going to the place where Jutland came from, it's a tiny, tiny-ass town. It's about 500 people in it. And I went into the American Legion, and they've got all the American flags up on the wall of people that died. And there must have been about 100 flags on the wall, you know? And from a town that tiny to give up that many men, is insane and that happened all across america you know i mean obviously the uk as well i mean i'm not i'm not the uk gave up so much but but just to just to see that these young lads from like bfe middle of nowhere came over there gave their lives and never went back i mean in walking into that room seeing all those flags from that tiny town i, I just broke down you know it's just my god it is it's, it's real so I, I i feel that every chance that i get to one of these men, I'll take it anytime, you know. Rick Warden, do you have anything to add? And the truth is that Harry, Harry didn't die in the war, but Harry had died in the 90s. So I, the connections I had with Harry, I didn't have any connections with his family when I made the series. Now, I did after the series. But during, Babe Heffron, the real Babe Heffron, and while Bill Garnier visited set during episode three, and that was, as Dexter said, shot early on. And they literally made a beeline for me during, I think, one of the Carrington scenes and just told me who I was playing. <laughs> just by looking at me and by what I was doing. And, and honestly, I, I, not as an actor, it's not I didn't feel I push it. I just felt, you know what, if it's good enough for them, then I'm all right. <laughs> <laughs> Jimmy, we've been talking to people about um, their veterans and the relationships they forged. And I know that you forged a really special relationship with um, Frank Picante. What did that mean to you? Well, I, I, uh, for, for me, I think it put a lot of pressure to make sure that, you know, I, I get it right. And I think that goes for all of us. Uh, it was great to, to just get information about him and, and as accurate as we can be and, and, and put him on the screen and, uh, for his family and his friends and all that. And at the same time, I know it was crucial to get information from him for the other guys. Some of the other guys that Frank was, Frank was close with like a Luz or, you know, Lipton or anybody and just kind of go, Hey, here's what Frank told me about, you know, one time with the, you know, one of the other characters. So just having a relationship with him for that during filming was, was great. But later on in, in life, uh, in, in our relationship, you know, I went out to Chicago maybe two or three times a year. I went out almost every year for his birthday and got really close to him. I got to, you know, tour Europe with him and go back to, uh, we did Normandy, Holland. Uh, uh, we went into the Ardennes at the Battle of the Bowl, uh, uh, Bastogne and looked at the foxholes, you know, retraced exactly where he was shot in Foy, you know, right to his groin and came out of his ass. Uh, so I got really, really close with him and uh, went to visit him right before he passed. 
but it meant a lot. It, you know, I say that, you know, I say it all the time. When you first took this job, you knew it was going to open up a lot of doors as far as, uh, you know, for careers, you know, mm-hmm. it, uh, it's such a monumental epic piece, but I didn't, I, you know, I didn't know that I was going to gain a friend like that and, and, and just become, you know, uh, uh, great buddies with someone and, uh, you know, help shape kind of who I was and who I am moving forward, but a good guy. And tell us what happened, Jimmy, when Frank was dying, because um, you absolutely wanted to see him one last time, didn't you? What happened was uh, Frank was, you know, he was, he was going to pass away and I was in touch with his family and uh, uh, I called HBO. You're talking, this is 14 years later after the series, you know, Frank was like 96, 97. This is 2014, I believe. Uh, and I called HBO, a few con- people there uh, who were still working in certain departments and I told them what was happening. And within like, you know, 10 hours, they had me on a flight out to Chicago to make sure that I got out there to, uh, you know, to say goodbye to him. And that's exactly what I did. Uh, but I just thought that that was a testament to, you know, the people who were involved in HBO from front of the camera, behind the camera, and just, just shipped me out there to make sure I got to say goodbye to him, which uh, meant a lot to me. It was hard to get these guys to talk for obvious reasons. Scott, Rich, you taught me more about Malarkey uh, because you, <laughs> I think you showed up, Band of Brothers, knowing more about him than I did. Because I was, I was going to probably be a little lazy. He didn't really want to talk to me on the phone. Uh, and do you remember we were watching, we were watch, I had gone up to you after Frank John Hughes did that thing with his jaw, right? I'm like, well, shit, I want to, I got to do something, right? And I, we had watched, we were sitting there at my place in uh, South Kensington and we're watching this tape of Don Malarkey, who's 80-something years old and does this kind of thing with his mouth because he's old. And I turned to Ritz Spate, and I'm like, should I? He's like, no, no, that's just because he's old. <laughs> <laughs> so you really, got me, you really got me involved uh, in, 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 uh, in getting to know Malarkey. You did develop a relationship, though, didn't you? How did you go about it? Uh, I just had to call. And he would hang up on me all the time. Uh, Richard knows that. Because um, he'd just get emotional and you'd, you'd wait. You'd, you, know, you couldn't text somebody back then. I couldn't text him going, you all right? Uh, can I call you back? Uh, so I would just get limited information from him because he would always break down. Um, only after we finished and he saw, you know, I think the original pilot when he was at, or pilot, the, 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 uh, the opening episode when we were at the Hollywood Bowl, did he really start? Because I hung with his family a lot and he saw that I was genuine. I will say this. His family did come up to me when they met me. Yeah. And they told me the truth. They said, when we found out you were playing our father, we were so pissed because you're not even close to as good looking as he was. <laughs> <laughs> he was, uh, and, and it's absolutely true. I look, we look nothing alike. But, uh, and I think, yeah, so after that first episode that we saw at the Hollywood Bowl, he really started to open up and he'd still cry, but they were like, he was okay. The thing is with him is once he felt comfortable crying in front of you, he wouldn't hang up because he couldn't talk about it. He didn't want you hearing him cry, you know, more than anything. So he would sit there in, in, in the hotel room when I, when I met him and his family and cry and talk to me. And I'm like, oh, finally, he's comfortable uh, saying these things. And, he, you know, it, so it was just about him being comfortable. And again, like we've all said, Band of Brothers has allowed 
all these men to, you know, peek out now and go, oh, the coast is clear. We're allowed to speak of this. Mm. And you'll listen and you'll listen and I'll cry and you'll cry and we'll, whew, and that, that, that in itself is just such a beautiful thing that this has allowed these men to experience. I spent quite a lot of time in Malarkey in Normandy uh, towards the latter part of his life when he was, you know, health was failing. But when people ask him about the show and the actors, he'd always refer to, yeah, yeah, I got to know Scott and Skip. So he referred to Scott as Scott the actor, but he always referred to you as Skip because I think for whatever reason, your portrayal, the way his, his brain had processed it, he referred to you as Skip. So that's the only little compliment I can throw your way is he always referred to you as Skip. Um, so yeah, I, I know Scott and Skip. Yeah, yeah. And uh, we used to have, have to have a code in Norm when, when he was here because I was, I was here for a few days filming a, year, a few years ago. We had to have a code amongst us to try and not mention Skip because if you mention Skip, Don would just start crying. Yeah. And one day it was one of the girls on the film crew said, oh, we're just going to skip over there to get a sandwich or something. <laughs> and she used Skip as a you know, verb. And suddenly yeah. Don's got off again. And every single time Skip came in the conversation, he just would cry. So I, I, I don't know how you managed to get where you got information from Don about, about your character. Because you know, even 15 years after the show, you couldn't say Skip Mark without him crying. You know what I think? I honestly think the reason why it worked for Garnier and Heffron, I spent a lot of time with those guys and Don Malarkey, is because I was Skip, and if I'm Skip, I'm alive. Yeah. So in the conversation that he's having with me with short hair, real creamed up, and in the outfit, or in a bar after, and I, you know, it wasn't like when we go out to bars, we suddenly look like we're in a rap act. We're kind of still dressed in T-shirts, and, you know, we look like modern versions of soldiers, if you will. And so there's something there was a piece of connective tissue that they could emotionally link together that at once made it hard to have people like me around people representing the fallen buddies. But also I think was cathartic uh, because they had lost these guys in an instant. Like you just talked about Kala and Muck gone. They were there gone. And that was it. There was no conversation about it. Yeah. So if however many years later they see me or they see anybody who played in a character that passed, and they can go to that person and connect with them. It, it's the conversation they never got to have. The amount of ways that this show has continued to touch people for 20 years after it's been made. Um, it's still, it's like the original binge watching series. It defined binge watching. Everybody just couldn't wait to get their hands on the next episode. Um, and everybody remembers it. Everybody rewatches it. It's just insane that it's still so loved, isn't it? Well, it's not that just so loved. It just holds it, it's just, it's so well done that it just holds to even uh, today's standards. You look at how it was filmed. You know, everything was very tactical. Everything was hands-on. It wasn't, I mean, the big, uh, the big green screen uh, episodes, you know that was happening, but everything else was like, okay, we got to reset a set, you know, reset something. Okay, take three or four hours off, you know, and let's go do something else. You know, because they had to rebuild things. It was amazing. And everybody it, everybody here, you know, we had to make sure we did our job or else the scenes would not happen. You know, um, just Carrington, all the explosion, explosions, you know, when Rick and Welsh are behind that building, all the gunshots, and they're like going back and forth, where the fuck is everybody? You know, it's like, I don't know. Uh, those shots, you know, it's amazing how everybody had to respond at that moment, you know, 
it is real surreal just looking back at it now. Rick Gomez, did you have any idea of what you got yourself into? I never knew. I, I, I don't think I was too young and too fucking idiotic to understand what it would be. Uh, I, I, think, I think by the time it dawned on me, there was a rap on 6th Avenue that um, early September, pre 9-11, uh, one of the buildings on 6th Avenue. So it was, it was all of 6th Avenue down 36th Street, all of 5th Avenue, up 37th Street, wrapped this block-long Band of Brothers wrap. They wrapped the entire top of this building. And I went... Sunset Boulevard, right? (laughs) That's that show. That's the one. That's it. (laughs) And then then I think at that point, I was like, oh. And then then it all... Then it started to hit me. But I was kind of an idiot. I still am an idiot. So, I mean, you know. And you, Philip, any idea? At the time, you know, I, I was 19 years old and I'd just come off a TV series um, which was on Sky One called Dream Team and it was like a football drama, you know, relatively decent budget. Um, I was on that for two years. I was having a lot of fun. Um, <clears throat> then I got the part in Band of Brothers and the first day on set I was there and it was just just a different league. You know, you kind of know that this is there's a lot of money being put into this and at the time, I think it was the, the most expensive TV miniseries ever made. Um, so it was, we knew, you know, HBO were putting a lot into it. And I guess you think, you know, it, it's going to be, you know, because Saving Private Ryan had been out and that was a huge hit. Mm. And so we all had that in the back of our minds. This is the TV series of Saving Private Ryan, that kind of sort of same people who are making it, um, you know, that kind of feeling. But not in a million years did I think that 20 years later you know a we'd all still be in touch because you know you work on these these films and tv jobs and you you always say oh let's stay in touch you know we'll be you know you become really close to people when you're on set with it with everybody it's like a, a, a family but you never uh you never sort of do stay in touch not not to the extent that we have as as uh as friends and and brothers we call each other brother and you know we 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 have a WhatsApp group that we're all on and, you know, we, we stay in touch as much as we can, but um, it's just mind blowing how, how popular it is. And not, not just with people who watched it originally when it first came out, but also like the younger generation who are also watching it now, like my, my brothers, he, he watches it and, you know, my, my cousins watch it and they're, they're just, they're young, young kids. And it's just, it's just phenomenal what, 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 what the length it's gone and, and, you know, and even to this day, it's still, you know, recognised as one of the best TV shows ever made, which is mind-blowing. Absolutely mind-blowing. Ben? Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think I did realise. I think I did realise because, you know, as I say, when you got on set and saw, you know, the, the, the money that was spent on the detail and the size of the thing, you know, I just knew, and you know, obviously, you know that Tom Hanks and Steven Spielberg were involved. I mean, you know, mm. they're, they're they're big hitters in the in the <laughs> industry. Um, so you, you you already think I'm I'm just lucky to be on this on this um, on this project. And I remember Stephen coming up to me on day one of boot camp when I was in the mess hall, and he, he put, stuck his hand out and said, you know, hey, I'm you know, I'm my name's Stephen Spielberg, and I was like thinking to myself, like I don't know who you are. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Uh, and I just remember the young boy in me who, you know, grown up watching E.T. and, and, and um, you know, all those great films growing up, Jaws and stuff, and just thinking this is just a dream come true. It's that weird parallel, isn't it, that you were young men thrown together to do something massive, just in a, a different sphere. And the way that you've sort of come out of it, gelled together, like the guys that came out of the war from Easy Company were sort of 
tied to each other for a lot of them for the rest of their lives. There is a parallel there, even though, of course, you, you'd never be so disrespectful as to say it was the same feeling because obviously they were in mortal danger and they were fighting a war. But there is a parallel there between the relationships that you forged. Michael? I, I think that it, it, it's, it's apples and oranges. I think there, are, there will be other things that we do. And, and this is not, I'm not trying to speak for everybody, but I, I think this is the same sort of overall way we all feel about it is that it is its own thing and it, it will never be replaced. Uh, it can be possibly matched emotionally with something that connects with you um, in a different way. But there's very few times where you have to do something that is not only entertaining, but changes other people's lives and also mm-hmm. changes. So I think from that perspective, um, I think it's a one of a kind. Mm-hmm. Mark, that bond between you guys hasn't gone away, has it? We all see each other now, and this is 20 years later, and we all hang out now. We've got WhatsApp groups, and we mess around, you know, and we go out drinking. And, like, if somebody called me up tomorrow, I'd do something if they needed it. It's, it's that kind of thing. So it's um, the most amazing show to be part of. It really is, and these men need to be honoured. I mean, they thank God this show got made, so these men became immortal, hopefully. Mm. And it's not dependent on how much you feature in the final series, is it, Jason? It was awkward for me. Um, those first few days where, you know, everyone's supposed to play their rank and I had no experience. Like I was just, you know, coming from my apartment in London, get it going through wardrobe and suddenly expected to be a leader of men. I'm just an actor who's been cast in a part. So I had to learn very quickly to, to try to, how to do that, you know, and, and Dale Dye helped me to an extent, but it was a bit of a cheat because I wasn't on boot camp, So I had no one's respect. Yeah. Um, I think after the speech in the hangar, the overlord speech, I had a bit more respect because they were, oh, he's the guy. Okay. Mm. He's our commander. <laughs> he tells us what to do. But up until that point, it was, it was kind of awkward. And um, it just assumed I was, I don't know, an extra or something. They were all like, fuck you. Who is this guy? You know? Um, so I had to kind of hold my own there. But what's amazing about them as a group is that, um, and I worked with Richard right after, like the year afterwards on a, on a series called The Agency here in Los Angeles. So I got to be quite close to Richard and he's still a friend of mine to this day. Um, and through Richard and also Michael Cudlitz came and did an episode of that. Mm-hmm. So through Richard and, and my Cudlitz, um, I got to know those guys and they started to invite me to the reunion because I'd moved out to LA by then. And so I've been going to the reunion every, well, most years over the last uh, 20. And uh, so I've got to know them after the fact. And they're a great group of guys, you know, um, and very welcoming, very open. They weren't at all like they were in those first couple of days. They're a very intimidating group of guys, you know, of course. Um, But turns out they're absolute sweethearts, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, really nice guys and and they're good friends and, you know, they're a group of people I really, I really rely on, you know, great guys to have in your corner. Yes, Peter Romero. I've spoken before about when we finished the show and it was over individually, we all felt this really extraordinary experience to be part of it, to carry these stories. And so I'm carrying a story and somebody else is carrying their part of the story. And as men, we're maybe not so great at talking about that, about how you're feeling. 
sure enough, over time, we've just kind of gravitated back into each other's lives. And it's really special and, and powerful. And it's not you don't even need to see each other all the time. It's pretty special, man. I, I, look, I know other actors who are very successful. They've done multiply good things. But you say Band of Brothers is like, oh, that's significant. And the fact that we meet every year when we can. I don't know any other job where that happens. This is unique. And uh, it's a testament to, to Michael and Frank, who I think are the core who really keep it going. Um, and Frank Sanders is just such a great, great soul. But a gifted person. And just the end, you know, that takes time and energy to keep track of everybody, right? And to keep us all informed as to what's going on. So I'm very grateful to be part of it. I find it utterly uh, lovely that Frank John Hughes, who played Wild Bill Garnier, has taken on kind of the role that Wild Bill Garnier, talking to his son and his granddaughter, appeared to have when it came to the actual members of Easy Company and their reunions and keeping them all together and and being the glue that bound them together. Yeah, it seems to have worked out that way, that he's carrying on the Garnier legacy of being, you know, Mm big-hearted one who checks in on everyone, right? It's it's very big. Most jobs you do, you have a great time, you connect with people, and then, you know, the, the nature of life just takes you on somewhere else. It's nice to know that we're able to reach out and talk about it. And, uh, mm-hmm. and listen, to outsiders, they think, some people think we're crazy. <laughs> like, like, what are you talking about? Wasn't that 20 years ago? How come you guys are still talking about it? But Band of Brothers is lightning in a bottle. Just something in the air and the magic. I want to finish by going to Richard Spate. Um, how did it feel when it was all over? And try to sum up how significant Band of Brothers has been in your life. And I'm not just talking in career terms. It was weird. Um, I think Band of Brothers has had such a profound impact. And I'm not saying because it was a success. I'm talking about the, the shooting of it. The auditioning process, which was grueling and emotionally tiring. <laughs> and, and then getting the job and the preamble to actually doing the job, which was surprising and stressful because you're talking to grown men who are bursting into tears on the telephone and then going to do the job where, you know, I was super intimidated. You know, I'm sitting around with a bunch of actors, a lot of whom I don't know, some of whom, you know, I recognize their face or their work and I'm, I'm intimidated by that. Then I'm getting yelled at by military personnel and I'm intimidated by that. And, and you know, everything was daunting. It was, you know, I went from doing small things to working on a giant Hank Spielberg project and carrying the weight of real men and their story of war with me the whole way. And I just found it, I found it so intense. I think that's why I got so intense about the job. It's maybe it's the only way I knew how to handle it. You know, we laughed hard. We goofed hard. We cried hard and we worked hard. And so I think all those things in in various equal measures at various times. And, you know, when it was all done, it was all just surreal. And leaving that job, I I left that job a different person than I arrived to it. And I guess everybody does that for every job. But this one just seemed to reshape my view of – friendships of what it meant to be an actor uh what it meant to be an american what it meant to be what patriotism means and and what it meant to be a man and and 
the most emotional I got was at the premiere in France, which had been a journey, like we talked about earlier, with the families, with the guys. I mean, I, there wasn't a day that went by that I wasn't in lockstep, attached to the hip with Tim Matthews and Scott Grimes all day long. And I never called him Tim Matthews. It still feels weird to call him Tim Matthews. <laughs> um, Pinky, Muck, and Malarkey, we were in lockstep from boot camp forward for months. Then I also became friends in because of where we lived with Rick Gomez. Got to know his then-girlfriend, now wife. My girlfriend, now wife, was coming out, out a bunch. Jimmy Matteo was there. Uh, Ron Livingston was there. And we were in lockstep, New McDonough. And then nine months later... It's like you are petals from the, you know, flower blown to the four winds and off you go. And, and it was very, very jarring. It was more jarring to separate than it was to join. Um, and I knew, like, the rap party wasn't necessarily fun because I knew what I was leaving was better than where I was going in terms of the, the, the emotional content of that experience. It doesn't mean I haven't had phenomenal experiences since with work and life and everything else. But I knew I was old enough and wise enough to recognize the rareness of that experience. And it created a, a, a weight to the exit that um, I, I don't think ever left. And I mean that as a good thing. It was, it was a monumental experience. And I remember going to the, the French premiere. We're in France. And I'd fought to get the family there. All these things were happening. And they had all these events set up for the veterans. And they were all staying in our hotel, and they all gave them these yellow jackets so they could recognize who they were in these giant groups. And they were loading all these guys up on a bus. And these are now old men and their wives or old men and their buddies or both. And they line up in the lobby of the hotel, and they're in a line and shuffling their way, the way old men kind of move, out to get on this bus. And the imagery to me was intense because all I could think of was stand up, hook up, shuffle to the door, which was what you did to come out of an airplane, which is what these guys did in their twenties and their teens. And the image of these old men standing up and shuffling to the door to go back to visit the sites where they lost their friends and where they fought and where they landed. I didn't go on that tour. That wasn't for me. That was for the veterans, but I went up to my hotel room and I, cried harder and longer than I've ever cried. And my girlfriend, who's now my wife, was baffled. She's like, what's wrong? And there was nothing wrong. It was just two years. It was two years of trying to do the right thing by people who did something greater than I will ever be asked to do. And trying to make playing pretend seem real so that the stories and sacrifices made by these people and their families resonated beyond the work we were doing when we were shooting it. And the connections I made with those people and those men to have Babe Heffron sit in a bar across from you and talk to you like you are Skip Muck. Cause as far as Babe Heffron is concerned, you are Skip Muck. You look like Skip Muck. You're dressed like Skip Muck. You got Skip Muck's hair. Everybody around here is calling you Skip and Babe's had a couple of drinks and now you're Skip Muck. And the intensity that came with that. It was an honor and a pleasure, but also an intense moment to be the recipient of those stories and that emotion and that loss and him saying, we look through your body parts, Skip. We couldn't find any piece of you. 
We couldn't find a PC to send home. And it mattered to him to be able to say that at that moment. And it mattered that I could be Skip in that moment at a bar in civilian clothes in London going, I know, I know, babe, I know you did. And I appreciate it. You know, to have those exchanges, they don't just bounce off you when they, when they call rap and you get on a plane to go home. Those are part of what you become beyond that experience. They are intrinsically woven into the fabric who Richard Spade is and how I parent and how I raise three boys and how I perceive the military today and how I perceive my country and leadership and, and how I reflect on history and everything. We want to thank all of you for taking the time to come on and talk to us 20 years after filming. I think it's been really insightful and I know that you guys have enjoyed catching up again. Some of you haven't seen each other for years and obviously none of this would have happened without the tireless efforts of Woody, um, who has been basically working flat out to get as many of you guys on as possible over the last few weeks. We've laughed and we've joked. Uh, We've had a lot of fun. We've had some serious moments too. And just to emphasize, I think right at the end, I want to show that as much as we enjoy the spectacle as fans and as much fun as you guys had filming it, this was a real story about real men. And we're going to leave you with Jason reading the last note written by Thomas Meehan to his wife a few hours before he was killed on D-Day. June 5th, 1944. Dearest Anne, in a few hours, I'm going to take the best company of men in the world into France. We'll give the bastards hell. Strangely, I'm not particularly scared but in my heart is a terrific longing to hold you in my arms. I love you, sweetheart, forever. Your Tom. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.